Seattle celebrity CEO Dan Price's rise and fall at Gravity Payments. Seattle celebrity CEO Dan Price's rise and fall at Gravity Payments. You're listening to World Reading Club. Presented by Hakeem Ali Bokas Alexander. On Wisdom, Social Audio Inc. Presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us from SeattleTimes.com and is titled Seattle Celebrity CEO Dan Price's Rise and Fall at Gravity Payments. So just to preface this article that I'm going to read here, it's from December 25th, 2022 at 6 p.m., updated December 25th, 2022 at uh, 6.01 a.m. And I'm going through this because oftentimes I refer to this gentleman, Dan Price, um, because of something that he did, and it comes up often. And there was a talk from a gentleman just now um, that just simply calls himself here on Wisdom Up. And he was talking about salary inequalities and the immorality. He was calling it illegal. I think Dr. King would call it immoral. But the immorality of people being paid $2 an hour in customer service and, uh, you know, which causes them to, you know, basically hunt for tips and uh, putting it on the employee on the, the consumer to pay people's wages instead of giving people a living wage, so on and so forth. Well, Dan Price became famous for starting a base salary of $70,000 for all his employees. And I've usually glossed over it and just looked at that part of it, you know, that he did that. But over time, over the years, I've picked up here and there that things aren't always what they seem. And although I don't know, I'd like to balance out my perspective by doing what I usually do, finding something and cold reading it just to see if it gives some more insight into the situation. And so one of the first things I found was a seattletimes.com article, of course, from the Seattle Times. And I thought it's good to read it from here because he, uh, well, his company was in Seattle. And so I'm going to explore this and see what it has to say. We have some illustrations here to begin, special to the Seattle Times. Um, shows the outside. There's a, there's a looks like a, um, it's an illustration here by Morgan Krieg. Looks like Dan Price is sitting at a table. It's like a kind of a Last Supper-esque. He's sipping on something. Then we have a, an outside view, Gravity Payments, a Ballard-based credit card processor offered. It's uh, Kevin Clark, Seattle Times. <clears throat> Uh, let's see. Uh, gravity payment. The caption for this reads: A Ballard-based credit card processor offered workers pay raises and opportunities to get in on Seattle's tech boom, but many former employees said it came at the cost of stressful days, sleepless nights, and lasting memories of what many described as an abusive workplace. Kevin Clark, Seattle Times. The next image is of uh, three of eight. Is Elan Mueller was making. $13 an hour when she started at Gravity. 
Uh, she was using government assistance to pay her electric bill. Then gravity raised its minimum pay to $70,000. Mueller's wages nearly tripled. Uh, Kevin Clark, the Seattle Times. Uh, next image, four of eight. Former engineering director Jen Peck said gravity fell flat when it came to creating new services and products. Again, the image is from Kevin Clark, the Seattle Times. Uh, image five of eight. Matt Nezovich, or Nezovich, a former account manager at Gravity Payments, uh, believes he was fired for asking company leaders how Gravity planned to address allegations against the CEO. Again, Kevin Clark. Six of eight. Caitlin Palfinier, or Palfinier, uh, a former Gravity recruiter, remembers the company pushed employees to share personal often traumatic experiences with colleagues. Kevin Clark. Image seven of eight. Stephen Bennett, a former product manager, worked at Gravity for 12 years. Alarmed by colleagues' stories from working for CEO Dan Price, Bennett said he hoped Gravity leadership would intervene. Again, the image is credited to Kevin Clark, Seattle Times. And image eight of eight. In April 2015, Dan Price, then CEO of Gravity Payments, announces a plan to his employees to raise the company's minimum pay to $70,000 a year within two years. This image is credited to Matthew Ryan Williams, the New York Times. <clears throat> okay. So, let's see what this has to say as we dive in here. Seattle celebrity CEO Dan Price's rise and fall at Gravity Payments. December 25th, 2022 at 6 a.m. by Lauren Rosenblatt, Seattle Times staff reporter. Remembering their time at Gravity Payments, some employees of the Seattle-based credit card processor recall a pernicious cycle. Come in starstruck by celebrity founder and CEO Dan Price, a progressive social media star famous for setting bait salaries at $70,000. Then, notice the demands pile up. Attend a company event where colleagues share their personal traumas. Answer Price's late night calls. Overhear one of the CEO's explosive outbursts. Watch your stress level rise and work-life balance collapse. Finally, get fed up and leave, or speak up and get pushed out. Price was 19 and full of grand ambitions to slash credit card processing fees for small businesses when he launched Gravity in 2004. Now 38, Price has branded himself as a model corporate leader who puts employees' interests ahead of his own. But in interviews with the Seattle Times, more than two dozen former Gravity employees said Price became obsessed with curating his compassionate persona, even if it didn't match the person behind the viral posts. As CEO, Price cultivated a sense of fear and built a company that, as one former employee put it, was just there to get Dan famous. Price resigned as CEO from Gravity in August, following accusations of assault and rape that have resulted in two police investigations. Price denies those accusations. 
Whether he remains a force at Gravity, a 200-plus person company based in Seattle's Ballard neighborhood, remains to be seen. Over the past five months, the Times contacted 75 people close to Gravity or Price. About 40 individuals shared their experiences. In those interviews and in correspondence, as well as police reports, court documents, and internal communications, a picture emerges of Gravity, a small company that drew an outsized amount of attention with Price at the helm. Gravity offered workers pay raises and opportunities to get in on Seattle's tech boom. But many former employees said it came at the cost of stressful days, sleepless nights, and lasting memories of working for a man six former employees described as a manipulative boss. Let me have the image of Caton uh, Palfanier, a former Gravity recruiter, members of the company. Um, pushed employees to share personal, often traumatic experiences. You see the Dan in the news where he's very charming and polished, and then you hear these behind-the-scenes stories, said Kate Palfenier, a former gravity recruiter, a former gravity recruiter. He either wants you to worship him, or if you don't worship him, he wants you to be afraid enough to not do anything about it. Gravity declined to comment on specific allegations from former employees or make current CEO Tammy Cole available for an interview. A spokesperson for the company told Seattle Times the statements from former employees are either false, badly misleading, or severely... Sounds like a cover-up to me. <clears throat> Continuing, Seattle Times continues. Gravity's business practices have created industry-leading satisfaction and retention among our employees and clients, the spokesperson said. The leadership team is committed to continuing to make Gravity Payments a destination employer for people around the country. Price denied allegations of harassment, assault, and abusive behavior while defending his record at Gravity. The claims made to the Seattle Times are exaggerated or untrue, Price said. I am immensely proud of the nearly two decades of work that went into building Gravity Payments into a thriving company that offers reliable credit card processing services to small businesses and provides good jobs to over 200 people in Seattle and around the country, Price said by email. It has always been my goal for Gravity Payments to be both a successful and ethical company. Meet the Star. From its inception, Gravity was an extension of Dan Price. He started the company in his dorm room at Seattle Pacific University after noticing steep credit card processing fees, up to 3.5% of a transaction on average. As the company grew, so did Price's reputation. He was named National Young Entrepreneur of the Year by the U.S. Small Business Administration in 2010 and visited the White House to meet President Barack Obama. He was crowned Entrepreneur of the Year by Entrepreneur Magazine in 2014. He always wanted to be CEO of a company, full stop, said Christy Colon, who has known Price since he was a teenager 
and I was married to him from 2005 to 2011. I think he always wanted to be famous and there's some prestige that comes with being able to own something and he's always wanted to make a lot of money. Gravity doesn't have to disclose financial information as a private company, so its true size is unclear. Price owns 100% of the company, nine former employees said. Gravity and Price declined to answer questions about the company's finances. In the world of credit card processing, Gravity is a middleman, acting as a sales and customer service apparatus in a complicated web of transactions, according to four former employees. Gravity connects retailers to banks and handles customer service, transactions and communication between the two. The machines that Gravity sells come from different companies, including Clover Network, a subsidiary of First Data. Kroll, a C-suite long-timer at Gravity, spent 12 years working at First Data. Gravity's attempts to engineer new products and services fell flat, said Gentech, a former director of engineering. Many, of, many Gravity engineers were new to the field and weren't provided clear goals, making it tricky to compete with much larger payment processors like Stripe, Square, and Toast. There was rarely any executive direction, said one former project manager. They just ran up a bunch of side endeavors just trying to get something to stick. Gravity hosted staff retreats in luxurious resorts at Suncadia in Elum, Las Vegas, and Hawaii, among others. Build as a chance to set goals and strategize. Instead, the trips were like vacations, according to five employees who experienced them. Paul Fenier, the former recruiter, recalled snowmobiling and taking cooking classes. Grant McLeod, a former product manager, said Price showed up to meetings too hungover to present. As CEO, Price rarely visited the office, according to two former employees who worked closely with him. But his influence loomed large. 26 former employees who spoke with the Times said their time at Gravity took a mental or emotional toll, but credited the company with creating friendships among co-workers or helping them gain a foothold in a new industry. Most said they believed in the vision of helping small businesses, but said that was clouded by Price's behavior. A 27th employee said they were not bothered by the workplace culture or the head of the company. Most of the other former Gravity employees who spoke at the time described Price as an unpredictable manager prone to outlandish requests, grand entrances, and outbursts. Price once arrived at a company party wakeboarding shirtless behind a boat, McLeod said. In the middle of a job interview, Price lay down on the couch, took his shoes off, and began playing on his phone, Palfanier recalled. One afternoon, Price walked to the middle of the office an open floor plan, and announced he was going to shoot himself, Peck said. When two marketing employees declined to film Price cutting, his, cutting down fishnets, an idea Price pitched to symbolize gravity cutting out the red tape in credit card processing, he said he felt he was being oppressed like Jewish people in Nazi Germany, according to one of those employees who asked her
Hmm. Oh no. That's not good. Um, let's see, why is this not... Okay. Alright, so, so I've been sitting here in silence for all this time. Uh, you know, guys, I came on here to, um, do my replays. And I, uh, did it for one, because, um, I'm one of those strange people who needs to have uh, some sounds sometimes going on in the background in order to um, well, to, to sleep. I don't know what that is. I don't know what that's about, but I don't know how much of it played through because I went to sleep. So, um, well, my continuous play is on. Why the fuck would it stop? That's what I don't get. I mean, that's probably why we woke up just now, because um, my playthrough never stopped, and that doesn't seem to make very much sense to me. I don't understand how it's supposed to be on continuous play, and it stops. That's rather strange. All right, well, um, let me just start it from... It's going to... I'm pretty sure the first one kind of started, so let's just go with this second one. All right. I'm going to check this heat on here. I'm fucking freezing, and the heat is on 80. I don't know. It's not, I just don't have something set right. Anyway, here we go with this fucking thing. <laughs> Gut bacteria influences immune cell behavior. Gut bacteria influences immune cell behavior. Oh, God. See up. Let's just start that again. There we go. Gut bacteria influences immune cell behavior. Gut bacteria influences immune cell behavior. You're listening to Technical News Reading. Presented by Hakeem Alibokas Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc. Presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us from Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology News and is titled Gut Bacteria influences immune cell behavior it was published on january 13 2023 it's published under the category of omics microbiome neurological neurological disorders and news here we have our opening featured image that shows an interview of the gut with an arrow pointing to an inside view of the brain. The image is credited to Chris W. from Getty Images. A new study in mice found that gut bacteria affect the behavior of human immune cells throughout the body, including ones in the brain that can damage brain tissue and exacerbate neurodegeneration in conditions such as Alzheimer's disease. The study, 
ApoE isoform and microbiota-dependent progression of neurodegeneration in a mouse model of topathy, published in Science, may lead to potentially reshaping the gut microbiome as a way to prevent or treat neurodegeneration. We gave young mice antibiotics for just a week, and we saw a permanent change in their gut microbiomes their immune responses, and how much neurodegeneration related to a protein called tau they experienced with age, said senior author David M. Holtzman, MD, the Barbara Burton and Reuben M. Morris III Distinguished Professor of Neurology. What's exciting is that manipulating the gut microbiome could be a way to have an effect on the brain without putting anything directly into the brain. The researchers altered the gut microbiomes of mice predisposed to develop Alzheimer's-like brain damage and cognitive impairment. The mice were genetically modified to express a mutant form of the human brain protein tau. They also carried a variant of the human APOE gene. The genetically modified mice that were raised under the sterile conditions from birth did not acquire gut microbiomes, and their brains showed much less, much less damage at 40 weeks of age than the brains of mice harboring normal mice microbiomes. Uh, reading again for clarity. The genetically modified mice that were raised under sterile conditions from birth did not acquire gut microbiomes, and their brains showed much, much less damage at 40 weeks of age than the brains of mice harboring normal my, mouse microbiomes. Jeez, the tongue twister for me. When such mice were raised under normal, non-sterile conditions, they developed normal microbiomes. A course of antibiotics at two weeks of age, however, permanently changed the composition of bacteria in their microbiomes. For male mice, it also reduced the amount of brain damage evident at 40 weeks of age. Antibiotic treatment had no sig significant effect on neurodegeneration in female mice. We already know from studies of brain tumors, normal brain development, and related topics that immune cells in male and female brains respond very differently to stimuli, Holtzman said. So it's not terribly surprising that when we manipulated the microbiome, we saw a sex difference in response, although it is hard to say what exactly this means for men and women living with Alzheimer's disease and related disorders. This study may offer important insights into how the microbiome influences tau-mediated neurodegeneration and suggests therapies that alter gut microbes may affect the onset or progression of neurodegenerative disorders, said Linda McGavern, Ph.D., program director at the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke, NINDS, which provided some of the funding for the study. The findings suggest a new approach to preventing and treating neurodegenerative disease by modifying the gut microbiome with antibiotics, probiotics, specialized diets, or other means.
What I want to know is, if you took mice genetically destined to develop neurodegenerative disease and you manipulated the microbiome just before the animals start showing signs of damage, could you slow or prevent neurodegeneration, Holtzman asked. That would be the equivalent of starting treatment in a person in late middle age who is still cognitively normal but on the verge of developing impairments. If we could start a treatment in these types of genetically sensitized adult animal models before neurodegeneration first becomes apparent and show that it worked, that could be the kind of thing we could test in people. Hmm. You've been listening to Technical News Reading presented by Hakeem Alebokis Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc. Presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus has come to us from Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology News. It was published on January 13, 2023, under the title, Gut Bacteria Influence, Influences Immune Cell Behavior. The categories are omics, microbiome, neurological disorders, and news. You can read this article and others like it for yourself by visiting Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology News on G-E-N-E-N-G-N-E-W-S dot C-O-M. That's GeneNGNews.com. Gut Bacteria Influences Immune Cell Behavior. Cochlear implant performance bolstered by brainstem neuroplastic nucleus. Cochlear implant performance bolstered by brainstem neuroplastic nucleus. You're listening to Technical News Reading, presented by Hakeem Alibokis Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc. Presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us from Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology News and is titled Cochlear Implant Performance Bolstered by Brainstem Neuroplastic Nucleus by Anjali A. Sarkar, Ph.D., from December 22, 2022. Engaging the brain's plasticity by stimulating the locus corollulus, a region in the brainstem, could be a clinically relevant approach to optimize the efficacy of cochlear implants in restoring hearing in the deaf, claims a study published in the journal Nature on December 21, 2022. Locus Coruleus. The study, Locus Coruleus Activity Improves Cochlear Implant Performance, uses rat models fitted with multi-channel cochlear implants to examine neuromodulation and plasticity in learning and performance following cochlear implantation. Lead author of the study, Erin Glennon, PhD, a medical student at NYU Grossman School of Medicine said, our findings suggest that differences in neuroplasticity, particularly in parts of the brain such as the locus cor coriolis, 
may help explain why some cochlear implant users improve faster than others. Locus coruleus. Co-senior author Robert Frumke, PhD, a professor of genetics at NYU Langone said, improving neuroplasticity in the locus coruleus may speed up and bolster the effectiveness of cochlear implants. Here we have a, a featured image, which I'll simply read the caption, which says, image shows a hemotoxylin eosin stain section of the locus coruleus, a nucleus in the back of the brain or the brainstem, pons, and the lateral floor of the fourth ventricle, literally meaning blue spot in Latin based on its overall appearance. The locus coruleus is a center of norepinephrine, noradrenaline production, and regulates neuroplasticity. This image is from Wikipedia. Cochlear implants are the first neuroprosthetic electronic devices to restore a human sense. Despite their success in enabling some recipients to understand speech within a few hours, it can take months or years before implantation results in an optimal perception of speech in others. Experts believe that differences in neuroplasticity in the central auditory system may be responsible for this variable effectiveness. However, technical challenges in monitoring and manipulating neural activity in humans and animal models have left unanswered questions regarding neural mechanisms that control the brain's ability to adapt to the implant. Lena writes, PhD, Associate Professor of Otolaryngology and Biomedical Engineering at Oregon Health and Science University said, Clinically, this study might pave the way for novel treatments or even behavioral training strategies to better engage the locus coruleus to speed up relearning auditory processing through a cochlear implant. Stimulation of the locus coruleus may also help poorly performing patients improve further even if they have plateaued. Rice studies pitch and speech perception in children and adults with cochlear implants and mechanisms of hearing loss after cochlear implantation. She was not involved in the current study. Cochlear implants consist of an externally worn microphone, sound processor and transmitter, and an implanted electrode system that receives signals from the external system and stimulates nerves in the inner ear. Noradrenaline, produced by the locus coruleus, is a key factor in inducing neuroplasticity. Earlier studies by the same group had shown electric stimulation of the locus coruleus in normal rats increases plasticity, accelerates learning new reward associations, and influences how the brain represents sound. The current study builds on their earlier work to demonstrate stimulation of the locus coruleus hastens hearing in the cochlear implant recipients. The investigators analyzed behavioral responses and neural activity in the locus coruleus and the auditory cortex of deafened rats with multi-channel cochlear implants. First, they trained normal rats on an auditory task that rewarded the animals on successful performance. The rats were trained to press a button when they heard a specific sound 
and to ignore the button if they heard a different tone. The rats showed substantial differences in learning rates and peak performance. Using photometry of the locus coruleus, the researchers could predict when rats began responding to sounds and exhibited long-term accuracy in hearing. As expected, deafened rats could not complete the task. The deafened rats were then given cochlear implants and retrained to perform the same task. The researchers separated deafened rat models with the implanted neuroprosthetic into two sets, stimulating one group in the locus coruleus with optogenetic stimulation, while the other set of rats received no stimulation. They found rats that were stimulated learned faster with high long-term accuracy. In the reward-based auditory task, the simulated or the stimulated rats showed enhanced performance and corresponding responses in the auditory cortex. Rats that received an optogenetic boost in the locus coruleus could successfully complete the auditory task within three days, while those that did not receive the boost took up to 16 days. Activity in the locus coruleus changed as the rats learned to use their implants. At initial stages, the locus coruleus showed peak activity only when the animals received the reward, but later, activity peaked immediately following the tone. The speed of this change of activity in the locus coruleus mirrored the animal's ability to consistently succeed at the task. Previous studies have focused on the peripheral factors that govern variability. This study is innovative in finding a way to investigate central processing factors in an animal model. By focusing on the local coruleus, said Rice, oh, read that again for clarity. Previous studies have focused on the peripheral factors that govern variability. This study is innovative in finding a way to investigate central processing factors in an animal model by focusing on the locus coruleus, said Rice. The findings have implications for our understanding of individual differences in how fast people can learn to hear through a cochlear implant from the central auditory processing aspect. Here we have some, looks like x-ray or other images of the cochlear implants going in. And the caption reads, oh, and it's both in human and rat, it's labeled. These x-ray images show cochlear implants in rat and human cochlea. Cochlear electrodes are 22 channels for humans and 8 channels in rat. And in both cases, go one full 360-degree turn in the cochlea by electrical stimulation and restore hearing. The image is credited to R. Fremke and others in Nature 2022. In future projects, the team intends to explore ways of stimulating the locus coruleus in humans. We need to determine what non-invasive mechanisms may be used to trigger the brain region, said Mario Sfirsky, PhD, professor of otolaryngology at NYU Langone and senior and co-senior author of the study. Sfirsky cautions that the current study tested hearing in rats using simple sounds in a straightforward task, while humans 
need to respond to nuanced speech patterns in noisy environments. Translating the insights from the current study to humans will require further research. You've been listening to Technical News Reading, presented by Hakeem Alibokis Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us from Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology News at Gene GeneNGNews.com. That's G-E-N-E-N-G-N-E-W-S dot C-O-M. You can read more about this article or others like it for yourself using GeneNGNews.com. Cochlear implant performance bolstered by brainstem neuroplastic nucleus. Easter Island statues reveal their truth with help from a satellite. Easter Island statues reveal their secrets with help from a satellite. You're listening to Technical News Reading, presented by Hakeem Alibokis Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us from Possibility teledyneimaging.com and is titled Easter Island Statues Reveal Their Secret with Help from a Satellite. It was published by Geraldine Miller on May 30th, 2017. High resolution satellite imaging has revealed how the iconic statues have moved to every part of the island. The massive stone statues of Easter Island, called Rapa Nui by its inhabitants, have mystified us ever since Europeans first landed on the island in 1722. By then, the story of the 887 statues, or Moai in the Rapa Nui language, had been lost from the collective memory of the Rapa Nui people. And there's an image of those statues in the photo sources, Alamy. Why had the islanders' ancestors expended so much effort on the Moai, which are as tall as 40 feet and weigh as much as 75 tons, the equivalent of 20 mid-sized cars? And how had so few people on a remote island, the nearest inhabited island, Pitcairn Island, with around 50 residents, is 2,075 kilometers away, moved the Moai as far as 18 kilometers over rugged terrain without even large animals to help. Another photo of one of the Easter Island statues partially excavated with people standing in it showing its massive height. And the source is Thor Heyerdahl, Easter Island, The Mystery Solved, 1989. The first question was easy to answer. Polynesian people settled Rapa Nui sometime between 700 and 1100 AD. 
throughout the Polynesian culture at that time, deceased relatives were believed to have an influence on the living. The Moai represent ancestors watching over their descendants, which is why so much effort and importance was invested in them, why almost all face inland instead of seaward. Finding the Paths A definitive answer to the second question has been hard to find, and some suggestions have been flat-out bizarre, such as the claims of once-popular author Eric von Daniken that the Moai are the handiwork other highly implausible theories include the Moai being propelled through the air by eruptions at the volcanic stone quarry where they were carved, or being created on site by the Rapa Nui people molding clay. One of the challenges archaeologists faced was that few roads led from the quarry to the ceremonial platforms called Ahu, where the Moai were erected. The last of the Moai lived around 500 years ago. So it is likely that natural vegetation regrowth and human activity had covered up many of the Moai transport roads. In 2005, archaeologists P. Lipo and Terry L. Hunt from the University of Hawaii set out to test this hypothesis using panchromatic images, black and white photographs sensitive to all the wavelengths of visible light taken by the QuickBird commercial satellite over Rapa Nui in December 2001 and February 2020, 2002. Rapa Nui is, a very, is very small, about 17 square kilometers, one quarter the size of Manhattan, making it easy to meticulously examine the satellite images, which cover 85% of the island's surface at a resolution pixel size of 70 centimeters. Dr. Lipo and Dr. Hunt were looking for several signs of ancient roads, changes in vegetation caused by compacted soil, depressions filled with deposits of soil and gravel from seasonal runoff streams, built-up banks, erosion patterns, and otherwise inexplicable shadows. Another featured image here shows some different points and angles and is captioned, Satellite image of ancient road section, A, with circular patterns, 68 meters visible on the north side, B. These features showed up on the images as grayscale variations. Backed up by surveys in the field, the images identified close to 32 kilometers of ancient Moai roads radiating like spokes from the Rano Raraku quarry to every part of the island. Recent additional image analysis by archaeologist Gabriel Wolford, also from the University of Hawaii, has identified possibly even more ancient roads, although these still need to be verified with field surveys. Walk this way. The network of newly revealed ancient roads led Dr. Lipo and Dr. Hunt to consider the assertion among the Rafa Nui, passed down for generations, that the Moai had been walking giants. The archaeologists a method in which small teams use ropes to rock the Moai from side to side, which moves it forward in step-like motions, in step-like motions, while a third team behind the Moai keep it from falling backwards. The Moai seem to be built for this transport method. They lean slightly when stood upright, making it 
be easy to keep them moving forward. There's a video here from National Geographic that's posted on YouTube. You can click on this article, possibility.teledyneimaging.com. The future of archaeology. The University of Hawaii team is part of a growing community of space archaeologists, specialists who use satellite and remote sensing technology to find ancient sites or features not visible to the naked eye. For example, Dr. Jason Ur, an archaeologist at Harvard University, surveyed Iraq and with his colleagues identified close to 1,200 potential sites using images taken by spy satellites in the 1960s. And Sarah Parchak, a professor at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, used satellite data to identify potential sites of 17 Egyptian pyramids, 1,000 forgotten tombs, and 3,100 lost settlements. Remote sensing is especially useful for areas too dangerous for physical exploration or traditional digs. Archaeologist Damien Evans, who heads up the University of Sydney's Cambodian research base, and William Saturno, assistant professor of archaeology at Boston University, used space archaeology to survey Lingapura, the ancient site of the Angkorian Empire in northwest Cambodia. In the 1970s, the Khmer Rouge buried thousands of landmines throughout the site. As this technology advances, so will our knowledge of sites long forgotten. You've been listening to Technical News Reading, presented by Hakim Alibokis Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's readings comes to us from possibility.teledyneimaging.com and is titled Easter Island Statues Reveal Their Secret with Help from a Satellite on May 30th, 2017 by Gerilyn Miller. More for yourself about this article and read it on possibility.teledyneimaging.com. That's P-O-S-S-I-B-I-L-I-T-Y dot T-E-L-E-D-Y-N-E-I-M-A-G-I-N-G dot C-O-M. That's possibility.teledyneimaging.com. Easter Island statues reveal their secret with help from a satellite. Space Archaeology. Space Archaeology. You're listening to Technical News Reading, presented by Hakim Alibokis Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us from possibility.teledyneimaging.com and simply titled Space Archaeology. And this one 
is in the archives and comes from March 21st, 2016 by Geraldine Miller. Satellite imagery is changing the way we see our past and revolutionizing the study of archaeology as we know it. The concept of aerial archaeology isn't a new idea. It actually dates back to before the First World War. What is new is the use of satellite imagery and it's become one of the fastest growing tools in the field. Here we have an image with a caption that reads, the above photo of Stonehenge was taken by an army balloon in 1907. The variation of the vegetational growth along the line of the ditch led archeologists to realize that variations in crop and vegetation growth often indicated the presence of an archeological site. Photographer, Lieutenant P.H. Sharp, source, Capper, 1907, 573. More specifically, it's the application of multispectral, hyperspectral, and panchromatic satellite imaging that has led to the discovery of thousands of archeological sites in just a few short years. Satellite imagery, a retrospective. Satellite imagery has come a long way since the U.S. launched the Explorer 6 and took the first photographs of Earth in orbit in 1959. Not only are there over a thousand satellites orbiting Earth at this very moment, the quality of the data that they are collecting has far surpassed that of their predecessors. To illustrate their capabilities, see the images below. So if you'd like to see these images, you're going to have to go to possibility.teledyneimaging.com. That's P-O-S-S-I-V-I-L-I-T-Y dot T-E-L-E-D-Y-N-E-I-M-A-G-I-N-G dot C-O-M. Possibility.teledyneimaging.com. And look for space archaeology. I have a photo taken by Landstat satellite at 15 meter resolution. A photo taken by Sentinel-2 at 10 meter resolution. A photo taken by Blackbridge Rapid-Eye at 5 meters resolution. A photo taken by Airbus Pleiades at half a meter resolution. And a photo taken by Digital Globe WV-3 at 0.31 meter resolution. The images above highlight the detail that satellites capture while orbiting miles above the Earth images that are easily available to anyone with tools like Google Earth. This has had a huge impact in the archaeological community, specifically with archaeologists like Scott Madry, who had previously relied primarily on aerial archaeology. I've spent 25 years on and off bouncing around in low-level aircraft, searching old maps, looking at aerial photographs, and I found a handful of new archaeological sites. I found more sites on the first day of sitting down and doing a systematic survey on Google Earth than in those years of using other techniques. Here we have another image that is labeled with the caption, Meteorite Crater in Sahara Desert Discovered by Italian Researchers on Google Earth. Multispectral Vision. However, 
the capabilities afforded by tools like Google Earth only scratch the surface of what can be achieved with satellite imaging. Most satellites still have the same limitations as aerial archaeology, namely, they only capture what's visible to the human eye. Once again, most satellites still have the same limitations as aerial archaeology, namely, they only capture what's visible to the human eye, otherwise known as true color composites. Satellites with multispectral, hyperspectral, and panchromatic capabilities can capture imagery with a combination of bands within the electromagnetic spectrum, including near-infrared and ultraviolet light, otherwise known as false color composites, and these have proven to be far more useful to archaeologists. This is due to the fact that these images can pick up on aspects like vegetation health, which varies over ancient sites. Satellites with LIDAR, which stands for Light Detection and Ranging, capabilities can even create 3D high-resolution images indicating land elevation and even subterranean objects. This is achieved by measuring the time it takes laser pulses projected onto the Earth's surface to bounce back. This data is then compiled and sorted software, and a 3D image is created. And speaking of that, we have another featured image with three layers showing here and says peering into Egypt at the surface to the naked eye, the site is a muddy mound. The second layer shows the town Tanis seen from space. A computer program combines two satellite images into a high-res picture that reveals subtle changes in the landscape caused by shallowly buried features, in this case, houses. Third layer that's labeled Mapped out, the satellite images reveal hundreds of houses in the vicinity of a temple. Early and small homes, large homes, medium and small homes, large homes, and a temple. The image is courtesy of National Geographic. Possibility.telegine imaging continues. Dr. Sarah Parchak of the University of Alabama at Birmingham, a trailblazer in the realm of space archaeology, has used this technology to uncover over a hundred sites in the Egypt's Delta and Nile Valleys. Her most notable discovery was of a thousand tombs within the Egyptian city of Tanis, which most people might remember from this movie. What movie are we talking about? I'm gonna click on this link they have here. Oh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, great. All right, Teledyne imaging continues. The caption of the image reads, Multispectral image of the ancient city of Tanis in Egypt. Image courtesy of the University of Alabama, Birmingham. Birmingham. We're talking about Dr. Sarah Parchak. She estimates that humans have uncovered fewer than one thousandth of one percent of the archaeological sites along the Nile River, Nile River Delta alone. That's a staggering glimpse of what continues to lie hidden right before our eyes that may only be revealed to us from above. Archaeology hasn't been this exciting since Indy. Check out Teledyne's Optech, Teledyne Optech's wide range of LIDAR systems at www.teledyneoptech.com forward slash index 
php forward slash products forward slash airborne dash survey forward slash lidar dash systems further reading on hyperspectral imaging is at teledyne.com forward slash en forward slash learn forward slash markets and dash applications forward slash aerospace forward slash hyperspectral all those are links that you don't have to remember if you just go to possibility.teledyneimaging.com You've been listening to Technical News Reading, presented by Hakeem Ali Bokas Alexander on Wisdom Social Audio Inc., presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus has come to us from possibility.teledyneimaging.com and is simply titled Space Archaeology. It is an archive by Gerilyn Miller, Miller from March 21st, 2016. Find out more for yourself by visiting teledyneimaging.com. Space Archaeology. Space Science Imaging. Telescopes and Observatories. Space Science Imaging. Telescopes and Observatories. You're listening to Technical News Reading, presented by Hakeem Ali Bokas Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us from Teledyne Imaging at teledyneimaging.com and is titled Space Science Imaging, Telescopes and Observatories. It's under the category of Space Astronomy and Space Science. Aerospace and Defense. Space science is the core to developing our understanding of the origins and the future of the universe, together with the effects of solar activity on the Earth, including, for example, the effects of solar flares that have the effects solar flares have on our communication systems. A vital component to this science is the ability to capture detailed images across the visible UV and NIR spectrum and spectroscopic data. During 30 years involvement with the highest profile space science project, the detailed scientific information and images obtained with Teledyne's E2Vs, CCD, and CMOS sensors are helping us understand more about the universe. Missions include the upgrade of the Hubble Space Telescope, which uses Teledyne E2V imaging sensors to look further into the universe than ever before, and with the detection of new extrasolar planets with NASA's Kepler mission, Teledyne's, yes, missions, let's repeat, missions include the upgrade of the Hubble Space Telescope, which uses Teledyne E2B imaging sensors to look further into the universe than ever before, and the detection of new extrasolar planets with NASA's Kepler mission. In addition, 
Teledyne E2V sensors on board spectroscopic instruments in the Mars Reconnaissance Rover have detected key elements necessary to support life on Mars. Also, over the coming five years, ESA's Gaia mission will map over one billion objects in the Milky Way using 106 Teledyne E2V imaging sensors to equip its focal plane, the largest ever to be flown in space. Ground astronomy. By combining Teledyne E2V, Teledyne imaging sensors, and Teledyne DALSA, Teledyne Imaging can demonstrate a proud history as the leading supplier of sensors for space science, ground-based astronomy, and Earth observation applications with an impressive record of successful deliveries to a wide range of customers over 40 years. Most of Teledyne Imaging ground-based astronomy sensors are capable of qualification for space use. Teledyne imaging devices can be supplied partially or fully customized to fit the application and achieve the best possible system performance, sensor design, manufacture, assembly, and test are carried out in-house. You know, I just, sometimes I think it's me fucking this shit up, but they're just not, sometimes the shit's just not written. What the hell? Sensor design, manufacture, Assembly and test are carried out in-house. Sensors are back-illuminated for highest sensitivity, designed with very low noise, and available in multiple formats and package types. Teledyne Imaging has capabilities and vast experience in designing and delivering integrated camera systems, mosaics, and focal planes. Teledyne Imaging manufactures sensors for mosaic imaging cameras, spectroscopy, auto-guiding, acquisition, and adaptive optics. Our charge-coupled detectors, CCDs, have extensive heritage and a wide variety of formats and customized features. Our CMOS image sensors, CIS, offer similar performance to CCDs, but can offer higher frame rates and integrated digital functions, including digital data output. Our cooled MGCDTE focal plane arrays with CMOS readout ICs reveal the sky's secrets in the infrared. Teledyne Imaging offers a wide range of astronomy sensors. The table below highlights popular astronomy sensors. For more information about our ground astronomy products, missions, and heritage, contact us. Space, space telescopes and space observatories. Teledyne imaging CCDs and infrared MCT FPAs are found in almost every space-borne telescope for outer space astronomy missions. The instruments that use our imaging technology played a key role in capturing data and images that have found billions of hidden planets and revealed and revealed according to NASA's Kepler Space Telescope mission that there is more planets than stars. I'm reading this verbatim. A vital component to this science is the ability to capture detailed images and spectroscopic data across the X-ray, visible, UV, NIR, and infrared spectrum. During 30 years' involvement with the highest-profile space science projects, 
The detailed scientific information and images obtained with Teledyne Imaging's CCDs and CMOS sensors and IRFPAs are helping us understand more about the universe. Key enabling device characteristics that unlock the performance needed for these missions include low noise, very low dark current, deep depleted MCT, large pixel sizes, backside illumination, and back-thinned detector substrates. Key advantages from Teledyne Imaging. Whilst CMOS imaging sensors, CIS capabilities, are expanding for spaceborne applications, there are a range of technologies and techniques that are applicable to support the space science missions of the future, which includes custom sensor design in any wavelength. Teledyne Imaging is able to provide the highest performance, optimized and custom packaged solutions and assemblies. Point. Space proven format CCD arrays. Point. Highest performance large format mercury cadmium telluride MCT or mercury cadmium telluride FPAs. Point. Custom and standard CMOS image sensors, CIS. Flight point, flight proven star trackers, point, space qualified, point, radiation tolerant, point, in-house molecular beam epitaxy, MBE grown MCT, point, state of the art CCD fabrication facility, point, in-house back thinning process. Heritage, space astronomy, 19 flown missions, nine planned missions, 2200 plus years searching. The hell was that that just popped up on my screen? All right, I'm not, I'm not going to look at that right now. Previous missions include SVOMBT, point, uh, I don't know what all this stuff is. Change 5, J Task. Guider, New Horizons, Kiops, isn't that the name of a Egyptian pharaoh? Solar Dynamics Observatory, ExoMars Raman, BLT, LSST, Plato, SMILE, these are acronyms by the way, ARCA, JPAS, SIM, Rosetta Osiris, SVOMVT, Hubble Visible CCD IRMCT FPA, Gaia Visible CCD, Kepler Visible CCD, Space Astronomy and Space Science Products. All right, so now we have a list of these products. This is very cool. CCD 25082, resolution 4096 by 4004, pixel size 10 micrometers, back illumination and extremely low noise amplifier. CCD 47-20, resolution 1024 by 1024, pixel size 13 micrometers, back illumination technology and extremely low noise amplifiers. CCD 55-30, resolution 1252 by 1152, pixel size 22.5 micrometers, full frame imaging device with two image area sections that can be clocked separately. CCD 201-20, Resolution 1024 by 1024, pixel size 13 micrometers. Extreme performance in high frame rate ultra low light applications. CCD 351, 
Resolution 1024 by 1024, pixel size 10 micrometers. Extreme performance in high frame rate ultra low light applications. Applications. CCD 42-40. Resolution 2048 by 2048, pixel size 13.5 micrometers. Well suited to the most demanding applications requiring a high dynamic range. CCD 270-0F4. Resolution 4510 by 2255, pixel size 18 micrometers. CCD 270-00F5, resolution 4510 by 4510, pixel size 18 micrometers. CCD 262-50, resolution 512 by 1024, pixel size 50 micrometers. Capella. Resolution size 2048 by 2048, pixel size 10 micrometers. Highly flexible CMOS image sensor platform designed for a large range of space applications. Orbis, Re resolution 16,000 by four, pixel size five micrometers. Very high resolution CMOS time delay integration, TDI image sensors with CCD on CMOS architecture designed for space satellite earth observation. EO applications. Custom CMOS sensors, resolution 244 by 488, pixel size 70 micrometers. Space qualified CMOS image sensors with unparalleled performance in terms of sensitivity, radiation tolerance, and low power consumption. Hawaii 4RG, resolution 4096 by 4096, pixel size 15 micrometers. HGCDTE, that's Mercury Cadmium Telluride FPA with state-of-the-art readout integrated circuit for visible and infrared instrumentation in ground-based and space telescope applications. Hawaii-2RG, resolution 2048 by 2048, pixel size 18 micrometers. Again, Mercury Cadmium Telluride FPA with state-of-the-art readout integrated circuit for visible and infrared instrumentation in ground-based and space telescope applications. Oh, look at this. You might also like interactive online space showcase, online sensors or sensors overview, new space, Earth observation imaging and living planet sciences, more planets than stars, Kepler's legacy, a closer look, very far away, and looking up. Osiris Rex update, oh, that's pretty cool. Easter Island, statues reveal their secrets. Osiris Rex asteroid acquisition. Space archeology, span wait, space archeology, span there's a pyramid they're showing here. This reminds me of archeoastronomy. I wonder if it's very similar. I'm gonna have to take a look. Uh, and a view from above, imaging from the ISS. And that's it. Hmm. Let's see. What am I? Okay. This, is, this uh, site is a little bit clunky. Oh, there we go. There's that back arrow. All right. So what I want to look. Do I want to look at Easter Island statues reveal their secrets or space archaeology? Hmm. We'll see in just a few moments. I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm moved to the, uh, the thing that looks like a pyramid underground with the pyramids above it. That's really weird. All right, in a cool way. See what happens. 
All right, you've been listening to Technical News Reading, presented by Hakeem Alibokas Alexander on Wisdom Social Audio, Inc., presented for World Reading Club in association with Equilibrium. This edition's reading focus has come to us from TeledyneImaging.com and is titled Space Science Imaging, Telescopes and Observatories. Under the categories of Aerospace and Defense, Applications, Space Astronomy, and Space Science. I don't know when this was published. There's no date, so it might be just a fixed page, landing page on the site. And, uh, yeah, that's it. Coming up next, who knows? Wow, they have, look at all these companies. They have Teledyne, Caris, Teledyne, Dalsa, Teledyne, E2V, Teledyne Imaging Sensors, Teledyne Judson, Teledyne Luminara, Luminara, Teledyne Optech, Teledyne Photometrics, Teledyne Princeton Instruments, Teledyne Scientific Company. Our segments, Industrial slash Machine Vision, Healthcare and Life Sciences, Aerospace and Defense, Geospatial Imaging, Scientific and Semiconductors. Yeah. Penn State. Penn State gets this contract. What is going on over here? All right. No, we're not moving forward until this. Uh, anyway, Penn State wins contracts worth $1.8 billion to develop enabling technologies in unmanned undersea vehicles. Penn State, okay, uh, wins contracts worth $1.8 billion to develop enabling technologies in unmanned undersea vehicles. You're listening to Technical News Reading, presented by Hakeem Alibokas Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us from Military and Aerospace Electronics, published under the categories of Unmanned on January 13th. 2023 by John Keller and is titled Penn State wins contracts worth 1.8 billion to develop enabling technologies in unmanned undersea vehicles. Research will involve guidance, navigation and control, thermal propulsion, fluid machinery and materials technology and manufacturing. Washington. U.S. Navy undersea warfare experts have awarded contracts collectively worth more than $1.8 billion to Penn State University to investigate guidance, navigation, propulsion, and materials for future unmanned underwater vehicles, UUVs, for a variety of reconnaissance and attack missions. Officials of the Naval Sea Systems Command in Washington announced a $735 million order 
in December to the Applied Research Laboratory at the Pennsylvania State Research at the Pennsylvania State University. Once again, officials of the Naval Sea Systems Command in Washington announced a 735 million order in December to the Applied Research Laboratory at the Pennsylvania State University in University Park, Pennsylvania for UUV work throughout the U.S. Department of Defense. That's ARLPSU throughout the DOD. That order for unmanned undersea enabling technologies is on top of a 1.1 billion 10-year contract announced in February 2018 for the same kinds of work, which involves guidance, navigation, and control of undersea systems, advanced thermal propulsion concepts and systems for undersea vehicles, advanced propulsors and other fluid machinery for marine systems, materials technology and manufacturing technology for naval systems and components, atmosphere and defense communication systems research and mission and public service related research, technology developments, test evaluation and systems analysis. This work is to help provide a quick response to rapidly evolving DOD and other government agency requirements. Work on these contracts and order awards will be in University Park, Pennsylvania and should be finished by February 2028. For more information, contact the Penn State Applied Research Lab online at www.esm.psu.edu forward slash research forward slash centers dash and dash institutes forward slash applied dash research dash lab dot ASPX or Naval Sea Systems Command at www.navsea.navy.mil. That's navsea.navy.mil. Related, wanted, enabling technologies for propulsion aboard submarines and unmanned or underwater vehicles. You've been listening to Technical News Reading. Presented by Hakeem Ali Bokis Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc. Presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus has come to us from Military and Aerospace Electronics on MilitaryAerospace.com. You can read this article and others like it for yourself by visiting MilitaryAerospace.com. That's M-I-L-I-T-A-R-Y. A-E-R-O-S-P-A-C-E dot C-O-M, militaryaerospace.com. Penn State wins contracts worth $1.8 billion to develop enabling technologies in unmanned undersea vehicles. And coming up next, probably something else kind of cool from militaryaerospace.com. Let's see what we have here. Wide air area electro-optical surveillance for perimeter security and border control, or connected fighters, helicopter, and drones accomplish Airbus-led demo mission, Aurora flight sciences to demonstrate new electric aircraft that eliminate traditional, eliminate traditional what? Eliminate traditional control surfaces, 
right. Oh, Navy orders 38 ECAS test and measurement systems to troubleshoot and repair avionics or naval aircraft. Marine Corps chooses Manit radios from Silvus for battlefield communications. That seems kind of cool. That was December 22nd, 2022. And wanted unmanned X-plane to operate from small surface warships for communications, intel, and surveillance. They're asking a lot here. Archer's aviation maker EVTOL makes transition from vertical to cruise flight. Army researchers survey industry for companies to develop unmanned aerial vehicle weapons for small units. Beyond visual line of sight, BVLOS autonomous police drones deployed for the first time in Israel. And they're really taking this. Wow. 4K cameras for machine vision. Northrop Grumman to develop. Mm -hmm. U.S. proposes rules for to advance flying taxi operations. Oh, boy. I don't know. This is very uh, exciting and confusing. Oh, we shall see what comes up next. Let me just go to the home page. LCI selects Elroy Air's Chaparral Autonomous VTOL Cargo Aircraft. LCI selects Elroy's Air's Elroy Air's Chaparral Autonomous VTOL Cargo Aircraft. You're listening to Technical News Reading, presented by Hakim Alibokis Alexander on Wisdom Social Audio Inc. Presented for World Reading Club in association with Equilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us from Military and Aerospace Electronics, militaryaerospace.com, and is titled LCI Selects Elroy Air's Chaparro Autonomous VTOL Cargo Aircraft. It was published on January 13, 2023. That was yesterday, as of today's reading. The Chaparro is designed for aerial transport of up to 500 pounds of goods over a 300 nautical mile range. Dublin. LCI, an aviation company and a subsidiary of Libra Group, based in Dublin, needed advanced autonomous cargo aircraft systems. They found their solution. Huh? Come on, English writing. They found their solution from has signed an agreement. What? Let me see if I can fix this. They found their solution and have signed an agreement with Elroy Air in San Francisco. LCI linked a deal to acquire up to 40 of the Elroy's Chaparro vertical takeoff and landing VTOL aircraft. That's VTOL, vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. Under the terms of the agreement, LCI will initially acquire 20 aircraft with an option for a total of up to 40 units. The 
VTOL, vertical takeoff and landing aircraft, are currently under development at Elroy's Air Facility in South San Francisco, California. The Chaparral, or Chaparral, is an end-to-end -end autonomous VTOL cargo delivery system. This is really bothering me. I, I know that I've seen that word before, but it's, isn't it some kind of fucking animal? <laughs> Things named after. Um, where the hell? Where's my... Come on. Let's get with it here. Uh, iPhone. Let's go. We gotta search Google. Okay. This is fully annoying. What is it? Chaparro. Right? It's gotta be an animal. Let me see. I want to see how to correctly pronounce it. It's really bothering me. C H A P A R R A. Oh, there we go. Or is it a. the hell? Allow. Oh, it's a boat? Come on. Shrubland plant. Okay, community and geographical feature found primarily okay, in the U.S. Okay, Chaparro is a shrubland plant community and geographical feature found primarily in the U.S. state of California, in southern Oregon and in the northern portion of the Baja California Peninsula in Mexico. Okay, good. So let's. And so, ten reasons why Chaparro is so awesome. Okay, so how do we how do we pronounce this? Chaparral pronunciation. Okay. Mm. All right, let's hear it. Chaparral. Okay, Chaparral. We're just going to go with that one. Chaparral. All right. I think I can continue now. Uh, there we go. Chaparral. Okay. Let's continue with uh, the reading here. Under, yes. Under the terms of agreement, LCI will initially acquire... Oh, no, let's go higher than that. Let's just start right... Yeah. From the beginning. Dublin. LCI, an, an aviation company and subsidiary of the Libra Group, based in Dublin, needed advanced autonomous cargo aircraft systems. They found their solution from and have signed an agreement with Elroy Air in San Francisco. LCI linked a deal to acquire up to 40 of the Elroy Chaparral vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. Under the terms of the agreement, LCI will initially acquire 20 aircraft with an option for a total of up to 40 units. The vertical takeoff and landing aircraft, VTOL, are currently under development at Elroy's Air Facility in South San Francisco, California. The Chaparral is an end-to-end -end autonomous VTOL cargo delivery system. It's designed for aerial transport of up to 500 pounds of goods over a 300 nautical mile range. This is enabled initially by a turbine-based hybrid electric powertrain with distributed electrical propulsion and specifically designed aerodynamic modular cargo pods. The Chaparral is a transitioning lift and cruise VTOL aircraft 
with a full carbon composite airframe and a turbine-based hybrid electric powertrain for long-range mission capabilities. It was also designed to fit in a 40-foot shipping container or C-130 cargo aircraft, enabling it to be quickly shipped and deployed worldwide. The Chaparral system features eight vertical lift fans, four distributed electrical or four distributed electric propulsors for forward flight, a high wing airframe configuration, as well as improved ground autonomy and cargo handling systems. Elroy Air has developed lightweight aerodynamic modular cargo pods that can be preloaded by ground personnel and picked up by the aircraft before takeoff. At the delivery location, the cargo pod is lowered to the ground and released after the system has landed. The chaparral system can retrieve another pre-packed pod and transport the pod to its next destination, creating a bi-directional conveyor belt through the sky. The new VTOL aircraft will complement LCI's existing fleet of modern helicopters and fixed-wing aircraft. In addition, LCI and its parent company, Libra Group, whose subsidiaries own and operate assets in approximately 60 countries. But what does that have to, in addition, what? You just named They're just they're they're cranking these articles out faster than I can read them. Right, I, I get it. All right, you've been listening to technical news reading, presented by Hakeem Ali Bokas Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus has come to us from Military and Aerospace Electronics on militaryaerospace.com, and is titled. LCI selects Elroy Air's Chaparral Autonomous VTOL cargo aircraft. It was published on January 13, 2023, under the category of Unmanned. You can read this and more for yourself by going to militaryaerospace.com. That's M-I-L-I-T-A-R-Y-A-E-R-O-S-P-A-C-E dot C-O-M. That's militaryaerospace.com. LCI selects Elroy Air's Chaparral Autonomous VTOL Cargo Aircraft. AI, robotic exoskeletons gain self-control. With AI, robotic exoskeletons gain self-control. You're listening to Technical News Reading, presented by Hakeem Alibokas Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us from techbriefs.com and is titled, With AI, Robotic Exoskeletons Gain Self-Control. It was published on March 24th, 2021, under the categories of ARAI, Motion Control, Robotics, Automation and Control, Imaging, Sensors and Data Acquisition, and Wearables. Our first featured image 
shows the wearer having a brace on their torso and the, the caption reads, the University of Waterloo team trained their robotic exoskeleton by gathering information about surroundings using the wearable camera shown here. The image credit is to the University of Waterloo. Bill Hurley, digital editorial manager. Robotics researchers are developing exoskeleton legs that make their steps on their own using sophisticated artificial intelligence, AI technology. The self-controlled legs may someday support the movements of the elderly and those with physical disabilities. The system, built and tested by researchers at the University of Waterloo, combines computer vision and deep learning AI to mimic a human-like gait. Learning from a collection of sample strolls around an environment, the system adjusts its movements based on the surroundings it senses. We're giving robotic exoskeletons vision so they can control themselves, said Brokoslaw Lakowski, a PhD candidate in systems design engineering who leads a University of Waterloo research project called ExoNet. The ExoNet system, supported by artificial intelligence, pulls from training data gathered by the team. With wearable cameras strapped to their chest, as shown in the image, Lakowski and his fellow researchers took videos of indoor and outdoor environments. AI computer software then processed the video feed to accurately recognize stairs, doors, and other features within the surroundings. Also embedded in thistechbriefs.com, there is a video for YouTube that you can click on, walking with a robotic exoskeleton. Tech Briefs continues. The achievement was detailed in the journal Frontiers in Robotics and AI, relating to this autonomous exoskeleton project. You can explore a research data set relating to this autonomous exoskeleton project. The latest in a series of papers on the related projects, Simulation of Stand-to-Sit Biomechanics for Robot Exoskeletons and Prosthesis with Energy Regeneration, appears in the journal IEEE Transactions on Medical Robots and Bionics. Motor-operated exoskeleton legs have been designed before, but the wearer has almost always required a joystick or smartphone application to control their movements. More robots on tech briefs. A robot being developed at Tel Aviv University hears electrical signals thanks to a natural sensor, the ear of a dead locust. A new robot needs no electronics to move, just a constant source of pressurized air. Tech briefs continues. That can be inconvenient and cognitively demanding, said Lakowski. Every time you want to perform a new locomotor activity, you have to stop, take out your smartphone, and select the desired mode. The approach from the University of Waterloo offers a more automated control thanks to the AI and computer vision capabilities. The next phase of the ExoNet research project will involve sending instructions to motors so that robotic exoskeletons can climb stairs avoid obstacles, or take other appropriate actions based on analysis of the user's current movement and the upcoming terrain. Additionally, 
The researchers are also working to improve the energy efficiency of motors for robotic exoskeletons by using human motion to self-charge the batteries. Our control approach wouldn't necessarily require human thought, said Lukowski, who is supervised by engineering professor John McPhee, the Canada Research Chair in Biomechatronic System Dynamics and his Motion Research Group Lab. Similar to autonomous cars that drive themselves, we're designing autonomous exoskeletons that walk for themselves. Our second featured image shows a wearer and the device and the caption reads, Brokoslaw Lakowski tests out the exoskeleton. Once again, the image credit is University of Waterloo. In a Q&A with tech, brief, tech briefs below, Brokoslaw Lakowski explains more about the ExoNet technology and why an exoskeleton that has features similar to a self-driving car must also include vehicle-like safety measures. Tech briefs. How do you ensure safety? Can the user take control if the exoskeleton is mistakenly doing something dangerous? The analogy is ADAS versus completely autonomous vehicles. How would the user control speed and stopping and going? How would such controls interface with the user? Focus Lolikowski. Safety is the utmost importance. These robotic devices are designed to assist elderly and those with physical disabilities, e.g. stroke, spinal cord injury, cerebral palsy, osteoarthritis, etc. We can't afford the exoskeleton to make the wrong decisions and potentially cause falls or injuries. Consequently, we're focusing entirely on improving the classification accuracy and control by developing an environment recognition system to allow the exoskeleton to autonomously sense and react in real time to the walking environment. We're optimizing the system performance using computers and wearable prototypes with healthy controls before clinical testing. However, the exoskeleton user will always have the ability to take over manual control, e.g. stopping and steering. Similar to autonomous cars that drive themselves, we're designing autonomous exoskeletons that walk for themselves. Brokoslaw Bukowski. Tech briefs. Can you take me through an application that you envision for this kind of exoskeleton? Where will this be most valuable? Brokoslaw Bukowski. These robotic devices are designed to assist elderly and those with physical disabilities with locomotor activities. An example application of our environment adaptive automated control system is switching between different locomotor activities. In commercially available exoskeletons, when transitioning for level ground walking to climbing stairs, for example, the user approaches the staircase, stops, and manually communicates to the exoskeleton the intended activity using a mobile interface, push buttons, or other hand controls, depending on the device. In contrast, with an autonomous control system, the user approaches an inclined staircase. Onboard sensors like inertial measurement units, IMUs, are continuously sensing and classifying the user's current movements, and the wearable camera system is sensing and classifying the upcoming terrain. 
the fusion of these different sensor technologies and pattern recognition algorithms is used to predict the user's locomotor intent and control the exoskeleton. Tech briefs. How is the exoskeleton trained to operate without human thought? Brokowski, Brokoslaw Lakowski. We use computer vision and deep learning for environment classification. Using millions of real-world images, our convolutional neural networks are automatically and efficiently trained to predict the different walking environments shown in the images. This information about the walking environment is sub subsequently used to control the robotic exoskeleton in terms of optimal path planning, obstacle avoidance, and switching between different locomotor activities, e.g. level ground walking to climbing stairs. Tech briefs. What's next for this exoskeleton? What are you working on now? Drokoslaw Lakowski. From a safety critical perspective, these AI-powered exoskeleton control systems need to perform accurately and in real time. Therefore, we're focusing on improving the environment classification accuracy while using neural network architectures with minimal computational and memory storage requirements to promote onboard real-time inference. What do you think? Share your questions and comments. We have one comment down here on the, <clears throat> the article, which again was published uh, back in 2021. Somebody who goes by the, wow, two years ago, of course, who goes by the, um, the handle Bob's Bits. It should be interesting. This technology is not going to be useful to the current group of over 65s who may suffer from mobility issues, in my opinion particularly not at the state of this technology. While many have hearing issues, people around them don't, and the noise alone will likely be a deal breaker within What the fuck is this person talking about? Oh God. The maximum speed of activation needs to be at least two times of normal locomotion, not because it's likely to be useful moving fast, but because this is the minimum speed where the device can correct for environmental variables such as wet or slippery surfaces, uneven or moving surfaces, etc., and because this is the minimum speed for fluid motion in normal situations. The major real user issue is going to be trust. Someone who has no experience with this sort of tech... Okay, you know what? I don't want to read that anymore. I just feel it has a dumbass feel to it. So I'm just not reading it anymore. All right. So you've been listening to Technical News Reading, presented by Hakeem Alibokas Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., presented for World Reading Club in association with Equilibrium. This edition's reading focus has come to us from techbriefs.com and is titled, With AI, Robotic Exoskeletons Gain Self-Control. It was published on March 24th, 2021 under the categories of AR, AI, motion control, robotics automation and control, imaging, sensor slash data acquisition, and wearables. You can read this and others like it for yourself by visiting techbriefs.com. That's T-E-C-H-B-R-I-E-F-S dot C-O-M. That's techbriefs.com. With AI, robotic exoskeletons gain self control. Yes, and soon 
grumpy monkey. Grumpy monkey. You're listening to World Reading Club, presented by Hakim Alevokes Alexander on Wisdom. Social Audio Inc. Presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us from the number one New York Times bestseller, Grumpy Monkey, by Suzanne Lang. Illustrated by Max Lang. You won't get to see those pictures. On the front flap it says, Jim, Pansy, is in a terrible mood for no good reason. His friends just can't understand it. How can he be in such a bad mood when it's such a beautiful day? They encourage him to stop hunching, to smile, and to do things that make them happy, make them happy. But Jim can't take all the advice and has a bit of a meltdown. Could it be that he just needs a day to feel grumpy? Grumpy Monkey. One wonderful day, Jim Panzi woke to discover that nothing was right. The sun was too bright, the sky was too blue, and the bananas were too sweet. Jim was confused. What's going on? Maybe you're grumpy, suggested Norman from next door. I'm not grumpy, Jim insisted. On his walk, he met Marabou. Jim's grumpy, Norman told Marabou. Why are you grumpy, Jim? asked Marabou. It's such a wonderful day. Grumpy? Me? I'm not grumpy, said Jim. But look how you're standing, Marabou said. It's true, said Norman. You're all hunched. So Jim loosened up. Then he ran into Lemur. Jim's grumpy, Norman told Lemur. Why are you grumpy, Jim? asked Lemur. It's such a wonderful day. Grumpy? Me? I'm not grumpy, said Jim. Your eyebrows look grumpy, said Lemur. It's true, said Norman. They're all bunched up. So Jim raised his brow. Then he tripped over Snake. Oh no, said Norman. That's the last thing you need when you're feeling grumpy. Grumpy? Me? I'm not grumpy, said Jim. Then why that frown, said Snake. I think it's because he tripped over you, Norman whispered to Snake. So Jim put on a smile. Finally, Jim looked happy, but he didn't feel happy inside. Everyone wanted Jim to enjoy this wonderful day. You should sing with us, 
said the birds. Jim didn't feel like singing. You should swing with us, said the monkeys. Jim didn't feel like swinging. You should roll with us, said the zebras. Jim didn't feel like rolling. You should stroll with us, said the peacocks. Jim didn't feel like strolling. You should lie in the grass. You should stomp your feet. You should take a bath and make a splash. You hug someone. <laughs> you should laugh. You should take a nap. Meat or some honey. You should jump up and down. You should sit in the sun. You should dance. But Jim didn't feel like doing any of that. Why are you grumpy, Jim? asked the others. It's such a wonderful day. I'm not grumpy, shouted Jim as he beat his chest. And he stormed off. Jim felt sorry. A little sorry for shouting at everyone, but mostly sorry for himself. I guess I am grumpy. Jim sighed, and just as he was starting to feel really sad, he came upon Norman. Norman was slumped. His eyebrows were bunched up, and he was frowning. What's the matter? Are you grumpy? asked Jim. No, I danced with porcupine, said Norman. Are you okay? asked Jim. It hurts, but I'll probably feel better soon enough, said Norman. Are you still grumpy? Yes, said Jim, but I'll probably feel better soon enough too. For now, I need to be grumpy. It's a wonderful day to be grumpy. It's a wonderful day to be grumpy, said Norman. Jim agreed, and he already felt a little bit better. Suzanne Lang is the author of Families, 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 and Hooray for Kids. When she's not working on books, she writes and produces children's television. Max Lang is an animation director, storyboard artist, character designer, and illustrator. He previously illustrated Families, 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 and Hooray for Kids. Max's animated films have earned him numerous awards and other honors, including an International Emmy, a BAFTA, and two Oscar nominations. You've been listening to World Reading Club, presented by Hakeem Alibokis Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus has come to us from the number one New York Times bestseller, Grumpy Monkey, by Suzanne Lang, illustrated by Max Lang. You can find it online at barnesandnobles.com or where I did in the store at your local Barnes & Noble. AI and wearable cameras 
combined and self-walking robotic exoskeletons. AI and wearable cameras combined in self-walking robotic exoskeletons. You're listening to Technical News Reading, presented by Hakim Alibokas Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., presented for World Reading Club in with Unique Equilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us from techbriefs.com and is titled AI and Wearable Cameras Combined in Self-Walking Robot Exoskeletons. It was published on September 1st, 2021 under the categories of Robotics, Automation and Control, ARAI, Motion Control, Wearables, Imaging and Data Acquisition. AI and wearable cameras combine in self-walking robotic exoskeletons. Exoskeleton legs are capable of thinking and making control designs on their own using artificial intelligence technology. In our first featured image, we have a person wearing an exoskeleton with a brace around their torso and the exoskeleton legs with a caption that reads, the self-walking robotic exoskeleton legs can think and make control decisions on their own using artificial intelligence. University of Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. Researchers are developing exoskeleton legs capable of thinking and making control decisions on their own using sophisticated artificial intelligence AI technology. The ExoNet system combines computer vision and deep learning AI to mimic how able-bodied people walk by seeing their surroundings and adjusting their movements. Exoskeleton legs operated by motors already exist but they must be manually controlled by users via smartphone applications or joysticks. Each time the user wants to perform a new locomotor activity, they have to stop, take out their smartphone, and select the desired mode. To address that limitation, the researchers fitted exoskeleton users with wearable cameras and are now optimizing AI computer software to process the video feed to accurately recognize stairs, doors, and other features of the surrounding environment. You can also read a Q&A with the researcher. It's in a Q&A with Tech Briefs. Engineer uh, Brokoslaw Lakowski explains how the exoskeleton that has features similar to a self-driving car. Does that go to a, a link out? Let me finish reading this first. It's very short and see where it goes. Tech Briefs continues. The next phase of the project will involve sending in structures to motors 
so that robotic exoskeletons can climb stairs, avoid obstacles, or take other appropriate actions based on analysis of the user's current movement and the upcoming terrain. The control approach would not necessarily require human thought. Similar to autonomous cars that drive themselves, the autonomous exoskeletons would walk by themselves. The researchers are also working to improve the energy efficiency of motors for robotic exoskeletons by using human motion to self-charge the batteries. For more information, contact Chris Wilson-Smith at chris.ws at, at u-w-a-t-e-r-l-o-o dot c-a. Call 519-888-4451. Again, contact Chris Wilson-Smith at chris.ws at uwaterloo.ca. 519-888-4451. Let me take a look here at this. The interview here is how the exoskeletons work here. Yeah, it looks like... Uh, it links out to that article. So I'm going to go and look at that. Hmm. But you know what? I think I'll do it in a separate recording because it has a completely different title. So that's what will be coming up next. Hmm. Oh boy, look at this dork. He changed his name. All right. You've been listening to Technical News Reading, presented by Hakeem Alibokas Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc. Presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus has come to us from techbriefs.com and is titled AI and Wearable Cameras Combined in self-walking robotic exoskeletons. It was published on September 1st, 2021 under the categories of robotics, automation and control, AR, AI, motion control, wearables, imaging, and data acquisition. You can read this article and others like it for yourself by visiting techbriefs.com. That's T-E-C-H-B-R-I-E-F-S dot C-O techbriefs.com. AI and wearable cameras combined in self-walking robotic exoskeletons. Coming up next, I will be reading in just a few moments, maybe after I get a snack, the interview. This one was from March 24th, 2021, titled, With AI, Robotic Exoskeletons Gain Self-Control. AI that mimics the human eye. AI that mimics the human eye. You're listening to Technical News Reading presented by Hakeem Alibokas Alexander on Wisdom Social Audio Inc. Presented for World Reading Club in association with 
unique equilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us from techbriefs.com and is titled AI That Mimics the Human Eye. It was published on December 1st, 2022 under the categories of AR, AI, Robotics, Automation and Control, Imaging, Materials, Nanotechnology, Photonics slash Optics, and Software. AI that mimics the human eye. The device outperforms the eye in the number of wavelengths it can see and has applications in self-driving vehicles and robotics. University of Central Florida, Gainesville, Florida. Our featured image looks like there's a little chip or a device that's being held by some tweezers that's being shown very up close. And the caption reads, the technology is very small with hundreds of the devices fitting on a one inch wide chip. Image, University of Central Florida. Researchers at University of Central Florida have developed an artificial intelligence device that mimics the retina of the eye. The development could lead to advanced AI that can instantly recognize what it sees, like automatic descriptions of pictures taken by a camera or phone. The device also outperforms the eye in a number of wavelengths it can see, from ultraviolet to visible light and onto the infrared spectrum. Its uniqueness also comes from its ability to integrate three different operations into one. Current intelligent imaging technology, like what's used in self-driving vehicles, requires separate sensing, memorization, and processing of data. By combining the three steps, the UCF-designed device is many times faster than current technology, according to the researchers. The technology is also very small with hundreds of devices fitting on a one-inch wide chip. It will change the way artificial intelligence is realized today, said principal investigator Tanya Roy, an assistant professor in UCF's Department of Material Science and Engineering and Nanoscience Technology Center. Today, everything is discrete components and running on conventional hardware. And here, we have the capacity to do in-sensor computing using a single device on one small platform. The technology expands upon previous work by the research team that created brain-like devices that can enable AI to work in remote regions and space. We had devices which behaved like the synapses of the human brain, but still we were not feeding them the image directly, said Roy. Now, by adding image-sensing ability to them, we have synapse-like devices that act like smart pixels in a camera by sensing, processing, and recognizing images simultaneously. For self-driving vehicles, the versatility of the device will allow for safer driving in a range of conditions, including at night. According to the team, 
there is no reported device like this which can operate simultaneously in ultraviolet range and visible wavelength as well as infrared wavelength. Besides self-driving vehicles, the technology has applications in robotics. Key to the technology is the engineering of nanoscale surfaces made of molybdenum disulfide and platinum ditelluride to allow for multiple wavelength sensing and memory. The researchers said the technology could become available for use in the next five to ten years. For more information, contact Heather Smith Lovett at H-E-A-T-H-E-R dot L-O-V-E-T-T at U-C-F dot E-D-U or call 407-823-3428. Again, that's Heather Smith Lovett at Heather dot Lovett at U-C-F dot E-D-U. 407-823-3428. You've been listening to Technical News Reading. Presented by Hakim Alibokas Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc. Presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus has come to us from techbriefs.com. And it's titled, AI That Mimics the Human Eye. It was published under the categories of AR, AI, Robotics, Automation and Control, Imaging, Materials, Nanotechnology, Photonics and Optics, and Software on December 1st, 2022. You can read this article and more like it on techbriefs.com. That's T-E-C-H-B-R-I-E-F-S dot C-O-M. Techbriefs.com. AI that mimics the human eye. Compact EMS-based NIR spectroscopy for mobile applications. Compact MEMS-based NIR spectroscopy for mobile applications. You're listening to Technical News Reading, presented by Hakeem Alibokas Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio, Inc., presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us from techbriefs.com and is titled Compact MEMS-Based NIR Spectroscopy for Mobile Applications. It was published on January 1st, 2023 under the categories of Test and Measurement, Photonics, Optics, Mechanical and Fluid Systems, Materials and Imaging, Sensors, Data Acquisition, Electronics, and Computers. Start off with a featured image of the small device here, the NIR device, next to a mobile device. And it simply is labeled with a caption, Figure 1, a spectrometer for a mobile smartphone. Mobile NIR, right, that's near infrared, mobile NIR spectroscopy has gathered a lot of interest in recent years. 
on-site and real-time measurements of the chemical composition of solid or fluid samples could be applied to identification, authentication, or estimation of quality parameters and similar relevant measurement tasks. This measurement technique is particularly useful for, but not limited to, samples containing organic compounds. In order to achieve these aims, NIR absorption spectroscopy as a method for molecular spectroscopy has been established in the early 20th century. The interaction of electromagnetic radiation with matter very often allows for the determination of the chemical composition within certain limits. Absorption of radiation at the sample or absorption of radiation in the sample at specific wavelength or spectral bands is the main mechanism of interaction in NIR spectroscopy. The amount of light, the amount of light absorbed is governed by the famous Lambert-Beer law. I over IO equals E minus NFL. If the parameters of the measurement are known, optical path length, L, and transition parameter, F, the density, N, of the species correlated to the transition can be calculated directly from knowing incident illumination, I, O, I, zero, and the measurement of the intensity, I, after passing the matter. Knowledge on the specific densities serves the calculation of material properties of the sample. This method can be used for a broad variety of applications, from sorting different materials in recycling processes to the estimation of quality parameters like the ripeness or freshness of fruit. The near-infrared region starts at the border to visible light at 780 nanometers and reaches up to the mid-infrared, which starts at 3,000 nanometers. In this region, the absorption of photons excites overtone and combination band of different materials. These bands show weak absorption strength and broad transitions. Thus, an absorption band has a typical full width at half maximum, FWHM, of about 10 nanometers. The weak absorption allows for high penetration depths in the millimeter to centimeter range and thus insight into the object. Due to the broad and overlapping bands, the evaluation is complex, especially on large organic molecules with a wide variety of functional groups, CC, CH, CX, single, double, and triple bonds. Many applications require complex mathematics called chemometry and reference data acquired from previous measurements on model substances. In turn, quantitative analysis can be enabled. The most common principle is the illumination of the sample with a suitable light source emitting a known white spectrum. After interaction with the material of the sample, either in transmission or in diffuse reflection, the light is captured and analyzed by means of spectroscopic equipment. In earlier times, prism-based spectrographs with photographic emulsion to record a whole spectrum at once were used. With the availability of high-quality gratings, 
and very sensitive single-pixel photon detector detectors, scanning spectrometers of the famous Cerny-Turner or Ebert-Fasti type appeared. Modern detectors with a large number of pixels arranged in a line or array configuration allow for the parallel acquisition of spectra with high resolution. Furthermore, Fourier transform spectrometers, FT spectrometers, formerly prominent in the mid-infrared, entered the near-infrared range as well. In laboratory use, reliable tools serve many different applications of chemical analysis. More applications arise in our day-to-day -day life, which is mostly based on organic matter, the human body, our food and its origins medications and cosmetics, but also our clothing, furniture, and other items are mostly made of carbon-based compounds. The quality in the area of nutrition, health, pharmaceutical, and medical items, but also the analysis of consumer goods and technical aspects, e.g. plastics, fuel, and lubricants, as well as our environment, could be improved by a broad use of spectral analysis. For a long time, Samples have been taken and transferred to the lab where large and ultra-precise equipment is used to perform the measurements under precisely controlled conditions. Chemometric models, based on reference data, are used for the evaluation. For selected applications, this offers an appropriate solution. Others would benefit from real-time and on-site capabilities, for example, on goods with quickly changing conditions as in food analysis, for the determination of freshness. The transfer from well-established laboratory analysis to mobile use is based on the experience and implementation of analytical models through scientific work since the 1950s. Miniaturized NIR spectrometers have been pre presented up to now, which allow for the integration into handheld devices or even mobile phones, that's figure one. First approaches were based on detector arrays and fixed grading. Recently, MEMS scanning grading and MEMS-based FT spectrometer have started to enter applications. Furthermore, filter-based solutions have been realized in gallium, arsenic, or even silicon detectors. Considering that silicon detectors can be used up to 1,050 nanometers only. Besides spectral range, all systems face similar requirements regarding spectral resolution, as well as wavelength stability and reproducibility. Today, also the overall size, production cost, and power consumption become more and more important. Unfortunately, a great breakthrough in broad use has been inhibited to now by the cost of appropriate NIR detectors in gallium arsenic technology, especially if array detectors are required. Here we have another image. Looks like three microchips of different sizes, a small, medium, and a large size next to a matchstick head. All of them are actually just about, the biggest one is just about the size of the matchstick head, and the other two are smaller. It says, its caption reads, figure two. A simple single-axis MEMS scanning mirror. Tech Briefs continues. A new approach to realize complex, 
compact NIR spectrometers is based on the use of a simple single-axis MEMS scanning mirror. That was in figure two. This comes along with some advantages. The production technology can be simplified as no complex three-dimensional grading structure must be etched into the MEMS plate. Also, the stress in the silicon structures induced through the etch process is reduced. Due to the optical path, the deflection required is only half of a scanning grading for the same spectral range. The grading assembled to the system can be changed and adjusted simply. The basic idea of a scanning mirror microspectrometer is well known. Instead of deflecting or rotating the grading itself, a deflectable mirror is applied to illuminate a fixed grading. The optical path is close to the original design of Cerny and Turner. The light enters a spectrometer through an entrance slit. A first mirror acts as a collimator for the incident light and directs the light towards the scanning mirror plate. Reflected by the scanner, the radiation subsequently impinges on the diffraction grating. By rotating the mirror plate, the angle of incidence on the grating is varied. A part of the spectrally dispersed light is back reflected from the grating onto the scanner and directed onto a second mirror. This second mirror focuses the laterally, laterally dispersed light onto an exit slit. The exit slit cuts out a small portion of the spectrum. A single pixel detector is placed behind the slit. By rotating the scanning mirror plate, the spectrum is scanned across the exit, the exit slit. A synchronization of the mirror movement and the detector signal readout enables the recording of a full spectrum. The main characteristic of the original Cerny-Turner approach was the use of two spherical mirrors for collimation and focusing on a symmetrical configuration. Since such scanning spectrometer, monochromatter, has very small field of view given by the area of the exit slit, the dominant optical aberrations are spherical, coma, and astigmatism. The symmetric arrangement of two mirrors is very favorable for the correction of optical aberrations and hence, the significance of the Cerny-Turner approach. The required symmetry can be achieved in several ways. They differ in the orientation of the two mirrors relative to the diffraction grading and are termed W configuration, folded double V, or crossed configuration. The requirements of a particular design are determined by the intended application and can be very different. Among those requirements are the spectral range, the spectral resolution, signal-to-noise ratio, and the overall size of the system. Several different spectrometers based on the Cerny-Turner approach have been developed at IPMS. The folded double V and the crossed Cerny-Turner configuration allow for the most compact optical ray paths and hence for the smallest spectrometer outlines. Therefore, they are well suited for mobile applications. The development process included the optical range and optimization along with the mechanical design as well as the development of electronics to drive the MEMS device and for the detector readout. Special consideration was given to assembly aspects since the resulting spectrometer size is on the order of 10 by 10 by 6 millimeters, millimeters cubed. The small size along with tight tolerances required an adequate assembly strategy. Both stacking and the so-called place and bend assembly have been tested successfully.
In addition to the above-mentioned considerations, the overall cost and availability of optical, mechanical, and electronic parts are of importance. To ensure a realistic chance of high-volume production, state-of-the-art pick-and-place technology to assemble the MEMS and the optical components along with additive manufacturing for some mechanical parts was used. Here we have another featured image, and it has different labels here. We have labeled mirrors, grating, scanner mirror, exit slit, and entrance slit. And there's a little bar at the bottom that measures 10 millimeters across. Its caption is reading, figure three, the optical path inside of a miniaturized spectrometer. The optical path inside an example of such a miniaturized spectrometer developed at IPMS is shown in figure three. Here, the folded double V configurations has been implemented. The double V design offers good performance and sufficient optical throughput. The two mirrors are grouped together on one substrate. In this case, the mirror surfaces are off-axis as spherics for good aberration correction, which is a slight deviation from the use of spherical surfaces in the original Cerny-Turner setup. The spectral range was 950 nanometers to 1900 nanometers, whereas a spectral resolution of 10 nanometers FWHM was achieved. Our next featured image shows this setup in mass, and it's a Fraunhofer system. Its, it's caption is titled, Figure 4. This white powder recognition demonstration setup shows NIR spectros spectroscopy on salt, sugar, and flour. The first application close trial has been conducted based on the idea of a food application. The white powder recognition demonstration setup was successfully presented showing NIR spectroscopy on salt, sugar, and flour. Figure 4. Acknowledgements. Part of this work was funded by the Fraunhofer Society under contract number 600890 MEF, Origami. The authors gratefully acknowledge the work of Hans-George Dahlmann in the field of readout and drive electronics and together with Johann Zeibart on the realization of the demo unit. References. Ibsenphotonics.com or Ibsen-Photonics.com to T. Pugner, J. Knob, H. Gruger, near-infrared grading spectrometer for mobile phone applications in applied spectroscopy Spectroscopy 2016, Volume 70. 3. Neospectra.com. 4. Consumerphysics.com. 5. Patent US 12 or slash 425-582. 6. Patent DEI 10201622130.3.2. This article was written by Dr. Heinrich Gruger, research engineer. Jens Knob research engineer, and Dr. Tino Pugner, research engineer, Fraunhofer Institute for Photo, uh, Photonisch Microsystem, Germany. For more information, there's a link here. You've been listening to Technical News Reading, presented by Hakim Alibokis Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's Reading Focus has come to us from techbriefs.com and is titled 
compact MEMS-based NIR spectroscopy for mobile applications. It was published on January 1st, 2023 under the, the categories of test and measurement, photonics and optics, mechanical and fluid systems, materials, imaging, sensors and data acquisition, electronics and computers. You can read this article and others for yourself by visiting techbriefs.com. That's T-E-C-H-B-R-I-E-F-S dot C-O-M. That's techbriefs.com. Compact MEMS-based NIR spectroscopy for mobile applications. How a UV visible NIR range microscope spectrometer works. How a UV visible NIR range microscope spectrometer works. You're listening to Technical News Reading, presented by Hakeem Alibokis Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us from techbriefs.com and is titled, how a UV visible NIR range microscope spectrometer works. It was published on January 1st, 2023, under the categories of test and measurement, photonics, optics, and imaging. Beginning with our first featured image is of a scientist or technician in a white lab coat and a face mask on looking through a very fancy looking uh, microscope setup. <laughs> it's figure one and its caption reads, a microscope spectrometer being used to measure the thickness of films on a silicon wafer. This article discusses the basic design concepts of a UV visible NIR range microscope spectrometer in several different configurations. These include configurations to acquire absorbance, reflectance, fluorescence, and Raman spectra of microscopic samples. A brief summary of some of the uses of the microscope spectrometer is also included. The microscope spectrometer is a hyphenated instrument that combines the magnifying power of a microscope with the analytical capabilities of different types of spectrometers. As such, these instruments are used to acquire spectra, color spaces, and even thin film thickness of a micron scale samples areas, of micron scale samples areas. With the flexibility inherent in their design, the microscope spectrometer can be configured in many different ways and used to measure absorbance, reflectance, Raman and even emission spectra, such as fluorescence and photoluminescence of sub-micron sized sample areas. With the addition of specialized algorithms, the microscope spectrometer can also be used to measure the thickness of films or of thin films or to act as a colorometer 
for microscopic samples. There are many reasons to use tools that can acquire spectra of microscopic sample areas. These instruments require only small amounts of samples in either solid or liquid form. Another advantage is that very little or no preparation is required for many samples. Also, color comparisons done by spectroscopy tend to be more accurate because these instruments have a broader spectral range, can correct for lighting variations, and can measure the intensity of each wavelength band of light. Before the advent of microspectroscopy, the only way to analyze many types of microscopic samples was to use microchemical testing and then some sort of visual examination. Unfortunately, this tending tends to be destructive requires a considerable volume of sample and suffers from the inaccuracies of the human visual system. The microscope spectrometer avoids these issues, yielding improved accuracy and speed of analysis. Microscope spectrometers can also see beyond the range of the human eye and thus distinguish variations that would not be apparent visually. The components of a microscope spectrometer the microscope spectrometer integrates uv visible nir range spectrometers with an optical microscope designed for both spectroscopy and imaging see figure one the microscope must feature an operational spectral range from the deep ultraviolet to the near infrared while maintaining good spectral and image quality quality Standard microscopes cannot be used as they only cover a portion of the visible spectrum due to their optical designs and light sources used in such devices. A UV visible NIR range microspectrometer or microscope spectrometer, on the other hand, utilizes a custom-built microscope with an optics and light sources optimized for the deep UV through the NIR. The microscope consists of an air-mounted lenses of fused silica and other materials, as well as ultraviolet-enhanced mirrors, mounted in a configuration designed to evenly illuminate a sample while producing a sharp image in all regions of the designated spectral range of the instrument. Depending upon the type of spectroscopy to be done, the illumination is provided either by mixing the output of a deuterium lamp with that of a halogen lamp, use of arc lamps, or even lasers. The advantages of building this type of UV visible NIR microscope is that both the image quality throughout the UV visible and NIR regions, as well as the spectral quality, can be optimized when the microscope is integrated with both its imaging and spectroscopy components. The spectrometer itself must also be designed for microspectroscopy. Once again, the spectrometer itself must also be designed for microspectroscopy in order to obtain good spectral results. This means that the spectrometer must be highly sensitive while still maintaining an acceptable spectral resolution and signal-to-noise ratio. Stability is also an issue 
since the microscope spectrometer is a single beam instrument and reference spectra must be obtained prior to measuring the sample. The instrument must also have a high dynamic range since one frequently switches from transmission or reflectance microspectroscopy to fluorescence microspectroscopy. This allows the user to obtain different types of spectral information from exactly the same location on the microscope sample. Integration of the spectrophotometer with the microscope is critically important. While the microscope and spectrophotometer must both be optimized for microspectroscopy, the key to a microscope spectrophotometer's operation is the hardware that enables them to work together. This interface has several basic requirements. Most importantly, it must channel the electromagnetic energy collected by the microscope from the sample into the spectrophotometer. However, the user must be able to visualize the sample measurement area as well as the surroundings. This is done by having the entrance aperture of the spectrophotometer at the same focal plane as the sample image. The sample may then be moved with the microscope stage, as one would normally do with a microscope, until the image of the entrance aperture is over the area to be measured. The black square in the center of the image is the entrance aperture of the spectrophotometer. All this is done in real time so that the spectroscopy of microscope samples is quick and easy. Configuration of the microscope spectrometer. The job of the UV visible NIR microscope is to illuminate the sample and then to funnel the electromagnetic energy collected from the sample into the spectrometer. In order to do this, the user must be able to visualize the area to be measured as well as see the surrounding sample. This is done by having the entrance aperture of the spectrometer at the same focal plane as the sample image. Thus, a video image of the two shows the aperture in sharp focus over the sample in addition to the surrounding field of view of the sample. In operation, the sample stage is moved until the image of the entrance aperture is over the area of the sample to be measured. When the aperture is placed over the sample area of interest, the spectrum is then measured. Of course, images of the measured sample with the aperture in place can also be captured. For many research applications, this sample aperture alignment operation is done manually. For industrial operations, this procedure is often automated. And here we come to figure two. It is of one of these devices, and the caption reads, a microscope spectrometer configured for reflectance microscopy or microspectroscopy. Tech Briefs continues. The optical path of a microscope spectrometer is more complex than the operation. See figure two. The microscope's optics focus light onto the sample. Photons interact with molecules in the sample and the electromagnetic energy from the sample is collected by the microscope objective and focused onto the entrance aperture of the spectrometer. Much of the light is imaged by a digital camera, allowing the user to see both the sample 
and the entrance aperture of the spectrophotometer superimposed, thus allowing the user to see exactly what they are measuring. The electromagnetic energy that passes through the entrance aperture passes into the spectrometer and a spectrum is collected. Depending on the type of experiment to be performed, the microscope can be configured with a different or with different illumination schemes. White light allows for reflectance microspectroscopy. White light allows for reflectance microspectroscopy from deep UV to the NIR. Incident illumination can also be used for fluorescence or photoluminescence microspectroscopy by using a filter-based monochromatic with an arc lamp source or one of a series of lasers. Transmission microspectroscopy is done with white light focused onto the sample through the microscope's condenser. As stated earlier, the optical materials and the light sources used to build the microscope mean that the spectral range for both imaging and spectroscopy goes as low as 200 nanometers and into the near-infrared to 2,500 nanometers. Comparably, a modern optical microscope will have a very limited spectral range of only 450 to 700 nanometers, depending upon its configuration. Thus, the need for a custom microscope if the user requires ultraviolet or near-infrared spectra. We have the same setup here in figure three, which reads the Raman microscope spectrometer's optical configuration. Tech Briefs continues. Raman microspectroscopy can also be done with the microscope spectrometer. The Raman mo module integrates a laser, a Raman spectrometer, and optics for illumination of the sample and collection of the Raman scattered light. See figure three. Again, this module is also designed for simplicity of operation while giving the user confocal Raman spectroscopy. Again, this module is also designed for simplicity of operation while giving the user confocal Raman spectroscopic capabilities. When used, the laser from the Raman module illuminates the sample. The Raman scattered light is collected from the sample by the microscope objectives and again imaged onto the Raman spectrometer entrance, entrance aperture. A Raman spectrum is then collected from a specific sample area. How the microscope spectrometer is used. The microscope spectrometer is used in many different fields and applications. In materials sciences, these instruments are used to develop and characterize novel materials. The display industry uses them to characterize individual pixels for color consistency. See figure four, which is coming up right here. Figure four shows a blue, light blue, and darker blue uh, tiles that have uh, triangular patterns on them. When they're put all together, it actually looks like a big W, almost like the Wonder Woman logo. Figure four, the caption reads, a photo mask of flat panel display. The square in the center of the image is the entrance aperture of the spectrometer. Tech Briefs continues. 
In semiconductors, they are used to measure the thickness of thin films. See figure five. The biologist uses microscope spectrometers to study vision, and the forensic scientist uses them to characterize trace evidence, such as textile fibers and paint chips. And here we have figure five, which is a, looks like a wavelength of a graph wavelength. But let's read the caption and see. Figure five, a graph showing the interference spectra of different thickness silicon dioxide films on silicon. Summary. Tech Briefs continues. Summary. The microscope spectrometer is a device that integrates an optical microscope with a spectrometer to acquire spectra of microscopic sample areas. Such instruments are capable of absorbance and reflectance spectra from the deep ultraviolet through the visible and into the near-infrared regions. The microscope spectrometer can also measure fluorescence, photoluminescence, and Raman spectra. Hmm. Once again, the microscope spectrometer can also measure fluorescence, photoluminescence, and Raman spectra. These devices are used in many fields, including, but not limited to, forensic science, semiconductor and optical thin film thickness measurements, biotechnology, and cutting-edge material science research. This article was written by Paul Martin, president of CRAIC Technologies. For more information, visit, and there's a link here, or email Paul, Paul Martin, at paul.martin at m-i-c-r-o-s-p-e-c-t-r-a dot c-o-m. That's paul.martin at microspectra.com. You've been listening to Technical News Reading, presented by Hakeem Alibokis Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus has come to us from techbriefs.com and is titled, how a UV visible NIR range microscope spectrometer works. It was published on January 1st, 2023 under the categories of test and measurement, photonics, optics, and imaging. You can read this article and others like it for yourself by visiting techbriefs.com. That's T-E-C-H-B-R-I-E-F-S dot C-O-M. Techbriefs.com how a UV visible NIR range microscope spectrometer works. A laser that could reshape the landscape of integrated photonics. A laser that could reshape the landscape of integrated photonics. You're listening to Technical News Reading, presented by Hakeem Alibokis Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us from techbriefs.com and is titled, A Laser that could reshape the landscape of integrated photonics.
It was published on January 1st, 2023, under the categories of Photonics and Optics, Design, RF and Microwave Electronics, University of Rochester, Rochester, New York. Our featured, featured image is of a device, looks like there's a laser here, and I do see some letters that say NIR, which is near infrared. Now let's take a look at the caption, which reads, a team of researchers led by Chiang Lin, a professor of electrical and computer engineering at Rotterdam, has developed the first multicolor integrated Pockels laser that emits high coherence light at telecommunication wavelengths, allows laser frequency tuning at record speeds, and is the first narrow line width laser with vast configurability at the visible band. Image, University of Rochester, J. Adam Fenster. A research team co-led by Chiang Lin, a professor of electrical computer engineering at the University of Rochester, has set new milestones in addressing this challenge with the first multicolor integrated Pockels laser that point emits high coherence light at telecommunication wavelengths point allows laser frequency tuning at record speeds and point is the first narrow line width laser with fast configurability at the visible band. The project described in nature communications was co-led by John Bowers, distinguished professor at University of California, Santa Barbara, and Kerry Vahala, professor at the California Institute of Technology. Lin Zhu, professor at Clemson University, also collaborated on the project. This technology will pave the way for new applications of integrated semiconductor lasers in LIDAR, remote sensing that is used, for example, in self-driving cars. The technology could also lead to advances in microwave photonics, atomic physics, and AR-VR. Integrated semiconductor lasers have been at the core of integrated photonics, enabling many advances over the last few decades in information technologies and basic science. However, despite these impressive achievements, key functions are missing in current integrated lasers, Lee said. Two major challenges, the lack of fast reconfigurability and the narrow spectral window have become major bottlenecks that still that stall the progression of many evolving applications, Chang added. The researchers say they've overcome these challenges by creating a new type of integrated semiconductor laser based on the Pockels effect. The laser is integrated with a lithium niobate on insular platform. The new technology includes these beneficial features. Point. Fast frequency chirping that will be invaluable in LIDAR sensor systems which measure distance by recording the time between emissions of a short pulse and reception of reflected light. Point. Frequency conversion capabilities that overcome spectral bandwidth limitations of traditional integrated semiconductor lasers. This will sig significantly relieve the difficulties in developing new wavelength lasers. And finally, 
flash point, narrow wavelength, and fast reconfigurability, providing a fully on-chip laser solution to probe and manipulate atoms and ions in atomic physics and benefit AR, VR, and other applications at short wavelengths. For more information, contact, contact Bob Marcot at B-M-A-R-C-O-T-T-E at U-R dot R-O-C-H-E-S-T-E-R dot E-D-U. That's B Marcotte at U-R dot Rochester dot E-D-U. You've been listening to Technical News Reading, presented by Hakeem Alibokas Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus has come to us from techbriefs.com and is titled, A Later That Could Reshape the Landscape of Integrated Photonics. It was published on January 1st, 2023 under the categories of Photonics and Optics, Design, RF and Microwave Electronics. You can read this article and others like it for yourself by visiting techbriefs.com. That's T-E-C-H-B-R-I-E-F-S dot C-O-M. Techbriefs.com. A laser that shaped the landscape of integrated photonics. Cannabis and the oral microbiome. Exploring their impact on the brain. Cannabis and the oral microbiome. Exploring their impact on the brain. You're listening to Technical News Reading, presented by Hakeem Alibokas Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us from neurosciencenews.com and is titled, Cannabis and the Oral Microbiome, Exploring Their Impacts on the Brain. It was published under the categories of Neurology, Neuroscience, and Psychology on January 13, 2023. Summary. A new study seeks to better understand how cannabis use alters the oral microbiome and how this may have an impact on neurodegenerative disorders. Source. Medical University of South Carolina. Inspiration strikes when you least expect it. For Wei Jiang, MD, a professor of microbiology and immunology at the Medical University of South Carolina, MUSC, inspiration came in 2018 on a smoke-filled boat tour around Amsterdam during an international... Everyone was smoking cannabis except me, said Jiang. I was studying the microbiome at the time, so after talking to them, I figured out their oral health was affected by smoking and wanted to understand this further. In the years since, Jiang has focused her research on how smoking cannabis alters the oral microbiome, or the community of bacteria that live in the mouth. 
The South Carolina Clinical and Translational Research Institute provided pilot funding for Jiang's research. Now, with $3.7 million in recent funding from the National Institute on Drug Abuse, NIDA, NIDA, Jiang and her collaborator, her collaborator, Sylvia Fitting, Ph.D., from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, will dive deeper into the effects of cannabis-caused changes to the oral microbiome and their impact on neurological disease. This will be the first study to investigate the cannabis-altered oral microbiome and its effects on the brain, Jiang said. Cannabis is the most widely used drug in the U.S. and can have positive mental effects, such as reducing anxiety. However, long-term use can lead to impaired memory, learning and motor skills, said Jiang. Smoke also contains harmful compounds from combustion that affect oral health. Changes in oral bacteria have been linked to cardiovascular diseases, preterm birth, and even Alzheimer's disease. Unnatural changes in the oral microbiome, known as dysbiosis, can allow harmful bacteria to thrive in the mouth and even enter the bloodstream, damaging other organs, such as the brain. Jiang and her collaborators showed in a December 2021 e-biomedicine study that frequent cannabis use alters the oral microbiome. They found unusually high levels of the bacterium Actinomyces myeri. A. myeri in frequent cannabis users, but not in tobacco or cocaine users. In general, the amount of A. myeri should be, in ver should be very low in a healthy oral microbiome, Jiang said. Mice orally exposed to A. myeri for six months showed increased inflammation and more amyloid beta proteins in their brains. These proteins are thought to be linked to long-term memory loss and Alzheimer's disease. After we saw these changes in mice, given this bacterium, we became very intrigued by what was happening in their brains, Jiang said. The new grant funding will enable the team to explore the mechanisms underlying the link between high levels of A. myeri in the oral microbiome of frequent cannabis users and neurological disease. Psychological dependency on a drug, on a drug can have harmful neurological effects, but we don't know what is driving these effects in heavy cannabis users, said Jiang. We know that oral health affects your mental health. However, we don't know exactly what role the microbiome plays. Although Jiang's earlier work showed that the cannabis-altered oral, oral microbiome played a role in neurological changes, it did not specifically look at what component of cannabis caused those changes. Cannabis contains both psychoactive THC and non-psychoactive CBD components which interact with the brain and nervous system in different ways. Now we want to identify the specific effects of THC and CBD on oral microbiome dysbiosis and mental health, said Jiang. Jiang plans to expose mice to different levels of THC and CBD 
to determine their effects on levels of A. myeri in the oral microbiome. Neuroscience News suggests that you see also under the categories of genetics and neuroscience published on September 22, 2022, titled Enemy Turned Ally, Ancient Viral Genes Protect the Brain Against New Infections. Neuroscience News continues. We think that long-term exposure to THC, but not CBD, will increase levels of A. myeri in saliva that lead to harmful neurological effects in mice, said Jiang. In the new study, Zhang will also move beyond mouse models to humans with cannabis use disorder to see how changes in their oral microbiomes affect memory. We expect memory-related deficits to be associated with greater levels of A. myeri in frequent cannabis users compared with non-users, said Jiang. Zhang's research highlights the importance of oral health and its complex relationship with other diseases. Anyone using cannabis frequently should pay particular attention to their oral hygiene, said Jiang. With support from the NIDA grant, Jiang plans to lay a foundation for developing therapeutics that target the oral microbiome in frequent cannabis users with neurological disorders. If our hypothesis is correct, a therapeutic strategy targeting A. myeri could reduce irregularities in brain function in frequent cannabis users, said Jiang. In the future, it may also be useful to screen for certain bacteria as biomarkers of different diseases that affect the brain, such as Alzheimer's disease. About this neuroscience research news. Author, Kimberly McGee, source, Medical University of South Carolina. Contact Kimberly McGee, Medical University of South Carolina. There was an image which I didn't pay attention to. Oh, there it goes. Well, it's in the public domain. It shows a, a variety of different cannabis implements. There's a cannabis plant, there's a bottle, there's a dropper, and looks like some other seeds or something sitting around. And the caption reads, cannabis is the most widely used drug in the US and can have positive mental effects, such as reducing anxiety. And of course, that image is in the public domain. Neurosciencenews.com asks that you join our newsletter. Sign up to receive our recent neuroscience headlines and summaries sent to your email once a day, totally free. We hate spam and only use your email to contact you about newsletters. You can cancel your subscription anytime. Neuroscience News hosts science research news from labs, universities, hospitals, and news departments around the world. Science articles can cover neuroscience, psychology, AI, robotics, neurology, brain cancer, mental health, machine learning, autism, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, brain research, depression, and other topics related to cognitive sciences. You've been listening to Technical News Reading, presented by Hakeem Alibokas Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus has come to us from neurosciencenews.com and is titled Cannabis and the Oral Microbiome Exploring Their Impacts on the Brain. It was published under the categories of neurology, 
Neuroscience and Psychology on January 13, 2023. Visit neuroscienceNews.com at N-E-U-R-O-S-C-I-E-N-C-E-N-E-W-S dot C-O-M to read this article or others like it for yourself. NeuroscienceNews.com, Cannabis and the Oral Microbiome, Exploring Their Impacts on the Brain. Scientists take another step toward building a better, safer opioid. Scientists take another step toward building a better, safer opioid. You're listening to Technical News Reading, presented by Hakeem Alibokis Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., presented for World Reading Club, in association with the Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us from neurosciencenews.com and is titled, Scientists Take Another Step Toward Building a Better, Safer Opioid. It was published under the categories of Neuroscience and Pain on January 13, 2023. Summary. Using cryo-EM technology, researchers have decoded the detailed structures of an entire family of opioid receptors bound to their naturally occurring peptides. This new structural framework should help in the development of safer, more effective medications to treat chronic pain. Source, UNC Chapel Hill. In the continuing effort to improve upon opioid pain relievers, American and Chinese scientists used cryo-EM technology to solve the detailed structures of the entire family of opioid receptors bound to their naturally occurring peptides. Subsequent structure-guided biochemical studies were then performed to better understand the mechanisms of peptide receptor selectivity and signaling drugs. This work, published in Cell, provides a comprehensive structural framework that should help drug developers rationally design safer drugs to relieve severe pain. This work was spearheaded by the lab of Eric Xu, PhD, at the CAS Key Lab of Receptor Research in China, in collaboration with the lab of Brian L. Roth, MD, PhD, at the UNC School of Medicine, where graduate student Jeff DiBerto led the pharmacological experiments to understand the receptor's signaling mechanisms. Opioid drugs relieve pain by mimicking a naturally occurring pain relief function within our nervous systems. They are best, strongest pain, they are the best, strongest pain relievers we have. Unfortunately, they come with side effects, some severe, such as numbness, addiction, and respiratory depression, leading to overdose deaths. Scientists have been trying for many years to overcome the side effect problems in various ways, 
all involving one or more of four opioid receptors to no avail. One way scientists continue to explore is the creation of peptide or peptide-inspired small molecule drugs. Peptides are short chains of amino acids. Think of them as short proteins. Certain naturally occurring or endogenous peptides bind to opioid receptors on the surface of cells to create an analgesic effect, also known as pain relief. Think of an analgesic like an anesthetic, except that analgesics do not turn off the nerves to numb the body or alter consciousness. So the idea is to create a peptide drug that has a strong analgesic effect without numbing nerves or altering consciousness or causing digestive, respiratory, or addiction issues. The problem in the field is we lack the molecular understanding of the interplay between opioid peptides and the receptors, said Roth, co-senior author and the Michael Hooker Distinguished Professor of Pharmacology. We've needed this understanding in order to try to rationally design potent and safer peptide or peptide-inspired drugs. Using cryogenic electron microscopy, or cryo-EM, and a battery of biomechanistic experiments in cells, the Shu and Roth labs systematically solved the detailed structures of endogenous peptides bound to all four opioid receptors. These structures revealed details and insights into how specific naturally occurring opioid peptides selectively recognize and, and activate opioid receptors. The researchers also used in exogenous peptides or drug-like compounds in some of their experiments to learn how they activate the receptors. The cryo-EM structures of agonist-bound receptors in complex with their G-protein effectors, called their active state, represents what these receptors look like when they are signaling in cells, giving a detailed view of peptide-receptor interactions. The Roth lab used the structures solved by the Shu lab to guide the design of mutant receptors and then tested these receptors in biochemical assays in cells to determine how they alter receptor signaling. Understanding these interactions can then be used to design drugs that are selective for opioid receptor subtypes as well as to produce certain signaling outcomes that may be more beneficial than those of conventional opioids. This collaboration revealed conserved or shared mechanisms of activation and recognition of all four opioid receptors, as well as differences in peptide recognition that can be exploited for creating subtype selective drugs, said DiBerto, the first author and PhD candidate in the Roth lab. We provide more needed information to keep pushing the field forward to answer basic science questions we hadn't been able to answer before now. Previous research showed the structure of opioid receptors in their inactive or active-like states, with active state structures only existing for the mu opioid receptor subtype, the primary target of drugs like fentanyl and morphine. 
Our first featured image here shows a, a generic white bottle with some white tab pills coming out of it. And the caption is a recap. It says, this work published in Cell provides a comprehensive structural framework that should help drug developers rationally design safer drugs to relieve severe pain. The image is in the public domain. Neuroscience News continues. In the Cell paper, the authors show agonist-bound receptors in complex with their G-protein effectors made possible through cryo-EM technology that did not exist when currently used medications were being developed. Drugs such as oxycontin, oxycodone, and morphine cause various effects inside cells and throughout the nervous system, including pain relief but they have effects in the digestive and respiratory systems too and interact with cells to lead to addiction. Fentanyl, meanwhile, is another powerful pain reliever, but it binds to opioid receptors in such a way as to cause severe side effects, including the shutdown of the respiratory system. The thrust behind such research led Shu and, or led by Shu and Roth, is to home in on the mechanistic reasons for pain relief potency without triggering the cellular mechanisms that lead to severe side effects and overdosing. We are attempting to build a better kind of opioid, Roth says. We're never going to get there without these kind of basic molecular insights wherein we can see why pain is relieved and why side effects occur. Co-first authors of the cell paper are Yu Yue Wang and Yo Wen Zhuang of the Cass Key Laboratory of Receptor Research and the State Key Laboratory of Drug Research at the Shanghai Institute of Materia Medica in the Chinese Academy of Sciences. Neuroscience News suggests that you see also, under the categories of neuroscience and psychology, published on September 22, 2022, titled Binge Drinking increases COVID-19 risk in young women. Other authors, Neuroscience News continues. Other authors are Edward Joe and Karsten Melker of the Van Andel Research Institute in Grand Rapids, Michigan, Gavin Schmitz and Manish Jain at the UNC School of Medicine, and Xingjing Yuan, Wei Yi Liu, and Yi Jiant at the Cass Key Laboratory. About this neuropharmacology and neuroscience research news. Author, Mark Derwich. Source, UNC Chapel Hill. Contact Mark Derwich at the UNC Chapel Hill. The image, as previously mentioned, is in the public domain. Original research is under closed access and is titled Structures of the Entire Human Opioid Receptor Family by Eric Chu and others in Cell. You've been listening to Technical News Reading, presented by Hakeem Alibokis Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. Neuroscience News continues with an abstract from the paper titled Structures of the Entire Human Opioid Receptor Family. Highlights. Point. Structures of the entire family of human opioid receptors with opioid peptides. Point. The N-terminal YGGF message motif 
of opioid peptides drives receptor activation. Point. The C-terminal sequence variations of opioid peptides address receptor selectivity. Point. Extracellular loop 2 is the key for opioid receptors to filter specific opioid peptides. Summary. Opioids are effective analgesics, but their use is beset by serious side effects, including addiction and respiratory depression, which contribute to the ongoing opioid crisis. The human opioid system contains four opioid receptors. Mu-OR, Omega-OR, Kappa-OR, and NOPR, and a set of endogenous opioid peptides, EOPF, EOPs, which show distinct selectivity toward their respective opioid receptors. Despite being key to the development of safer analgesics, the mechanisms of molecular recognition and selectivity of EOPs to ORs remain unclear. And actually, backing up, I think that that might be a... <clears throat> that wasn't Omega, I think that's Sigma OR. Second, let's see what this character is here. My Greek isn't always the best. I want to make sure that I look at this here. Let's see, what is... What is when I was looking at those receptors there. Come on down. Oh, delta. Oh, that's the lowercase delta. My bad. All right. So let's take a look at this again. Where's my... Interesting. My uh, my paper seems to have disappeared here. Let's get back on track. Ooh, look, cannabis and the oral microbiome exploring their impacts in the brain. I'm gonna have to look at that in just a minute. But first, let me get back to my current article about building a better opioid. Here we go. And find ourselves at the bottom of the article at the abstract, so I can correctly identify these opioid receptors. Okay, so where are we? Okay, right. So this is um, Mu opioid receptor, Delta opioid receptor, and Kappa opioid receptor. But again, I'm gonna have to check because oops, I don't want to make I want to make sure that I got my my Greek letters correct here. Yes, it is Kappa. Okay. I mean, it looks like a K, right? But Sure. All right, so here's the, the human opioid system contains four opioid receptors. Mu opioid receptor, delta opioid receptor, and kappa opioid receptor, and N opioid receptor. I don't know what that N-O-P-R is, but... And a set of related endogenous opioid peptides, EOPs, which show distinct selectivity toward their respective opioid receptors. All right, Neuroscience News continues. Despite being key to the development of safer analgesics, the mechanisms of molecular recognition and selectivity of EOPs to ORs 
So this is endogenous. EOPs are endogenous opioids. Right? Uh, endogenous opioid peptides, right? Uh, so molecular recognition and selectivity of endogenous opioid peptides to opioid receptors remains clear. Here we systematically character characterize the binding of endogenous opioid peptides to opioid receptors and present five structures of endogenous opioid peptides opioid to opioid receptor to GI complexes including beta endorphin and endomorphin bound mu opioid receptor, deltorphin bound delta opioid receptor, dynorphin, dynorphin bound kappa opioid receptor and nociceptin bound oh that's what the nos that's what the n is okay nociceptin nociceptin bound opioid peptide receptor these structures supported by biochemical results uncover the specific recognition and selectivity of opioid peptides and the conserved mechanism of opioid receptor activation these results provide a structural framework to facilitate rational design of safer opioid drugs for pain relief. You've been listening to Technical News Reading. Neuroscience News asks that you join our newsletter, sign up to receive our recent neuroscience headlines and summaries sent to your email once a day, totally free. We hate spam and only use your email to contact you about newsletters. You can cancel your subscription anytime. Neuroscience News posts science research news from labs, universities, hospitals, and news departments around the world. Science articles can cover neuroscience, psychology, AI, robotics, neurology, brain cancer, mental health, machine learning, autism, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, brain research, depression, and other topics related to cognitive sciences. You've been listening to Technical News Reading. Presented by Hakeem Alibokis Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc. Presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus has come to us from Neuroscience. And is titled... Scientists take another step toward building a better, safer opioid. It was published on neurosciencenews.com under the categories of neuroscience and pain on January 13th, 2023. That was yesterday as of the time of this reading. You can learn more about this article or others similar to it on neurosciencenews.com. Just visit N-E-U-R-O-F-C-I-E-N-C-E-N-E-W-S dot C-O-M. That's neurosciencenews.com. And you can type in safer opioids to find this article. Mutantism. Genetic, mimetic, and prophetic engineering. Embracing transmutantism. Genetic, mimetic, and prophetic engineering. You're listening to Hypnoathletics, Exercising Your Mind, presented by Hakeem 
Alifocus, Alexander, on Wisdom. Social Audio Inc. presented for World Reading Club in association with Unique Equilibrium. Zane, something like that? I think so, something like that. Unique Equilibrium, yes. Embracing Transmutantism. Genetic, Lemetic, and Prophetic Engineering. So, here as I stand outside the door, Central 111, Virginia Beach, Virginia, opening doors for people. I'm embracing transmutantism. A little bit slightly different from transhumanism, only because, uh, well, there are a lot of mutations. You know, like the X-Men of science fiction and fantasy? Well, there are already a lot of humans who have mutated. And some of that comes in more subtle forms, such as epigenetics. So there's epigenetic engineering. And epigenetic engineering has to do with nurture. Nurture means the things that happen. And one of the main things that happens in, uh, in epigenetics is not that the actual sequence of genes changes, but the level of expression of genes that are already extant change. So there is a group called the, a methyl group, CH4, that's a carbon, with four hydrogens attached, and that, the closer the CH4, that methyl group as it's called, is to the gene, the it's sort of like a cap. It puts the brakes on, the gene isn't expressing itself as fully. And the further away, it's like uncorking, and the gene becomes more able to be expressed. And so that's the basic oversimplification of epigenetics. And certain things can happen depending on what kind of environment you're born in. We'll show what kind of genes are expressed. IDs, everyone, please. Thank you. Welcome back. How you doing? Welcome back. All right. I know I look like a meat game. So all you guys whose IDs I checked, you can step inside. Well, happy belated birthday. You just made the cut. Thank you. All right. And so I have to wait for a moment. So 
they're getting any clearance for that. So the uh, epigenetics, the engineering can happen through many different avenues like uh, stress and environment and different things like that that can cause the methyl group CH4 to either be closer to or further away from the particular gene to express the proteins. And so there's one way of epigenetic engineering. And in that way, you can cause the genes to be expressed or suppressed. Now, uh, one of the other factors about this is that people are pushing the envelope of this kind of uh, epigenetic engineering by subjecting themselves to extremes, for example, of temperature and different things like that. As a matter of fact, there's a group of uh, monks in the Himalayas that have taken to using something that we could consider to be metaphysics that affects the physiology, the functioning of the body. And this was covered in one of the neuroscience news articles. Uh, they, the scientists didn't know exactly what was going on, of how these monks were able to do what they do. And because of they live in an extreme cold environment, they were able to raise their body temperatures at will to the point where they could even melt the snow and ice around them. And they were practicing a spiritual practice called Tantric Mahamudra Meditation, which simply means that they were imagining themselves having the powers and abilities of a god. And what that did, and I'm oversimplifying once again, and what that did was to ramp up their metabolism and their sympathetic nervous system. And this is an excitatory response or an arousal, which raised their body temperatures. And it's the opposite of what most people think meditation is. Most people only have a one-sided view and understanding of meditation. Most people have thought that meditation is simply a relaxation or using the parasympathetic, parasympathetic nervous system to calm down, right? to focus your thoughts singly on something, maybe even to blank out your mind and erase the thoughts. Um, someone who is online who calls himself Morg, who is a practitioner of ontological mathematics, um, he actually claims that meditation in the way that most people practice it is not a good thing because it causes people to blank out their minds and not think. And for someone who claims to be as intelligent as he is, he should know better that there are more forms of meditation that actually use the sympathetic nervous system and parasympathetic nervous system. So, but that's where most people are thinking. They're stuck in that idea. And so most people don't think of getting excited or to increase your heart rate and increase your body temperature as a form of meditation when in fact it is. You know, you look at these mutants or these people with superpowers who are projecting balls of fire and, and shocking people with electricity and things like that. Those would probably be examples of the sympathetic nervous system. Do you know, are you carrying a weapon, sir? Do you have your ID? I'd like to see that. Thank you. And so there are different ways to change 
the way that you're expressed. So, in a way, because these monks uh, had to, well, not even in a way, these monks had to change their body temperature. And so, of course, this increase of metabolism means that they have to express more of a gene that is ramping up the expression of their, welcome back, sir, of their mitochondria, the, the powerhouse of the cells, which, of course, you know, amongst other things, uses adenosine triphosphate, ATP, um, along with glucose, to, um, to energize the body, to, amongst other things, of course, to give energy to the muscles and other, and, and also the brain. The brain uses the majority part of the glucose. Will, how you doing? Good to see you, sir. And now, um, there's a, an, some some short example of uh, epigenetic engineering, which wouldn't is not the same as genetic engineering. Now, genetic engineering is a much more complicated subject. I'm doing well, Miss. How are you? Now, genetic engineering is a whole different subject. These are uh, this has been done for many, many years. For example, in the laboratory, um, there are mice, usually white mice, and one of the things they've often done is use what they call knockout mice, right? Where they knock out a specific gene that gives a mouse a certain type of protection. Like they knock out a gene that protects it from certain cancer. They knock out something um, that will help it to produce insulin so the mouse develops like type 1 diabetes in, in essence so they can test drugs on it. That's genetic engineering right there, a very simple way where they knock out, they simply knock out or take out a gene. And so then there are much more complicated things like this. Um, some some uh, retroviruses are very good at genetic engineering, like, for example, the um, human immunovirus that causes the acquired immune deficiency syndrome, also known as AIDS, right? Um, this virus lands on cells and it uses reverse transcriptase to copy its RNA and splice it into the DNA of its host cell. And then what happens from there is that the host cell then starts to produce more of that virus. And uh, that is another way of genetic engineering. And it even, some people have speculated because of the way that that uh, retrovirus works, um, using reverse transcriptase, is itself a genetically engineered virus that was introduced to humanity for whatever nefarious purposes, but that uh, that's a conspiracy theory, right? Now, there are also different things like uh, genetic engineering, like uh, parts of, there's different branches like cloning, right? Dolly the sheep was a sheep that was cloned, uh, but died because most of the sheep they tried this on would develop tumors and things like that, and would, would uh, very quickly pass away, but Dolly the sheep was the one that uh, that survived the longest. And there are so many other ways of genetic engineering, like, for example, a, a huge controversial one is um, is the uh, from the company Monsanto, which is um, the, what do we call, RBST, recombinant bovine somatotropin, or R, also known as RBGH, which is recombinant bovine growth hormone. And so it's recombinant, right, recombined. And so they put this in the, into the cows so that they produce more milk. Well, this supposedly affects the immunoglobin growth hormones in the human body and causes cancers and so on and so forth. And so 
Then the another one from the wonderful company of Monsanto is uh, actually uh, Monsanto genetically engineers uh, soy, corn, amongst other things, right? Tomatoes. And one of the things that they genetically engineer is uh, um, they found uh, that their glyphosate um, in their Roundup, right, um, kills everything, um, even things that are not weeds that are supposed to kill. Everything kills everything. And so, uh, as the story goes, they someone found a bacteria behind one of their dumpsters at one of their sites that somehow had the internal structure and metabolic machinery to be able to process and safely disable the glyphosate, and it didn't kill it. So guess what they did? They isolated that genetic sequence that made that bacteria immune to their glyphosate, which kills almost everything else, and they began inserting it into a... All right, Brian, have a good night. Oh, by the way, uh, Billy is here, the owner. He's behind the bar. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. I got you. Take care. Y'all have a good night. And so this uh, this um, this bacterium had uh, this gene, and they started putting it into corn and soy and other plants, and selling that as a product to farmers under the name of Roundup Ready. So you had Roundup Ready coin, corn. I said coin. Well, they're getting a lot of coin from that, right? Roundup Ready corn, soy, and and wheat. It's just a few examples, and so that you could spray Roundup willy-nilly on all your crops, and the only things that would die is everything that you wanted to, and not your crops. So that you can then sell those crops to people after harvest. And of course, you know now Monsanto, which sold that patent and that technology to Bayer, Bayer Life Sciences, they call it. Uh, they uh, are now paying out billions of dollars. The last number I heard was 11 billion in a class action lawsuit to people who were developing certain types of leukemia induced by glyphosate. And guess what? A lot of you still use Roundup. You know, my sister, she doesn't give a shit. She still uses Roundup on, on her weeds. Oh, it's the only thing that works. That's insane thinking to me. That is, that is a very ridiculous way to think. That it's, that, that, yeah. But, you know, hey, that might not, you know, you know, why are they paying $11 billion? Is it true that uh, Roundup kills everything that it comes into contact with, except for bacterium that happen to be immune to it? Who knows? But so you can see that there are many controversial uses of genetic engineering. Right? So now, that is the first part of this subject. The next is mimetic engineering. Now, mimetic engineering uh, is probably as old as genetic engineering. And I say this because even though genetic engineering is seen as more of a scientific technology that is created, that is used in laboratories and things like that with microscopes and such. Um, people have been doing it for thousands of years in some ways with selective breeding. Um, it's even talked about in the Bible. Good evening, everyone. Can I see your IDs? So the type of genetic engineering that I'm talking about is selective breeding when you select certain plants and animals for certain traits, like they selected out certain goats that were more docile and therefore... Therefore, you got sheep. Well, that's different. Uh, um, I, already covered, I already covered that in my talk here about corn. Um, corn, soy, wheat. Oh, yeah, banana selective. That's a big one. There was actually a huge thing with the um, United Fruit Company 
that uh, the entire government of Guatemala was overthrown because of that. Yeah. Right, Y'all have a good night. Yeah, the CIA actually, uh, this gentleman that just came to the door uh, was listening and heard. Uh, it talked about the bananas. Yeah, selective reading about and just choosing bananas for the yellow ones, right? When there are all kinds of colors of bananas. And so just a little side note there. Um, but the CIA uh, had an overthrow of the whole country and government of Guatemala because of the United Fruit Company um, under the – and this is where we're getting to now. This is actually a good segue. He brought that up. Um, is uh, um, Edward Bernays, um, who's also known as the father – of public relations it's on shore drive but i don't know exactly because i've never been there i don't know it's called it's on shore drive i don't know the address though um so how are you doing yeah um so he is he's behind the bar i think and so uh so this is a good segue Ed, edward bernay is the father of public relations and this is what mimetic engineering is um, you know, people, memes, if you look at the word memetic, it has the word meme in it, M-E-M-E-T-I-C. Um, but I can also spell it mimetic. There's a different ways that I spell it. I'm, I'm pretty, I don't know if I'm the one who coined that term, but like a mime, right? Um, but it's mimet, memetic about memes and memory. And so Edward Bernays, um, also with a guy named Walter Littman, I believe, they were part of something called the um, public the Committee for Public Information. And he wrote in 1928 and published a book called Propaganda. I'm not, I think I'm, I'm not sure. That might be what it is. But uh, the, the work that they did is, is very in, influential, of course, public relations, right? What is public relations? Well, it's, it's a manipulation of sorts. As a matter of fact, um, I worked for Michael Levine, who was a public relations specialist and entertainment pub publicist, who amongst his clients were Michael Jackson and Elizabeth Taylor and stuff like that. And he, uh, I did a six-month internship with him in 2002, the end of 2002, 2003, I think, um, for six months. And the, the, the whole goal of public relations is to um, create a favorable uh, perception in the public of different organizations and individuals. And the way that they do that is by getting various different news stories accepted into the media um, and so that it seems as if the media is reporting on these as like good news rather than um, marketing or advertising. But it's really the same because it's bought and paid for. So that's the whole idea about public relations <laughs> is that it's news that's bought and paid for. And so um, and it comes from the Co Committee on Public Information, which, you know, right, is, a, is an innocuous sounding name. Sounds kind of innocent, right? It doesn't sound like it's any kind of form of manipulation or propaganda, which, by the way, those two words themselves have been uh, deformed from their original meanings because the word manipulate, in fact, just means to handle with skill and care. It has the word hand in it, mano, manipulate, right? And propaganda comes from the propagandi who were just the scribes who were wrote and disseminated things from, for example, like Bibles. And they don't have any negative connotation in themselves except how they're usually used in society. And so Walter Lippmann, people like this, uh, Edward Bernays, um, these are some of the original um, mimetic engineers of our modern times in the 20th century. Now we're in the 21st, of course. And But any time uh, anyone did any kind of manipulation like this, if we go a little bit further back to when uh, people 
who knew about uh, astronomy and could tell when a, an eclipse was about to happen. They could go to some other people who weren't in the know about mathematics and astronomy, like people uh, that were considered to be primitive, and they could say, if you don't bow down to us, our sun, our God is going to make the, the sun go dark. And then they would come back and say, okay, you haven't signed our treaty or whatnot yet. The sun is going to become dark at this time. And sure enough, then there would be a total solar eclipse, whereas the moon blocked out the sun and it became dark and everybody bowed down to these people who were astronomers. And they seemed like they were in cahoots with the gods. And this whole idea of god kings goes all the way back to the pharaohs of Egypt, who many of them were astronomer priests. And, of course, astronomy, astrology are... are Two sides of the same coin. Um, it's just that, as Cicely Marie Goose will, would explain to you, is that the astrology um, is sort of like how, um, for example, we have Michio Kaku and we have Neil deGrasse Tyson and even Wisdom's uh, Christopher Birkenbein. They are science communicators who bring science to the mainstream, to people who may not study or research science and aren't familiar with all of the language. They make it so that it's better understood by the people. So this is what astrology was to astronomy. And you and this type of manipulation is a negative form of manipulation to, to engineer the thoughts of people. Now, some would call it hypnosis. Others call it brainwashing. Some call it the black science. And this, um, this, this science even goes into the physical body. There are things that are done to the body uh, that can actually cause you to think thoughts of uh, suicide. Uh, some of the uh, pharmaceutical medications that people are given for uh, psychiatric conditions in which they are suicidal and might want to die have black box warnings on them that say, if you take this, you might want to kill yourself and other people. And how does that happen? Well, think about this. If someone's sick or injured, they have a cold or flu or something else like that, they don't feel so well. They feel tired. They might feel cranky and groggy, and they might be a little bit more snappy and a little bit less happy, right? And so they do things and say things that they may not normally say. And so that is one way in which when you cause discomfort in the body, how you can cause someone to feel so uncomfortable and so despairing that they no longer want to be extant. And therefore, they decide to take their lives. And this is quite unfortunate. So there is mimetic engineering, engineering of the mind, engineering of the memories, engineering of the thoughts, engineering of the emotions. And this is also done by all sorts of media, including this media in which you're hearing me. You are influenced, I am influenced, for good or bad, by the messages that come into our senses, usually through our eyes, ears, and others. The way that we think from time immemorial, through stage plays, through dictates from government, through pamphlets of all kinds, we are given messages that not only tell us what to think, but tell us how to think. And that is a form of mimetic engineering. 
So again, I could have just said that it's a form of negative hypnosis or brainwashing or mind control, and you would have understood mimetic engineering. But because I made a little rhyme, genetic, mimetic, and prophetic engineering, why not? And number three is prophetic engineering. Now, this is very closely related in a combination of genetic and mimetic engineering, whereas technology is said to be advancing, and then, of course, the advances that we see that are told that are going to come out, for example, in things like science fiction, as I am a science fiction communicator in a similar way that Christopher Birkenbein, Neil deGrasse Tyson, and Michio Kaku are on that level of bringing science to the mainstream. I create and manufacture science fiction based on the science that I know. And so science fiction, like uh, Arthur C. Clarke says that, you know, sometimes science fiction is a precursor to science fact, and a lot of times it is, like things you've seen, like the communicators in Star Trek. I'm sure you've heard a lot of people reference that. And so many other things that come out in comic books, in graphic novels, in television shows, in movies, and, and all kinds of science fiction and fantasy that then eventually seem to be played out in real life, right, later on. So this is prophetic, right? They can prophesy and say that something's going to happen, and sometimes it's not said that it's even going to happen in science. It's just fantasy, and then we're like, oh, wow, look at that. Here it is now. Wasn't that in such and such a movie? I saw that before, and they talked about this here, and now, look, there it is, right? And so prophecy. Also, in science, is known as predicting. You can make predictions in science, and you make predictions based on things that you know come before. You know, we have inductive and deductive reasoning rules these different things we can use to make predictions about what may happen in the future, or prophecy. So then there's another way that this happens also, where we can control and predict the way that humans will behave. And this has also been done for a very, very long time with the implementation of holidays and things like this. You know, Valentine's Day boosted by the flower industry. Um, and the whole wedding ring deal boosted by companies like De Beers who have vaults full of diamonds and hold them back from the rest of humanity in order to boost up the sales and make them seem like they're rare so that people want to spend, uh, what is it called, their two-month salary on these things. Um, and this whole ritual of putting the ring on the finger and all that. And you can see how people and guide people's behavior, and the majority of the world will follow the exact ebb and flow, and you can see it like a cycle, like a pattern. There's a lot of activity during the holidays, a lot of frustration, a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression around the holidays. And so you can see this can prophesy, you can predict exactly how people are going to behave, not only just through their behavior, but it affects their health, their physical bodies, and affects the way that they think and the way that they feel down to the core of their spirit. So... These are all examples, and if you missed it, there's going to be a replay of genetic, mimetic, and prophetic engineering. Now, why after all of that would I talk about embracing what I'm calling transmutantism? See, everybody's afraid of transhumanism, right? 
this is transhumanism, but of course I'm a science fiction communicator. So why not create my own term here? In a combination with I had a conversation with Cicely Marie Goose, who I'm her co-host and moderator on call-in for her show, Astrology with Cicely. We were talking a little bit earlier, and she was talking about transhumanism because Andrea Raquel, also a wisdomer here, sent her a video about beware or the dangers of trans or the most dangerous idea, which is transhumanism, right? And of course, if it's dangerous, what else would a supervillain do but embrace that, right? And so, and then add my own little uh, dark spice to it, my 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 flames, my infernal thoughts to this idea, which is transmutantism, or it can be transmutantism. You can take the one T out of there. And so the fact that we are already being mutated, which I explained through epigenetics. For example, one of the simplest way of epigenetic engineering yourself is exercise. I very constantly ramp up the production of my growth hormone, my testosterone, and several other things. For example, here's a tip, guys. If you want to produce more testosterone in your body, simply find a weight that you can squat 10 times and, and somewhat easily, right? And do squats. Do five sets of, of 10 reps of squats with, with, with control and poise and do that once a day. Well, actually, I, I do squats every, every day once a day, but I only do one set of 10. But you can do them. If you're going to do those five sets, you only do, uh, you might want to mix it up a little bit and do them like maybe twice or three times a week. Good evening, sir. How you doing? Good. And so um, you can really increase your testosterone with the proper use of squats. Um, if, you, if you have back problems, don't do squats. Maybe you can try um, doing leg press or leg extensions or anything like that or even without weight but you control your body weight. Um, more on that later. But, but by doing that, you cause your body to produce more testosterone, to produce more growth hormones, so on and so forth. So exercise is actually one of the oldest ways, actually just physical activity, intense and varying levels of physical activity as a way of epigenetic engineering. And so we are already causing subtle mutations. Sometimes these epigenetic markers get passed on to people's offspring. And so, therefore, you're able to pass this on. And over time, because these epigenetic markers get passed on, eventually they become genetic mutations. So, for example, a dark-skinned people might go to an environment with less sun, and over some time they mutate and they become lighter-skinned because they need to have lighter skin in order to make better use of the light, the less the, the the decreased amount of sunlight coming from the sky. Because as you may or may not know, there's a molecule called melanin. And it's one of the very few molecules that DNA allows to hang out around it, directly around it. And the reason why is you might know from wearing dark colors in the sun that dark colors tend to get more heated up than lighter colors. If you wear lighter colors, the sun light and the heat bounces off of it. Well, darker colors absorb. And that's one of the, the roles of melanin. The darkness inside of the pigmentation, those molecules capture infrared photons and capture photons that are responsible for heat and other frequencies and UVA and UVB and pull them in there and then spit them back out and protect the DNA from being struck by these different kinds of photons that could potentially cause mutations. And 
these, if the DNA gets hit by these certain photons, one of the things that could happen is different electrons, which are part of almost every atom, especially in the body, get knocked off. This is the same idea behind what happens in free radicals, where electrons get knocked off and they become ionized, they become positively charged. And then they start stealing electrons from other nearby atoms and molecules, and it can cause a cascade of problems, which one problem could be if that particular cell is, is going through mitosis and it, it has a missing electron and is not working properly, then that will split in a way that is not optimized and can start to create a whole bunch more of those that are misshapen, misformed, malformed, mutated, and a whole bunch of them cluster up in there is like one of the basis of, for example, skin cancer. So we have all kinds of ways to genetic engineer, mimetic engineer, and prophetically engineer. Now, why embrace this? Well, not those things, of course. Why would we want to embrace these things that would kill us and make us uncomfortable? No, no, we can take lessons from these things and the understanding of the possibility and potential of these different types of engineering. And so we are already doing it. A person is missing a leg or two. You give them a prosthesis. This person is now an enhanced being because once before they could not walk and now they can run faster than any person can without these springy leg things that they have going on here, right? That is one form of transhumanism. Not quite as extreme as some others. Let's take an example. Imagine now implanting that device or something similar into a person's body, a device that would help their feet spring. You know, you can cut off bone and replace it with this metal springs and things like that, put all kinds of pads in people's feet, and cause a person who before didn't need to have some enhancement to help them walk and now has this enhancement to help them to run faster. Or imagine using this as an exoskeleton. ID. Oh, wait, you're with these guys? Yes, I am. Have fun. I've been there before. No, I didn't. Wow. So, um, so yes, uh, exoskeletons. So you can use devices in which you can uh, attach these devices and similar ones to people's bodies who may not need those enhancements. But now they have these enhancements and they can run faster, jump higher, kick the shit out of you with these bionic legs. Oh, remember that? There's a prophetic engineering. Remember the $6 billion man, the bionic man, and then the bionic woman, right? The little spinoff of that. And um, see, there, there again is an implantation in your mind or something like that. The guy comes first, and then they take the rib and make the, and then the lady comes next, right? It's all bullshit. All bullshit. And um, so... Then there are all kinds of those kind of in heaven. But that's a subtle one, right? Because these people, like, you're like, oh, they need, uh, you know, they need this, um, this mobility. Well, how about a similar one? But now 
how about something even even further and deeper than that? Well, there's research and experimentation that has been done not too long ago in which. All right. Good evening. I did. Because you're with people that um, I've seen before and I trust that they know you and wouldn't bring somebody in here that is going to cause me any trouble. So would you still like to show me your ID? All right. Well, no one was upset. Oh, the things that uh, we get upset about, right? The wild and crazy things that I get upset about, can you imagine? We're all wild animals. That's why the next thing I'm going to talk about here is uh, also people who have mobility problems. Um, there was an experiment done with only three of them, tetraplegics, people who have total paralysis, were taught how to navigate wheelchairs through complex environments. And now how were they taught how to do this? I'm great. May I see your IDs, please? Now, how were these people taught how to do this? They were taught to navigate their wheelchairs through complex environments by being having their brain activity mapped onto a brain computer interface and this brain computer interface um, basically was they were told to think of their arms and arms right r starts with the sound of r right that would represent their going right as in the letter r right right and then they mapped that and saw the brain activity and the part the, the cascade of neurons and the pathway that that took when they thought of their arms. And then they were told to think of their legs, the, the legs left, the L left, right? So they map what brain activity happens and the cascade of neurons and the, the direction of flow of how that happens, and they map that to the brain-computer interface. So then these people were able to steer through complex environments using that basic steering mechanism of moving right and left with their wheelchairs. So. Now, there are also other people, on and on and on, who are using um, uh, prosthetic arms, mechanical prosthetic arms, and all kinds of other things who are able to type on computers, moving cursors, and things like that with other brain-computer interfaces. And so there we have some things that are already enhancements that are used. Now, imagine how much simpler it would be for a person who is in full in possession of their full capacity, who aren't disabled, who aren't immobilized, who aren't sick, who can then be taught how to use these things. Are we to be so naive that uh, this is not already underway? Well, as a matter of fact, it is. And uh, quite successfully so. So now we've laid out exactly how, in some ways, we can use different types of transhuman capabilities and technologies to enhance us. It's not a far step to use these things. If, if people who are, are sick and are, their bodies and their health are already delicate, is it so difficult to imagine that healthy people who can 
who have more resilience to surgeries and things like that would be able to have these types of technologies adapted to their needs. I mean, we have Google Glass. We have watches that we wear that we can we can steer uh, drones and watch movies and and get information and data. Like, what do they call HUD, the heads-up displays? Right? These are all things that we wear and put on us. Now, you can start to have these things implanted. Aren't There are already people. Well, let's first start this, right? You, I'm sure you're already aware of, of people having their, their pets chipped, right, so that you can locate them, right? So the pets are chipped. They can locate them. Now, these are simple RFID, which stands for Radio Frequency Identification, right? Well, the same radio frequency identification has already been seen that we can implant these chips and you can wave them by something. Just like uh, you use your now your cards that you pay for things, you can just touch the payment processing systems, and because of the chip, it will read it, and you can pay for things that way, right? And depending on how your software is programmed, you don't even have to type in a passcode. You just touch the thing, and it's in credit card mode. Or like my like my uh, Navy Federal Credit Union card, right? I just touch that thing. I don't have to put in anything. Sometimes I just stick it in the device or just touch the device and it just pays for everything just like that, just because I have it. Or like your car, right? Your keys. If you have them on your person and you walk up to the car and you touch the door, it'll open up for you, right? These are all radio frequency uh, based technologies. And radio frequency, by the way, everyone, is simply just photons. There's different frequencies of photons doing things, right? And just knocking around electrons and moving things around like that. That's all That's all it is, is light. Light that you can't see, right? Can you think about that? Light that you can't see? Well, we don't have the frequency range to see all different forms of photons. As a matter of fact, uh, Brian Green, who was the author of a book called The Elegant Universe and the primary science communicator in the PBS series called The Elegant Universe, uh, explains in one part of that about how if you were to take a roll of film, does anybody remember film, 35 millimeter film, remember cameras? A lot of them had that in it, the Kodak and all that stuff like that, where you rolled it up on this spool and you had to stick it inside the camera and then develop it in a dark room. Well, if you took that stuff, with celluloid, and you stretched it from the southernmost point of California, and you had a long one that you can stretch all the way up to the northernmost point of Washington State. Welcome back. And you, then the, the visual, visible human spectrum, hello, Jay. The visible human spectrum would only be one frame of that film. So that's our Roy G. Biv, our red, orange, yellow, blue, green, indigo, violet. That's one frame. Can you imagine out of thousands of miles of film, what we can actually see with our human eyes, most of us who have eyes to see, can only perceive just one frame. And then who's to say that even the detectors that we have so far, that that's, that that's all that we, can, that we have. Who's to say that, that radio, that micro, that infrared, that ultraviolet, that, that x-rays and gamma rays are really the extent of the frequencies that exist? Hmm? As a matter of fact, uh, another little side note here, which is something that was covered also in the Elegant Universe uh, a series on PBS, um, is uh, is string theory, right? 
So one question I was asked is, is it a theory of physics or is it philosophy, right? And the reason that question was asked, I think it was by Harvey Weinberg, who with Abdus Salam and another guy won in 1972 the Nobel Prize for physics for unifying the strong nuclear force, oh no, sorry, the, the uh, electromagnetism with the strong nuclear force and the weak nuclear force. And, and, and what's called electroweak, so it's a unification theory. You know, he asked, is this a philosophy or is it, is it physics or is it science, right? And the reason is because through mathematics, right, it can show that in equations that there are, in fact, these tiny vibrating strings, either open-ended or closed loops, that depending on their frequency, give rise to all of the subatomic particles and other particles that make up all the matter in our universe. And this is also similar to another kind of string theory, which is called ontological mathematics, which I should really just say it's just mathematics, um, and things like Fourier transforms in which you can uh, show that using these equations, you can show how you can take physical sound waves and encode them onto, uh, onto microchips, or also even extend that all the way into unextended domains of non-physical existence and just pure information, informational relationships which some say, the ontological mathematicians who claim to be uh, descendants of the Pythagorean Illuminati, I know it sounds ridiculous, but hey, I'm a science fiction communicator here, right? Um, that this is the entrance into the spiritual world, that that's what the spirit is, that God, language, and all that other stuff like that is actually all mathematical relationships and information in ad infinitum. This is eternity. This is a place that does not need space. Right or time to operate in. It's purely information using all of the different kinds of integers and irrational numbers and, excuse me, and uh, imaginary numbers and irrational numbers and everything that you can possibly think of based on Euler's number and sine and cosine waves and that this is the language of existence that gives rise to all things physical. And then this is also close related uh, to the recently deceased Paul A. LaVoyalette, um, his sub-quantum kinetics, which also shows through chemical diffusion reactions about how etherons, uh, which are also frequency um, uh, substances like strings and also like an ontological mathematics, uh, sine and cosine waves that give rise to subatomic particles depending on the etheron interactions. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Hey, what's up, bud? How are you doing tonight? Good, good. All right. Oh, boy. So I, I went off on the deep end here with uh, ontological math. Yeah, like it. Like anything I can say is any crazier than anything I've ever said, right? So, um, and so now we we can uh, go really far with uh, all these different types of physics and crossing over to metaphysics. The, one of the main points here is that all of the things that people seem to have thought were impossible, and that is science fiction and fantasy. Somewhere, somehow. Someone, some groups are experimenting with practicing, speculating, documenting how to create this into our reality. 
and we have devices that are helping people and enhancing their physical capabilities or their lack of physical capabilities uh, to improve their lives. Another example that just came by as the sirens go by is uh, hearing, right? How many people have, have hearing implants or what's called cochlear implants? Right? Tap into the eighth cranial nerve pair, the vestibular cochlear nerves, which is responsible for hearing and equilibrium in the human body. Right? That's a form of, that's a cyborg right there, especially if you have them implanted. Right? People have things implanted in their skulls to have bone conduction. Right? The eight, we're already being implanted with these things. And I got away from the chips, the RFID and the frequencies, right? But people's animals are already doing that. And there are some people who are volunteering to be microchipped already. And don't forget that there are tattoos, invisible tattoos that you can tattoo on your body that can play music, for example, that can be read. So you can, there are certain types of ink now that have different patterns in them that, that even have uh, circuits imprinted through tattoos on your body. So you can tattoo, basically, Microchips. Now, you can tattoo. There are um, micro channels, like nano channels, right? Um, microfluidics is another uh, um, type type of technology in which, on a um, on a tiny uh, substance, on a tiny substrate, right, a, a laser will etch a pattern onto a uh, onto um, a piece of material like a carbon nano material, right? And it'll etch this pattern into there. And then on top of that, they'll put another layer on there so that it covers it up. But since it's etched, the one layer, normally it would just be flat, like two pieces sitting on each other and there's no space. But now that they etch the pattern into there, now you have channels, like a canal. And you can pump fluids through there. You can pump microfluidics through there. And so you can pump microfluids there. You can pump electrons through there. There's picosecond imaging and all this other stuff like that. So now you can implant things in people's skin. Imagine now going further with that. You can tattoo that onto people. It's such a thin layer that you can tattoo that into people's skin. And now people can have uh, different micro circuits planted into their bodies. And these can do all kinds of things like simply monitoring. Uh... Good evening. Excellent. So these microfluidic tattoos can do anything from monitoring people's vital signs uh, to also helping to regulate different types of body functions. Um, for example, if people need more insulin and things like that, so on and so forth. And you get the picture. So we can take a step further, right? You know somebody uh, who has like a, uh, maybe has a, a cardiac arrest um, from taking too many drugs or something like that, and uh, you can give them a shot of, uh, of adrenaline into their heart and it can revive them. Everybody remember uh, Pulp Fiction? Well, you can have these microfluidic tattoos that can do things like that to help enhance performance. And we already know that there are a whole bunch of people taking steroids, anabolic steroids and performance-enhancing steroids. So there's anabolic steroids and other metabolic steroids that do one or a couple of things where they can either make the muscles grow, right, hypertrophy or hypertrophy, right, and also performance enhancement, which makes the muscles stronger and so on and so forth. So all of the technologies, you can just take the pieces and put them together and see how they can, they can work. And there are a lot of athletes 
who take performance enhancement drugs, PEDs, right, that go undetected by a lot of the testing protocols that are out there. And a lot of them are doing it in small doses that are safe for them to take long term. And now, if you can imagine if it wasn't uh, banned, like, for example, a lot of men are taking uh, endogenous testosterone. And you, you got all these these guys who are growing these freakish, freakishly large muscles and having all this crazy testosterone pumped into them because they feel like they need it after a certain age, right? So these are all ways that humans are being modified. And so all of this type of modification is happening. And the transmutantism part of it is that you can have something as simple as a tattoo put onto your body that is is regulated through a micro-information system in order to enhance all kinds of things from muscular strength and size and the density of your bones, blood, blood flow, body temperature, right? So, so many things can be enhanced, manipulated, and modified simply by having patterns drawn onto your skin. Yes, ma'am. All right. So, I'm all right, man. How you doing tonight? Good. Excellent. Good to see you. Oh, boy. It is cold out here. All right. Time to turn on the uh, the heat. Let's see. So, um, simply by uh, drawing patterns on your body. Now, this is very interesting. You know, we might imagine that uh, there are going to be familiars uh, that have certain tattoos on their body, and they will be parts of certain breakaway civilizations that are using these patterns and tattoos to not to, one, identify that they belong to one certain faction of the breakaway civilizations, and two, to be able to tap into these enhanced abilities, such as increased bone density and flexibility, bone strength, uh, to muscle strength and enhancement, and all different kinds of things. Even changing the color of your skin to blend in, changing the certain shape of certain things, like your face, to relax and to intensify the tension in muscles, to increase blood flow, to change body temperature, all those things that I mentioned, right? Cognitive abilities, there's something called nootropics, right? One of the more legal forms of that, which is uh, caffeine, right? Which enhance some cognitive abilities. We are not in a world where these things are not possible. And not even in a world where they're not probable because it's happening right now. And it's being weaponized. 
and it will be weaponized against everyone who doesn't figure out how to also protect themselves against it through the ethical hacking of your own genetic, mimetic, and prophetic systems. The fact that you can be an enhanced version of yourself because it's coming. And it's not of the most beneficial presence to those. I appreciate you, man. You going inside? Appreciate you, man. Wow, just got paid. Same thing happened last night. I guess I'll put this with the other one that's in my uh, pocket here. Greetings. How are y'all doing tonight? Excellent. Thank you for asking. All right, IDs. Thank you. I know it's cold outside. I got to step to the door. Let's get inside there quicker. Come on. Did you just say control your breathing? That's exactly how I just warmed my body up, too. A breathing exercise. There you go. All right. All right. So now, uh, here are a few steps that people can start taking. It's actually much more simple, and we've been uh, taught this uh, for a long, long time. But hardly anyone uh, takes this practice. I got to check inside because I got to start charging at the door now. Somebody just gave me money, and that reminds me that I have to start charging. It's 1030. Definitely time to start charging your cover. All right, that is embracing transmutantism, genetic, mimetic, and prophetic engineering part one, I suppose. But the, the follow-up to this is something that we've all known. One of the, the, the main ways is to, to guard the way that you eat. Look at the labels on foods. I'm not going to give any more details about that. That's like really self-explanatory, right? Also, uh, you have to monitor how your thoughts and things like that are affecting your emotions are affecting your body. All of us are different. For example, I've lived a lifetime full of rage and have been able to control the negative effects of it for the most part through what this young lady was telling her friend to do to control her breathing, through breathing exercises, through meditation, through getting good sleep, and so on and so forth, through stretching, through practicing yoga. So, how are you doing tonight? Yes, sir. And then also, there's the practice of whatever spiritual practice that you decide to take upon yourself that helps you to deal with the issues in life. Regardless of whether some crazy person like me laughs at it or ridicules it or is hostile towards it, what works for you in your spiritual practice is the thing that you need to do. So it's your all kinds of nutrition, your spiritual, your psychological, and your physical nutrition. Guard it as if your life depends on it. Because guess what? It does. You've been listening to Hypnoathletics, Exercising Your Mind. Presented by yours truly, 
Hakim Alibokis Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio, Inc. Presented for Physio Meditation, Dream Action Yoga, Kapageta, and Hypnoathletics, Exercising Your Mind Towards Universal Harmony and Spiritual Wisdom Through Healthy Living and Self-Defense in Association with Unique Equilibrium. Stay well. Black Tarot, an Ancestral Awakening Guidebook. Black Tarot, an Ancestral Awakening Guidebook. You're listening to World Reading Club, presented by Hakim Alibokis Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio, Inc., presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us from The Black Tarot, an ancient awakening guidebook. It was written by Niyasha or Nayasha Williams and illustrated by Kimishka Naidu. Welcome, Cicely. Of course, you won't be able to see the, uh, the illustrations here, but I'm going to go ahead and open this, crack this open here. Written by Niyasha or Nayasha Williams and illustrated by Kimishka Naidu. Let's see. All right. This is interesting. This is copyright 2022 by Niyasha Williams, and it says it's by the Hatchet Book Group. It says Hatchet Book Group supports the right to free expression and the value of copyright. The purpose of copyright is to encourage writers and artists to produce the creative works that enrich our culture. The scanning, uploading, and distribution of this book without permission is a theft of the author's intellectual property. Eh. If you would like permission to use material from the book other than for review purposes, please contact permissions at hbgusa.com. Thank you for your support of the author's rights. There you go. RP Studio Hatchet Book Group. All right. Review. Uh, we're going to take a look at this here. Uh, she says, for my ancestors and spirit guides who are continuously paving the way, to my soulmate Keegan, who loves me through all my cycles, to Lucia, thank you for your eye and passion, for all unseen by the naked eye. Hmm. All right. Let's take a look a little bit further in this book. I'll turn some pages. Here's the contents in review. Deck story one. Next we have uh, getting start, understanding the tarot, understanding tarot, that's on three. Getting started, what to ask and when to pull and how. Black tarot deck and guidebook. Symbolism in the deck, suits alignment in yin, in yang, in yin, aligning, affirmations. And we have spreads. We have one card tarot, two card, three, four, five card, 
card tarot spreads, specialty tarot spreads, um, preparing for reading, gather your deck, set the mood, set intention, shuffle the cards, position the cards, close the reading. I have card meanings, uh, major arcana, family court cards, and minor arcana. And there's an about the author and about the illustrator. All right. Deck story. All right, so this is an intriguing book here to review. When I was looking at it, the reason why I wanted to get it, see, certain things stick out to me, and I wouldn't normally even get something that is, is like ethnocentric of, of any kind um, just because of that. But I am very much in favor of things that I'm interested in, and this book on the back cover, or of the, at least of the keepsake box that it comes in, um, I saw two characters that looked like they were playing capoeira on the beach during a sunset. One of them's doing a handstand and one's jumping in the air. So I'm pretty sure that's exactly what it is. There's nothing else. And they're wearing white pants and no shirts, just like they would in, in capoeira. And they're at the beach, which indicates, you know, uh, where capoeira originated in Brazil, at least, near the ocean in Bahia, in northeastern Brazil. So... So this, would, this is interesting here to see that. So Deck Story is here on page one. It says, uh, I have been interested in tarot, astrology, and magic from the moment I was able to read chapter books. Harry Potter, Ella Enchanted, and Artemis Fowl were favorites on my bookshelf. I've always dreamed of being a mermaid, so it's no surprise that water is my element. I like to believe that my ancestors, who were ripped from their homeland and shackled as cargo to a boat, who didn't make it ashore, transformed in their final breath to merfolk, gaining the power of the very element that swallowed them whole. Well, that's both sad and, uh, well, it's just sad. I mean, she's saying she hopes that they, you know, became merfolk, but that's like, it's very fantasy prone. Like it's, it's sort of like what I do with a lot of things. This transform uh, the dark things into something else. All right, so that's just a little bit from the deck story. Let's review a little more. She has a section here called Understanding Tarot. Getting started. There are times when we want a sign, answer, or message from the divine in a form that is clear to read. This is where divination comes in. Divination is the use of various tools through ritual to connect with superior beings. It is a skill that takes practice and it is recommended to find the type that works for you. Hmm. So, in her definition of divination, she says divination is the use of various tools through ritual to connect with superior beings. Hmm. Well, then that means that all of you who've tuned in here... <laughs> Are practicing divination. <laughs> oh God! Oh, please stop. Oh boy. Types of divination include tarot, automatic writing, runes, <clears throat> tea leaf pendulum, tea leaf reading pendulum, uh, osteomancy or osteomancy. Oh, osteo. I thought it was an. Um, Thought it was an A. Osteomancy makes sense. Bone reading, lithomancy, stone reading, scrying, numerology. 
So the, which ones do I practice? Well, I've been practicing tarot, been for, I've been using the demon tarot for a while. Um, let's see, I use runes, been using those for over 10 years as well. And um, also numerology. So those are my, my three. It's tarot, numerology, and runes. And let's go on here. Let's see. So the guides send signs. I'm skipping over a lot of this. This is just a review. The guides send signs to let us know of their presence. Signs can present in the form of feathers, numbers, seeing the same numbers regularly, clouds, scents, pleasant scents whose source you cannot identify, music, being called to the same song or hearing the same song repeatedly, rainbows, temperature changes, feeling cooler or warmer but not in an unpleasant way, voices, a positive or parental voice in your mind, advertisements such as billboards, a quote, word, or phrase, light, Sparks, a flash of light shimmering without a source. Dreams, which act as windows to the soul and mind. When dreaming, you are more receptive to receiving divine messages. Babies and pets, they are of pure intent and are often able to see more than meets basic sight. Physical sensations, a light touch on your hand or arm, tingling on your crown. Animals, through unexpected interactions, as each animal has a specific message or meaning. Oh, yeah, there was a black crow that came and uh, landed on a fence, a black fence, next to me while I was speaking on a wisdom talk a while ago. So that's good. That's actually when I decided to um, to really go full full into supervillain and kill the, the stupid uh, perception the ridiculous perception that people ha have of me. I remember it was at that moment and many others that just kept on pushing and pushing forward back. All right, what to ask? Well, it just says anything and everything. A question or thought that weighs on your heart as a matter for your guides. I call on them about business decisions, conflicts, and relationships. Next step to take, even whether a purchase or investment is a good idea. All right. Going on next. When to pull and how. Let's see. Practice makes perfect. A card a day is a great start. Pull when you have a question or decision weighing on you. When I indulge in divination, I assure, my, I assure myself I am in a space with no distractions. With phone silence, I open the window and use a clean, cleansing tool such as tobacco or spiritual waters to clear energy in the space, allowing for clear messages and an overall better reading. Before engaging with any divination tool, I state my intent out loud. Okay, so a note on that. A lot of people tend to do this and think that it's absolutely necessary, but it's not. Um, they, they, she says, uh, and when I say she, it's the author... Um, Niasha Williams, which I'm actually, I'm going to update this, uh, this mm, title here. I put her name, forgot to do that. Niasha Williams. And so um, direct experience I have with this not being necessary is um, very shortly after I graduated from school for clinical hypnosis, um, I, I began uh, hypnotizing people at the front desk of a very busy gym called Bodies in Motion in Encino, California on Ventura Boulevard. I think now it's actually a um, an equinox or something like that. I'm not sure. But my friends, Renee Moran, who is now an actor um, in Hollywood, and uh, um, various other people,
um, gosh, uh, Kevin Green who used to stop by there once in a while. Um, yeah, uh, it's and it was noisy. And I realized that first, um, practicing hypnosis wasn't necessarily nece- necessary to have quiet and all those other rituals behind it, and as well as um, how often I practice divination in noisy environments and on the go and on the road without all of those things being necessary. Um, I'm also capable of sleeping in extreme temperatures and with a lot of noise as well, even though I tend to not like noise. So I have a tendency to be able to put everything into the background. So I think that if I can do that, other people can too. So it's not the most necessary thing ever. But most people like to do that and have the convenience of doing that. All right, the next thing in the book, it says Black Tarot Deck and Guidebook. Um, Symbolism in the deck. Let's see, water. The cure for anything is water, sweat, tears, or the sea. 71% of the Earth's surface is covered by water, and the human body is made up of approximately 60% water. Actually, I think the number is much higher than that. Water carries and gives life. Nothing can exist without water. Well, I don't know about nothing. Its healing properties have been acknowledged by... BIPOCs, B-I-P-O-C-S, in their traditional practices and ways of life long before science could prove water's restoration properly. What the hell is a BIPOC? Where, where, where did that definition come in? Hold on, let me look at the table of contents. Here, why would you drop a word like that? Does anybody know what the fuck that means? Why would you drop a word like that in the beginning and not give a definition for it? Did I miss something? I mean, I know I did skip over um, a lot of stuff in here. But what the hell? Uh, there's no nothing in the table of contents that uh, sp- specifically defines BIPOC. B I O. Yep, I was dead wrong. Let me go back. It's the deck story. I see. I, I skipped over the beginning. What to say? Um, see, but wait. Where's BIPOC? Is it still not? Hold on. Uh, let me look through here. I don't think it. It's defined. It's in the before here. I have been learning to embrace traditional practices that were taken from BIPOC communities, okay, tribes and groups, da 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 Established by demonized through colonization media, white supremacy under the guise of Christianity. Wow, that's hard. Um, you know, she, she straight up says that uh, I'm, I'm going to read this because it's, um, it's disturbing. So she basically says um Many of our long-established spiritual practices have been demonized through colonization, the media, Hollywood, white supremacy, and under the guise of Christianity. Uh, what's up, uh, Cicely? BIPOC stands for Black, Indigenous, and People of Color. Oh. Well, she didn't put that in the book. She just assumes that the people pick up the Black Tower are going to fucking know what that means. That's rude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of what it's for. I just popped up to say that I'm going to hop back down and listen. All right. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. By the way, everyone, I'm the co-host for uh, Cicely Marie Goose over on Colin, where she has a show. What's the show? Let's plug your show. What's your show called over there? Astrology with Cicely. And I'm on every day at five. And uh, what was the subject of today? Astrological and technology. So we dove into the culture of how astrology promulgated from the beginning to end. We had a couple of readings about jokes from the 1600s based on astrology. 
names from Instagram and astrology, and as well as the Dark Mission book, where they oh, yes, use, where they used um, each yeah, landing was under an astrological sign within 19.5 degrees. Yep, pretty cool stuff. So yeah, stop by and call in. Back here. I'm gonna hop back down. Every day. What? Uh, what? What? What, and what number was this we did today? Six, seven? So a week in a row? Six, mm-hmm. right? So we got tomorrow will be one week. Yep. All right, awesome. Thank you. Appreciate nice you. Having. All right, please, if you if you hear me stumbling over something else, please help out. No problem. All right. Okay, so let's take a look here. That was Cicely Marie Goose, uh, the host of Astrology with Cicely, over on Call-In every day at 5. We're on our sixth day. Tomorrow will be day number 7. All right. So, BIPOC, that's what it is. But I want to... Yo, she's straight up this woman in this book. Okay. She must... She's one of those... Uh, she's pretty radical. All right. So, here we go. Water. Um, BIPOC, so black indigenous people of color, I guess. Okay, that's what that was. All right, water. Water is often an essential part of spiritual enlightenment. It is believed that water can hold memories created by sound, light, and human intention. All right, so that's one symbolism in the deck. Moon. <clears throat> the moon has the power to move the tides, and that power extends to us if we, if only we tap into its energy. The moon embodies mighty feminine energy. It symbolizes birth, death, rebirth, renewal, wisdom intuition and spirituality you know i find that fascinating that every time i have encountered in significant ways of my life the word wisdom it's always connected to women and feminine energy for example the very first significant use of wisdom in my life that i know of that that's directly connected to me was when back in 1999 i created an acronym for a program called wisdom in south miami actually in coral gables it was in direct response to the universities who have a, that have a program called um, uh, SART, S-A-R-T, which is Sexual Assault Response Team. And I thought that's great to help people, of course, because it happens and you can't stop all of it, unfortunately. But it was a response team. So for me, I wanted to do something uh, proactive. And so I started Created Wisdom, which stands for Women's Integrated Self-Defense Over Men very specifically because men are the biggest perpetrators of crimes against women, period. So wisdom, that was the first point in my life where that word came up directly connected to women. At the time, I didn't know, and I didn't read anything like this before, but that was the first one. Number two is the school that I'm working on my Ph.D. from, which I have my uh, bachelor's and master's from, is called Wisdom of the Heart Church, which, which started and founded um, back in 2004, I think, uh, it's called the University of Metaphysical Sciences, and it's Wisdom of the Heart Church, which was founded by Christine Brees. So another woman and the word wisdom. And then, of course, the Wisdom app founded by Dayo Akin Renate. Um, and uh, so, and that's three. One, two, three. And I think that's interesting, of course, right here in the book, it just popped out to my head that uh, she said, the moon embodies mighty feminine energy. It symbolizes birth, death, rebirth, renewal, wisdom, intuition, and spirituality. I know, that's far-reaching, right? I'm just seeing patterns and things everywhere, but I, I don't I don't know. <clears throat> I don't know. Also, in my uh, Chinese astrology, 
um, my uh, sign in Chinese astrology is a snake, the serpent, uh, and I'm a fire snake. And of course, the snake, one of the, the attributes of it is wisdom and intellect. And uh, connected in the Bible, uh, the serpent tempted Eve. I don't know, is that a loose connection? Is that, is that reaching too far again? I don't know. Maybe it is. Um, because he gave her the fruit of knowledge, right? The fruit of the tree of knowledge. So wisdom, knowledge, let's see. The light of the moon is a reflection of the sun's light, okay? Um, moon phases. So, so the, it has the moon phases in here, new moon. During this phase, the moon is positioned between the earth and the sun, and it cannot be seen from earth. The new moon phase signifies new beginnings. Next, waxing crescent moon. During this phase, the moon has increased in size, but is not half full yet. There is growth and the hope of more to come. First quarter moon. This phase, also known as the half moon, is the time of focus, determination, strength, decision-making, and commitment to action. And then the waxing gibbous moon is, uh, during this phase of the moon, is more than half full. The waxing gibbous moon phase signifies refinement. I'm not reading all the descriptions here. I'm doing a review here in order to comply with the copyright notice in the beginning of the book. So I'm just doing some review. Um, full moon. During this phase, the sun, moon, and earth are all aligned, similar to their positions during the new moon phase. But the moon is fully illumined, being on the opposite side of the earth from the sun. Oh, and I'd like to also um, point out, too, speaking of that, of books and reading, um, Katya Davidova, or Davidova, I'm going to ask her again. I've talked to her several times now on the phone. And, uh, and did an interview with her on, on uh, Clubhouse and still have not asked her exactly how to pronounce her name. Or maybe I did and I just forgot. But um, she's going to be joining Wisdom at some point in time, probably the end of February. She's very, very meticulous about and very specific about her schedule, which I think is awesome. Um, and all the things. Like, I mean, when, when we scheduled a call for the 11th, which was two days ago, um, and she said that it was going to be, um, 3.30 Pacific time. I mean, she called me at exactly 3.30. Like, it's, it was, it's amazing. She's like a, she's like a clock herself. But, uh, but I do have permission from her to read every and anything from her book. But I'm going to wait to do most of that um, until she gets onto Wisdom and we can start reading her book together. And she can come up and start making some commentary and sharing. And if you'd like... It's the first book that I started with World Reading Club. It's one of the inspirations for World Reading Club um, called Joy in Plain Sight by Katya Davidova. Um, you should really check it out. Um, it's inspired by her book. It's inspired by Flora Elizabeth Carrasco and um, by my necessity to uh, put a little bit of joy in my life because of my dark, black, evil, soulless being that is as cold as the darkest caves on the, the planet or dead rock that is Pluto. So, continuing, spreads. One card uh, tarot spreads. Okay, good, so she's got one card tarot spreads and then a bunch of questions about that. Two card tarot spreads all the way up to five card tarot spreads and then there's something called specialty tarot spreads in the book and there's three different examples of that. Wow, the specialty tarot spreads, one of them has six, one of them has 10 and another one has 12 cards. It's interesting. All right, then she has a section here called Preparing for Reading. Um, gather your deck. There are tons of decks to choose from, all with different energy and vibes based on the creator. 
choosing a deck with artwork that resonates with you is essential. That's why my very first tarot deck actually was called the Demon Tarot. And it doesn't mean what you guys think it does, although that's the, what I was going for because even way back then I was preparing for my super villain life. Uh, first it began with, uh, that deck and many other things. Also the fact that I wear almost all black all the time. And, uh, you know, various other things. But the Demon Tarot, you should look it up, by Ariana. Um, what's her last name, Ariana? Oh, it'll come to me. But anyway, you can look it up, the Demon Tarot. It's not what you think it is because uh, they, they list Shiva in that book as a demon. Mighty Lord Shiva from Hindu uh, mythology. And, uh, in fact, they name a lot of creatures in there as demons that are simply not uh, beings that Christianity recognizes. So... And then it says to set the mood. So preparation for reading, gather your deck and set the mood. I'm going to be using uh, this book, the Black Tarot, and also um, the Demon Tarot. But I've already perfected using the Demon Tarot, so now I'm going to learn how to use the Black Tarot. And the Black Tarot, let's see. It says, let the spirits guide you. Awaken ancestral ties and connect to the divine with Black Tarot, a deluxe tarot deck and guidebook set from author Niasha or Niasha Williams, featuring and celebrating exclusively black figures and imagery. This deluxe set includes 78 full-color tarot cards, a 144-page full-color illustrated guidebook, and a keepsake box, and illustrated by Kimishka Naidu. Kimishka Naidu. All right. It is really beautiful. The box is a d dark purple. I don't know what you would call that. It's really, it's like a plum, like a dark plum color. It's really, really nice with um, golden hues and tones and nice earth tones. It's fascinating. The artwork really is beautiful in this whole book. And, and again, the reason why I got it wasn't even because of the whole black tarot thing. Like, I would get black tarot if black tarot meant like, you know, like evil or anathema or against the grain. But I saw that two, one card on it that was featured on the back of the box, on the keepsake box, has two figures playing capoeira. And I've been practicing capoeira for 30 years. So I thought that this was, um, it was really great. I thought I, I would just, I just wanted to get it because of that. For real. Imagine the things that I'm inspired, that inspire me to get things done. Just dangle some capoeira in front of me, right? All right. Set intention is the next thing. Shuffle the cards and position the cards and then close the reading. Uh, one note here, she says, Tarot and all divination can be an excellent way to bring light to things, bring to light things we might be pushing under the rug or to receive help on an issue when we can't see the complete picture. With practice and time, you will get better and better at reading and interpreting the meanings and messages. All right. Card meanings. There's a whole section here. Card meanings. And it has the major arcana, the fool, the magician, the high priestess. I'm not... Yeah, let's check this out. The Fool, Flower, Daisy, Element, Air, Chakra, Crown, In Yang, Innocence, Adventure, A Leap of Faith, Purity, In, I'm sorry, In Yang, Innocence, Adventure, A Leap of Faith, Purity, and that's not all of them. In Yin, Naivety, Lack of Faith or Hope, Risky Behavior. Wow. And it has a section of linings. Spend some time with the moon journal. Cool. I have a moon magic and mindfulness with grace. I have a book, a journal for that, that I've been using every day from Graciela Moore. Um, probably the only journal that I've been able to stick with consistently sim simply because it follows the moon uh, phases and, well, it was produced by Graciela Moore. Why wouldn't you stick with it? Um, let's see. Uh, and then, let's see, I have uh, the magician action, traits, action, power, yes. 
Yeah, cool. Take out card description. Right, so all the cards have traits. Then it has card description. Then it has flower. Uh, wow, flower element. Chakras in yang, in yin, aligning and affirmation. That's pretty cool. Have a high priestess here. We have uh, the empress, the emperor, the hierophant, uh, lovers, the chariot, strength, the hermit, wheel of fortune. And I already went through the whole deck myself. I opened, I pulled it out of the plastic and moved them one by one um, and looked at all the artwork on them. It's beautiful. Justice, the hanged man, death. That's interesting that those two, well, three of them right next to each other. I'm starting to learn some more about tarot. The demon tarot doesn't have this kind of stuff, by the way. It's a completely different book, and I I love it because it was easy to use. But here's what's right three cards in a row that or at least in the book, is justice, the hanged man, and death. <laughs> so the justice will be hanging someone to death. That's, that's what I got from that just now. All right, next one is temperance, the devil, the tower, the star, the moon, the sun. Interesting, they make that distinction. There's a star, that, the moon, and the sun, because the sun technically is a star, right? It is a star, but... Uh, but I guess because ours, is, this is the one that our planet uh, orbits, we call that the sun, right? Judgment, the world. And then uh, it has family court cards is the next one. Oh, so I guess that first one was the major arcana, right? Yes, the major arcana. Now we have the next section is the family court cards. We have mother of wands, father of wands, daughter of wands, son of wands, mother of baskets, father of baskets, daughter of baskets, son of baskets, mother of knives, father of knives, daughter of knives, son of knives, mother of coins, father of coins, daughter of coins, son of coins. Um, And, uh, yeah, son of coins. Wands. We have ace of wands, two of wands, three of wands, four of wands, five of wands, six of wands. I guess it goes all up to ten, right? A ten of wands. And we have baskets. I think baskets is in place of cups, if I can remember from what Cicely Marie Goose is teaching me about the different uh, um, different uh, suits in tarot. So we have ace of baskets, right, all the way up to ten of baskets. And I think the last one might be swords. Oh, no, knives, they call it, knives. So we have the ace of knives, and it looks all the way up to the uh, to the ten of knives. And we have coins, coins, and then two of ace of coins all the way up to the ten of coins, and it has descriptions for all of that. All right, so that uh, it's very cool. So that's a, re- a little review of that, and I'm going to take a little time here. I'm going to give you an about the author. Um, and also tell you something else at the end here that is being done with uh, some divination, the rune casting, that everybody will have access because they're going to be published online uh, as soon as the readings are done for people. I did a reading yesterday with uh, Cicely Marie Goose for our, our call-in comrade, um, Brady Crow. And, uh, and I took a photograph, which I always do when I do readings for myself or other people. I photograph the, the, um, the set um, and the placement of the stones, the rune stones, so I can refer to it later. But now I just decided uh, I'm going to make a, a better use of it to be able to um, at least store it online as long as uh, 
the Internet stays extant. But remember what Slipknot asked the question in their most recent album is, what are you going to do when the Internet's gone? All right, about the author. Niasha Williams is a creator, activist, and author of the children's book, I Affirm Me, the ABCs of inspiration for black kids, and of the self-published children's book, What's the Commotion in the Ocean? Niasha was born in Mountain Time in Aurora, Colorado, and grew up living in the United States and South Africa. She received a bachelor's degree from William Jewell College and a diploma in culinary arts and wine from Prue Leaf Chef's Academy. She has a master's degree in curriculum and instruction with a gifted and talented endorsement from Regent University. Niasha lives in North Glen, Colorado with her husband. She is passionate about real conversations and about feeling at home in the deep end. And she loves gathering, learning, and healing with others through genuine human connection. Niasha pursues social justice, decolonizing work, and creating for her community full-time. Her current projects range from educator-created uh, created anti-racist curriculum development to designing ancestral money for individuals of the African diaspora. You can find her on Instagram at writing to change the narrative and decolonize underscore you. Wow. Okay. She's pretty... Fucking hardcore about that shit. All right. And about the illustrator. Uh, Kimishka Naidu, a multidisciplinary creative from South Africa. She studied motion picture at AFDA, South African School of Motion Picture and Live Performance. After a few years of traveling and working as a video editor and motion graphics artist, she returned to South Africa. Her love of drawing began at a young age. But it wasn't until her late 20s that she pursued illustration. It was during that time that she discovered digital illustration, and the rest is history. Today, her work centers around the unique diversity of South Africans. Kamishka decided to work on this unique project because it aligns with her cause of expanding the representation of BIPOCs, which I just learned is... Uh... Wait, what? <laughs> Hold on. Just learned and forgot that it stands for Black, Indigenous, and People of Color from uh, Cecilia Marie Goose told me that. See how little I know about that stuff. Um, so she decided to work on this unique project because it aligned with her cause of expanding the representation of Black, Indigenous, people of color. Being given the opportunity by Niasha to create something so beautiful and distinctive could not be passed up. All right. Well, it is really beautiful and it is distinctive. It's quite a work of art. Um, it's definitely going to be, I, it looks like to me, uh, a little bit more challenging for me to learn to use it than uh, with the Demon Tarot and uh, Numerology and also the Book of Runes. But I guess it's time for me to take another step forward and out of the familiarity zone that I have so long uh, been uh, pushing and squeezing as much blood out of as I possibly can. So... That is the review of Black Tarot, an ancestral reading guidebook by Niasha Williams. It could be pronounced Niasha, but I think Niasha Williams is going to work for now. And so let the spirits guide you, um, but don't act like they're talking to you. Um, that's it. You've been listening to World Reading Club, presented by Hakeem Alibokas Alexander on Wisdom. Social Audio Inc. presented for World Reading Club in association with Equilibrium. 
This edition's reading focus has come to us from Black Tarot, an ancestral awakening deck and guidebook. Uh, um, yeah, you can. Well, I bought it at uh, Barnes and Nobles because I'm here all the time, and it stuck out to me. You can probably find it somewhere for yourself by looking it up on BarnesandNoble.com. I'm sure you can order it online. It is published by Hatchet Book Group, 1290 Avenue of the Americas, New York, New York, 10104, uh, runningpress.com, and on Instagram at running underscore press. All right. Printed in China, eh? Stay well. Martha Stewart stars in a kill COVID-19 spot for Pfizer. Martha Stewart stars in a kill COVID-19 spot for Pfizer. You're listening to Technical News Reading, presented by Hakeem Alibokis Alexander on Wisdom. Social Audio Inc. Presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us from FiercePharma.com and is titled Martha Stewart Stars in a Kill COVID 19 Spot for Pfizer. It's published under the category of marketing on FiercePharma.com and is published on January 13th, 2023 at 9 a.m., that's today, by Sharon Clark Coey. Other categories include COVID-19, Pfizer, BioNTech, and DTC Advertising. Looks like we have a screenshot of Martha Stewart in this commercial with a caption that reads... Martha Stewart's unbranded ads for Pfizer uses humor to convince people to get their COVID-19 booster shot. The image is credited to Pfizer and iSpot.tv. Pfizer's new COVID-19 booster ad starring Martha Stewart is both rather odd and strangely compelling to watch in a definitive departure from its previous conservative vaccine commercials. The 30-second spot, Unwelcome Guests, features Stuart in her beautifully perfect kitchen, calmly sharpening a massive samurai sword. As sparks fly, she says, You know that unwelcome guest everyone wishes would leave already? That's COVID-19. She expands on how the new updated Pfizer... This is oddly worded here. I think this is a typo. But I'm going to read it through anyway first and then see if I can fix this. She expands on how the new updated updated Pfizer, which shot protects... Okay, yeah, this just... um, It's just punctuation is what the problem is. Okay. Expands on how the new updated Pfizer, which shot protects against the so-called Omicron variant. Hmm. No. Yeah, it's, I just need to take out the word which. W-H-I-C-H. That's what the problem is. All right, let's go that one more time. She expands on how the new updated Pfizer shot protects against the so-called Omicron variant. 
Good Lord. FiercePharma.com continues. She then effortlessly lops off the top of a poor, unsuspecting pineapple and drops it into the garbage. Stewart then slips her shirt down her shoulder, flashes a blue bandage, and asks in her best thirst trap voice, Got it? Then the words, Got Booster, pop up on the screen in almost the exact same font as Goodbye Silverstein and Partners 1993 California Milk Processor Board Got Milk Ads. It's a trip. The whole vibe of the spot is Kill Bill meets Top Chef. Stewart is both charming and vaguely menacing throughout. Is the threat aimed at anti-vaxxers? Luckily, the direction is clean and beautiful, so all these disparate themes somehow work, at least entertainment-wise. As an octogenarian, Stewart who somehow barely looks over 30 in the spot, is the right target for pushing the booster. How it will resonate is anyone's guess, but Stewart has had a public image makeover in the last few years post-insider training conviction, palling around with rapper Snoop Dogg, the aforementioned thirst traps, and just generally mocking her own formerly perfect image. Still, the goal of the spot which is unbranded other than a Pfizer-BioNTech name flash at the end, is to get folks boosted. So it sends the viewer to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's vaccines.gov site. Pfizer was a big name during the pandemic with its COVID-19 vaccine Comenarty, as well as the antiviral Paxlovid, and clearly hopes to continue that success as the panic dies down. You've been listening to Technical News Reading, presented by yours truly, Hakim Ali Bokas Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us from FiercePharma.com and is titled... Martha Stewart stars in a kill COVID-19 spot for Pfizer. It was published under the category of marketing and was published on January 13th, 2023 at 9am. That's today by Sharon Clark Coey. You can read this article for yourself by visiting fiercepharma.com. That's F-I-E-R-C-E-P-H-A-R-M-A.com, fiercepharma.com. And learn more for yourself. NASA, DOD, seek universities to develop CubeSats for launch. NASA and DOD seek universities to develop CubeSats for launch. You're listening to Technical News Reading, presented by Hakeem Alibokas Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us from 
Nassau TV on Nassau.gov. Under the categories of Nassau Kennedy at Nassau Kennedy Space Flight Center, published on January 12th, 2023. As of the time of this reading, that's yesterday. Our first image looks like a small CubeSat in someone's hand with a black glove on. And the caption to start us off here reads, The Advanced Electrical Bus, ALBUS, mission is a technology demonstration of resettable shape memory alloy, SMA, mechanisms for deployable solar arrays and a pathfinder for high-power density CubeSats. The mission has two primary objectives. The first is to demonstrate the functionality of the novel SMA, activated solar array mechanisms, in the on-orbit environment. The second objective is to assess the system level ability to change a high-capacity battery, distribute 100 watts of electrical power, and thermally control the 3U CubeSat system. Performance from the mission will be used to mature the SMA mechanism designs for CubeSat applications and plan for future high-power density CubeSat missions. Credits, NASA, Corey Houston. NASA's CubeSat Launch Initiative, CSLI, is collaborating with the U.S. Air Force and U.S. Space Force to solicit applicants for a set of hands-on learning engagements that will help higher education institutions, faculty, and students elevate efforts to build small satellites and enhance the potential to be selected for flight opportunities. Teams selected for the University Nanosatellite Program, UNP Mission, Concept 1, 2023 Summer Series, will receive systems engineering training that prepares students for the industrial workforce while developing small satellite expertise at U.S. universities. The program, which runs from May through August 2023, also enhances students' potential to be selected for flights to space as part of NASA's CSLI in November 2023 and the full U.S. Air Force UNP in 2024. The program allows faculty and students to form teams without draining university resources and includes travel funding for kickoff, final event, and any in-person reviews, among other benefits. All U.S. colleges and universities are eligible. Teams at minority-serving institutions and historically black colleges and universities are strongly encouraged to apply for the mission for the Mission Concepts 1 2023 Summer Series in accordance with the criteria in the Request for Proposal. The deadline to apply is February 3rd, 2023. 
NASA's collaboration with the U.S. Air Force and U.S. Space Force helps broaden access to space and strengthen the capabilities and knowledge of higher education institutions, faculty, and students. Last updated January 12, 2023, editor Danielle Semsprot. Semsprot. U.S. Uh, Kennedy Space Center. You've been listening to Technical News Reading, presented by Hakim Alebokis Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., presented World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us from NASA TV at nasa.gov. You can read this article and dive into its related links and find out more. Or your students or university can get involved by visiting nasa.gov, that's N-A-S-A dot G-O-V, and searching for universities to develop CubeSats. Gardening may help reduce cancer risk. Gardening may help reduce cancer risk. You're listening to Technical News Reading, presented by Hakim Alibokis Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us from Inside Precision Medicine and is titled Gardening may help reduce cancer risk. It was published on January 11, 2023, under the categories of news and features, oncology. Opening featured image is of a few people gardening. There is no caption, but it's credited to Fang Xiaonuo from Getty Images. Results of a randomized control trial show that taking part in a community gardening scheme may indirectly reduce a person's cancer risk by boosting fiber intake, increasing physical activity, and decreasing stress and anxiety, all of which have been associated with the disease. Connecting people to gardens, a nature-based and socially supported local activity in the neighborhood, can help people make the necessary changes to support active and healthy living, reduce stress and anxiety, all important ingredients for preventing disease and promoting health. Jill Litt, a professor in the Department of Environmental Studies at the University of Colorado Boulder, told Inside Precision Medicine. Litt and her team, funded by the American Cancer Society, carried out the first ever randomized controlled trial of community gardening between 2017 and 2019. In all, 291 non-gardening participants took part in the study. They were all on community gardening waiting lists in Denver and Aurora and had an average age of 42 years. Just over a third were Hispanic, and more than half came from low-income households. In many 
or in May of each recruitment wave after the last spring frost, half of the participants were assigned to a community gardening group and half to a control group that was asked to wait a year before they started gardening. Those in the gardening group received a free community gardening plot, some seeds and seedlings, and an introductory gardening course through the nonprofit Denver Urban Gardens and a study partner. Participants in both groups completed surveys on nutritional intake and mental health, underwent body measurements, and wore activity monitors during spring, autumn, and winter. Lit and co-authors report in The Lancet Planet Health that by autumn, individuals in the gardening group were eating, on average, 1.4 grams more fiber per day than those in the control group, an increase of about 7%. The estimated mean fiber intake for U.S. adults is 15.9 grams per day, which is much lower than the recommended intake of at least 25 to 38 grams per day, the investigators report. The increase, the increase of 1.4 grams was not far off the 2.0 gram increase observed in a study looking at the pooled effect of interventions to promote healthy diet on the consumption of dietary fiber. An increase of one gram of fiber can have a large, can have large positive effects on health, said co-author James Herbert, director of University of South Carolina's Cancer Prevention and Control Program. And Litt noted that fiber exerts a profound effect on inflammatory and immune responses, which is why it is important from a disease prevention and health promotion perspective. She added, it is associated with phytochemicals found in fresh foods such as vegetables and fruits that are themselves universally anti-inflammatory. Increasing any amount of fiber puts one on a path to reduced inflammation and reduced risk of metabolic dysregulation, which has implications for many chronic diseases. However, the study was not specifically focused on nutrition, and the investigators did not give out any health advice. We gave people the tools and plants they needed to get started. I imagine with more time in the garden, fiber intake will increase as people learn how to garden and learn what to do with the produce they grow, Lit remarked. The gardening group also increased their moderate to vigorous physical activity levels by nearly six minutes per day, or 42 minutes per week, relative to the control group. Most people do not meet national and international guidelines for active living. Increasing moderate to vigorous activity by 42 minutes represents almost 30% of the recommendation of 150 minutes of this type of physical activity, said Litt. She also pointed out that physical inactivity is an important risk factor for chronic disease, including cancer. Getting people to move more is important for physical and mental health because it can reduce inflammation, improve immune system function, improve metabolism, and prevent obesity or control body weight. It also can prevent high blood levels of insulin, which can increase risk factors of the breast and colon. Finally, the researchers observed that participants in the gardening group reported greater reductions than the control group in both perceived stress and anxiety between spring and autumn, with the level of reduction greatest among participants who were more stressed or anxious at baseline. Importantly, 
The study showed that being new to gardening is not a barrier to being successful and that community gardens can be a solution for populations from diverse backgrounds and circumstances as the effects did not differ by race, ethnicity, age, or sex. Lit, who is also a researcher with the Barcelona Institute for Global Health, believes her findings highlight the importance of improving access to and interest in initiatives like community gardening. <clears throat> Gardens should be recognized as a primary and permanent natural space similar to playgrounds, public plazas, and other aspects of the social infrastructure of communities, she said. This can be accomplished through planning tools such as, a, as master and neighborhood plans, zoning ordinances, long-term long land leases, and collaboration with local utilities like public water and wastewater entities to ensure access to a reliable water, supply of water during the growing season. Additionally, local and state health departments can serve as important partners to ensure the soil is safe and managed appropriately. Finally, engaging local and regional foundations is critical to ensure there are resources available to support garden organizations to build, retrofit, and maintain gardens over time. You've been listening to Technical News Reading, presented by Hakim Alibokis Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus has come to us from InsidePrecisionMedicine.com, Inside Precision Medicine, and was published on January 11th, 2023. It's published on the topics of oncology and news and features. You can read it for yourself and others like it by visiting InsidePrecisionMedicine.com. That's I-N-S-I-D-E-P-R-E-C-I-S-I-O-N-M-E-D-I-C-I-N-E dot C-O-M, InsidePrecisionMedicine.com. A drone to protect bats from wind turbines. A drone to protect bats from wind turbines. You're listening to Technical News Reading, presented by Hakeem Lebokis Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us from techbriefs.com and is titled, A Drone to Protect Bats from Wind Turbines. It was published under the categories of defense, design, green design and manufacturing, motion control, photonics, optics, RF and microwave electronics, and unmanned systems on January 12th, 2023. That was yesterday as of this reading. A study has perhaps solved the wind turbine issue of causing harm to airborne creatures, bats in particular. And first, right off, right off the bat, <laughs> we have a, an image of a drone, and the caption reads, The deterrent, A, bottom view, schematic depiction. The elements are connected to plastic struts and fascinated to the drone's landing gear. 
Light and sound beams are illustrated for demonstration and are not indicative of actual transmission range. B, front view of the deterrent. And the image is uh, credited to, what is this? ZSLpublications.onlinelibrary.wiley.com. All right, that's kind of long. All right. According to Tel Aviv University and University of Haifa researchers, wind turbines around the world kill millions of bats and other animals annually who fly into their blades. The solution is a drone-mounted technology that transmits a combination of ultrasonic signals and light. This deters the bats, forcing them to fly at a higher altitude, allowing the turbines to operate continuously. Wind turbines are, of course, an excellent source of renewable energy, but their method of operation leaves myriad biological challenges, said University of Haifa's Professor Uval Werber, study lead. Previously, the only way to thwart bat deaths was to cease turbine activity whenever they're active. That, obviously, reduces turbine efficiency. The drone, though, is in constant motion and transmits a combination of visual and acoustic signals designed to warn bats of danger, he added. The trick is that when signals are stationary and constant, animals tend to ignore them. The study was conducted in the bat hotbed of Hula Valley, Israel. The team operated the drone at a height of 100 meters, which is 0 0.06 miles, or six-tenth of a mile the height of the center of the average wind turbine, and back and forth along a path of about 100 meters. Radar and LIDAR devices were used to track the bat's activity, and acoustic recordings of in-flight bats, using receivers placed at three different heights, 1 meter, 150 meters, 0 0.09 or 9 tenths of a mile, and 300 meters, 19, 19 hundredths of a mile, on elevated receivers by a blimp, were implemented. Werber noted that the study was the world's first to combine the technologies to combine the technologies, radar, lidar, and high altitude acoustic recorders to track bats. The researchers then compared the bats' normal activity with their activity in the presence of the deterrent carrying drone, and the results showed that the device served its purpose. The drone's presence decreased bat activity underneath it by about 40% at a distance of about 400 meters, which is 25 hundredths of a mile, or 25, which is a one-fourth of a mile, by 0.25 miles. However, their activity increased above the drone's altitude of 100 meters, up about 800 meters, half a mile. Werber said that the results show the device is effective in repelling bats from its environment. The creatures sense the emitted sights and sounds and avoid the blades as planned. And we have a, an image of the black field and a bat. Looks like it's flying in the night. The caption reads, a bat who would certainly benefit from this new technology. <laughs> yes, he would, wouldn't he? Um, image, Jens Reidel. Here is a Tech Briefs interview with Werber, edited for clarity and length. Tech Briefs. What inspired your research? Werber. 
Wind turbines are considered one of the main man-related factors responsible for bat fatalities. The gravity of the situation concerning the wind power industry and bats inspired us. We chose to try and take advantage of Israeli development of this industry and the Ministry of Energy's interest in the subject to try and find a solution for this problem. Tech briefs. Why just bats? What about other flying creatures? Werber. Bats were drastically overlooked by the industry until not very long ago. While there was soon noticed that turbines are lethal to birds, it took much longer for the effect on bats to become apparent. This caused the industry to develop in bat-sensitive regions and adopt policies and protocols that are harmful for bats. Bats are ecologically sensitive. They reproduce slowly and rely on senses that are susceptible to the negative effects of wind turbines. Our solution can potentially prove useful for other flying animals with some adjustments, but it is currently aimed at alleviating the stress of bat populations, which are being seriously harmed. Tech briefs. What were the biggest technical challenges you faced? Werber. The main technical challenge was getting the deterring signal to a relevant height without using the structure of the turbine. A second major challenge was finding a way to stop the phenomenon of habituation when animals get used to repetitive stimuli and stop being deterred. The use of drones came a long way in helping assess and overcome both of these major challenges. Tech briefs. Can you explain in simple terms how the technology works? Werber. The deterrent uses movement, sound, and light, which together produce an intricate pulsating disturbance in the airspace. The light-emitting element is made of four full-spectrum square COB LED panels, 50 watts each, 400 to 780 nanometers, which is 6,800 to 6,800K, connected to an onboard controller that activates them intermittently, creating a bright white flashing dynamic stimulus visible to a human eye up to about 200 meters away. The sound emitting element is made of four piezoelectric speakers that broadcast linear chirps sweeping between 15 to 80 kilohertz at about 100 decibels SPL RE one meter at all frequencies connected to a separate controller. The speakers produced identical chirps with a short phase delay to increase randomization. There are some related articles. Should I read them? Let's see. From aircraft wings to wind turbine blades, NASA software comes back to Earth with green energy applications. Q&A, reinventing offshore wind turbines, and bats inspire detectors to help prevent oil and gas pipe leaks. Techbriefs.com continues. The wide, ra the wide spectrum of both radio, or the wide range of both audio and visual stimuli aims to account for a wide perspective perceptive range hmm, let's start that again the wide spectrum of both audio and visual stimuli aimed to account for a wide perceptive range across bat taxa aiming to stimulate as many species as possible over a roughly spherical volume of transmission up to a few hundred meters away from the deterrent the movement of the drone along with the randomization of the auditory and visual signals reduced repetitiveness to a minimum tech briefs What's the next step with regards to your research slash testing? Werber. The first would be to test the device around wind turbines and assess the effect in realistic circumstances.
Based on these, we would next test possibilities of autonomous operation toward automatic implementation of the device. Tech briefs. Do you have any advice for engineers aiming to bring their ideas to market? Werber. If you are working on wildlife-related ideas, you should thoroughly get to know your animal and study it in depth. You might find both wanted and unwanted surprises. Tech briefs. Anything else you'd like to add? Werber. Radar was a major tool in the process of studying the effect in this experiment. Radar ecology is a fast-developing field in which scientists study aerial wildlife using radar technologies. Radar ecology will play a major role in future human development as we go higher with energy production, transportation, etc. You've been listening to Technical News Reading, presented by Hakim Alibokis Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus has come to us from techbriefs.com. It was published on January 12th, 2023, that was yesterday, under the categories of defense design, green design and manufacturing, motion control, photonics slash optics, RF and microwave electronics, and unmanned systems. You can read this article or others like it by exploring techbriefs.com. That's T-E-C-H-B-R-I-E-F-S dot C-O-M, techbriefs.com. Corpus Colossum found to switch off right hemisphere during speech. Corpus Colossum found to switch off right hemisphere during speech. You're listening to Technical News Reading, presented by Hakim Alibokas Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us from NeuroscienceNews.com and is titled Corpus Colossum found to switch off right hemisphere during speech. It was published under the categories of neuroscience and open neuroscience articles on January 13th, 2023. That's today. Summary. Study confirms the role the Corpus Colossum plays in language lateralization. Source. HSE. A study by the HSE Center for Language and Brain has confirmed the role of the corpus callosum in language lateralization, the distribution of language processing functions between the brain's hemispheres. The authors came up with an innovative language task for their study subjects and applied advanced neuroimaging methods to the data collected. A paper on their findings has been published in PLS, PLOS 1. Functional asymmetry between the two cerebral hemispheres in performing higher level cognitive functions is a major characteristic of the human brain. For example, the left hemisphere plays a leading role in language processing in most people. 
However, between 10% and 15% of the human population also use the right hemisphere to varying degrees for the same task. Traditionally, language lateralization to the right hemisphere was explained by handedness, as it is mainly found in left-handed and ambidextrous, using both hands equally well, individuals. But recent research has demonstrated a genetic difference in the way language is processed by left-handed and ambidextrous people. In addition to this, some right-handed people also involve their right hemisphere in language functions. These findings prompted the scientists to consider alternative explanations in particular, by looking at brain anatomy to find out why language functions can shift to the right hemisphere. Researchers at the HSC Center for Language and Brain hypothesized that language lateralization may have something to do with the anatomy of the corpus callosum, the largest commissural tract in the human brain, connecting the two cerebral hemispheres. The researchers asked 50 study participants to perform a sentence completion task. The subjects were instructed to read aloud a visually presented Russian sentence and to complete it with an appropriate final word, e.g. Teper minister podisvisiet vasno. Now the minister is signing an important... At the same time, the participant's brain activity was recorded using functional magnetic resonance imaging. FMRI. Additionally, the volume of the corpus callosum was measured in each subject. A comparison between the FMRI data and the corpus callosum measurements revealed that the larger the latter's volume, the less lateralization of the language function to the right hemisphere was observed. It can be said that in processing language, the brain tends to use the left hemisphere's resources efficiently to suppress, by means of the corpus callosum, any additional involvement of the right hemisphere. The larger a person's corpus callosum, the less involved their right language hemisphere is in language processing, and vice versa. This finding is consistent with the inhibitory model suggesting that the corpus callosum inhibits the action of one hemisphere while the other is engaged in cognitive tasks. If you're reading on neurosciencenews.com, our featured image here uh, recaps with the caption that says, traditionally, language lateralization to the right hemisphere was explained by handedness, as it is mainly found in left-handed and ambidextrous, using both hands equally well individuals. And the image is in the public domain. Neuroscience News continues. The study's innovative design and use of advanced neuroimaging have made this conclusion possible. Brain lateralization in language processing is usually hard to measure accurately, as typical speech tasks used in earlier studies, e.g. image naming, selecting words that begin with a certain letter, or listening to speech, tend to cause activation only in some parts of the brain responsible for language functions, but not in others. Instead, we developed a unique speech task for fMRI sentence completion, which reliably activates all language areas of the brain says Olga Dragoy, director of the HSC Center for Language and Brain. It is important to add that the authors reconstructed the volume and properties of the corpus callosum from MRI data using an advanced tractography technique, constrained spherical deconvolution, CSD. This is more suitable than traditional diffusion tensor imaging for modeling, 
crossing fibers in the smallest unit of volume, the voxel 3D pixel, and is therefore more reliable. About this language and neuroscience research news. Author Anastasia Lobanova. Source HSC. Contact Anastasia Lobanova from HSC. The image I referenced earlier that is featured here is in the public domain. The original research is under open access and is titled Greater Volumes of a Colossal Subregion Terminating in Posterior Language-Related Areas Predict a Stronger Degree of Language Lateralization, a Tractography Study by Viktor Karpichev and others in PLOS 1. <clears throat> You've been listening to Technical News Reading. Presented by Hakeem Ali Bokas Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc. Presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. NeuroscienceNews.com continues with the abstract from the paper titled Greater Volumes of a Colossal Subregion Terminating in Posterior Language-Related Areas Predict a Stronger Degree of Language Lateralization, a Tractography Study. <laughs> It's so hilarious sometimes how long these titles are for these papers. Neuroscience News continues. Language lateralization is the most intriguing trait of functional asymmetry for cognitive functions. Nowadays, ontogenetic determinants of this trait are largely unknown. But there are efforts to find its anatomical correlates. In particular, a white matter interhemispheric connection the corpus callosum, has been proposed as such. In the present study, we aim to find the association between the degree of language lateralization and metrics of the colossal subregions. We applied a sentence completion fMRI task to measure the degree of language lateralization in a group of healthy participants balanced for handedness. We obtained the volumes and microstructural properties of colossal subregions with two tractography techniques, diffusion tensor imaging, DTI, and constrained spherical deconvolution, CSD. The analysis of DTI-based metrics did not reveal any significant associations with language lateralization. In contrast, CSD-based analysis revealed that the volumes of a colossal subregion terminating in the core posterior language-related areas predict a stronger degree of language lateralization. This finding supports the specific inhibitory model implemented through the colossal fibers projecting into the core posterior language-related areas in the degree of language lateralization with no relevant contribution of other colossal subregions. NeuroscienceNews.com asks that you join our newsletter. Sign up to receive our recent neuroscience headlines and summaries sent to your email once a day, totally free. We hate spam and only use your email to contact you about newsletters. You can cancel your subscription anytime. Neuroscience News posts science research news from labs, universities, hospitals, and news departments around the world. Science articles can cover neuroscience, psychology, AI, robotics, neurology, brain cancer, mental health, machine learning, autism, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, brain research, depression, 
and other topics related to cognitive sciences. You've been listening to Technical News Reading, presented by Hakeem Alebokis Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., presented for World Reading Club in association with Unique Equilibrium. This edition's reading focus has come to us once again from neuroscience.news.com and is titled Corpus Colossum Found to Switch Off Right Hemisphere During Speech. You can read more for yourself on neuroscience.news.com. It was published on January 13th, 2023. That's today under the categories of neuroscience and open neuroscience articles. Placebo reduces feelings of guilt. Placebo reduces feelings of guilt. You're listening to Technical News Reading, presented by Hakeem Alibokis Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us from neurosciencenews.com and is titled, Placebo Reduces Feelings of Guilt. It is published under the categories of neuroscience, open neuroscience articles, and psychology on January 12, 2023. That's today. Summary. Placebos can help reduce feelings of guilt, even when the placebo is given openly under study reports. Source, University of Basel. People don't always... People don't always behave impeccably in relationship to others. When we notice that this has inadvertently caused harm, we often feel guilty. This is an uncomfortable this is an uncomfortable feeling and motivates us to take remedial action, such as apologizing or owning up. This is why guilt is considered an important moral emotion, as long as it is adaptive, in other words, appropriate and in proportion to the situation. It can improve interpersonal relationships and is therefore valuable for social cohesion, says Dylan Caesar, researcher at the Division of Clinical Psychology and Psychotherapy at the University of Basel. Whether feelings of guilt can be reduced by taking placebos is something that researchers at the Faculty of Psychology at the University of Basel have been exploring. Their findings have now been published in the journal Scientific Reports. Open label placebos work. In order to arouse feelings of guilt, test subjects in the study were asked to write about a time when they had disregarded important rules of conduct or treated someone close to them unfairly, hurt, or even harmed them. The idea was that the study participants should still feel bad about the chosen situation. Participants were then randomized to these or to three conditions. Participants in one group were given placebo pills with being deceptively told 
that this was a real medication, while participants in another group were told they are given a placebo. Both groups were told that what they had been given would be effective against feelings of guilt. The control group was given no treatment at all. The results showed that feelings of guilt were significantly reduced in both placebo groups compared with those without medication. This was also the case when the subjects knew they had been given a placebo. Our study therefore supports the intriguing finding that placebos work even when they are administered openly and that explanation of the treatment is key to its effectiveness, states the study's lead author, Dylan Caesar. Participants in this study were all healthy, had no psychiatric disorders, and were not being treated with psychotropics. Clinical applicability not yet proven. Where feelings of guilt are irrational and continue for longer periods of time, they are considered maladaptive, in other words, disproportionate. These emotions can affect people's health and are also, among other things, a common symptom of depression. Featured image. There's our caption and it reads, where feelings of guilt are irrational and continue for a longer period of time, they are considered maladaptive, in other words, disproportionate. The image is in the public domain. Neuroscience news continues. Scientific studies have shown that placebo effects can be powerful in treating depression, but the finding that open-label placebos can also be useful for such strong emotions as guilt is new. It stands to reason, says Dylan Caesar, that we should try to harness these effects to help those affected. The administering of open-label placebos, in particular, is a promising approach as it preserves patient autonomy by allowing patients to be fully aware of how the intervention works. The results of the study are an initial promising step in the direction of symptom-specific and more ethical treatments for psychological complaints using open-label placebos, Caesar continues. Further research will need to be done into whether it is possible to treat maladaptive guilt with placebos, and it is still not known whether similar effects are also possible with other, other feeling states. For Dylan Caesar, one thing is certain. Using open-label placebos would be an inexpensive and straightforward treatment option for many psychological and physical complaints. About this psychology research news. Author, Noemi Kern, source, University of Basel. Contact, University of Basel, Noemi Kern. The image I referred to earlier is in the public domain. Neurosciencenews.com suggests that you see also under the categories of neuroscience and psychology from October 13, 2022, titled, Listen, Bird Song is Good for Mental Health. The original research is under open access and is a paper titled, Deceptive and open-label placebo effects in experimentally induced guilt, a randomized controlled trial in healthy subjects, by Dylan Caesar and others, Scientific Reports. You've been listening to Technical News Reading, presented by Hakeem Alibokis Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., 
presented for World Reading Club in association with Unique Equilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us from NeuroscienceNews.com, which continues right now with an abstract from the paper titled Deceptive and Open Label Placebo Effects in Experimentally Induced Guilt, a Randomized Controlled Trial in Healthy Subjects. Placebos are known to yield significant effects in many conditions. We examine deceptive and open-label placebo effects on guilt, which is important for self-regulation and a symptom of mental disorders. Following a, an experimental induction of guilt, healthy subjects were randomized to deceptive placebo, the number 35, and open-label placebo, 35 also, or no treatment, 39 people. The primary outcome was guilt responses assessed in an area under curve. Secondary outcomes were shame, guilt, and affect. We hypothesized that deceptive placebo and open-label placebo would reduce guilt compared to no treatment. Guilt responses were higher in the no treatment group than in the placebo groups, whereas Whereas area under the curve, guilt did not differ significantly between the placebo groups. Placebos are efficacious in reducing acute guilt responses, regardless of the placebo administration, i.e. open versus deceptive. Furthermore, we observed narrative-specific effects with significant changes of guilt, but not shame, pride, or affect. These results indicate not only that guilt is amenable to placebos, but also that placebos can be administered in an ethical and potentially emotion-specific manner. You've been listening to Technical News Reading, presented by Hakeem Alibokis Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio, Inc. Neuroscience News asks that you join our newsletter, sign up to receive our recent neuroscience headlines, and summary sent to your email once a day, totally free. We hate spam and only use your email to contact you about newsletters. You can cancel your subscription anytime. Neuroscience News posts science research news from labs, universities, hospitals, and news departments around the world. Science articles can cover neuroscience, psychology, AI, robotics, neurology, brain cancer, mental health, machine learning, autism. Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, brain research, depression, and other topics related to cognitive sciences. You've been listening to Technical News Reading, presented by Hakeem Alibokis Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio, Inc., presented for World Reading Club in association with Equilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us from neuroscienceNews.com and is titled, Placebo Reduces Feelings of Guilt. It was published today on January 12, 2023, under the categories of psychology, open neuroscience articles, and neuroscience. Read more about this article for yourself on neurosciencenews.com, or you can browse other articles. Until next time, stay well. Risk of autism associated with when and where poor bears live. Risk of autism associated with when and where four bears live. 
You're listening to Technical News Reading, presented by Hakim Alipokas Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us from neurosciencenews.com and is titled Risk of Autism Associated with when and where forebears live. It's under the categories of autism, genetics, and neuroscience, and was published today, January 12, 2023. Before I continue, I'd like to say I don't know how many of you think that um, this word risk is appropriate when talking about autism. There are very many people now who are living with autism who don't seem to think that there's anything wrong with them, and neither do I. I mean, some people have different uh, parts of the, are on different parts of the spectrum that may be struggling with it. That that I may I do very much understand, and it is not that I'm talking about. There are a lot of people who embrace who they are and how they were born, and are thriving, or at least making the best of where they are. So, I understand from a medical genetic perspective. This article is talking about risk, but I don't regard it in that way. Summary. Neurosciencenews.com continues. Where and when grandparents and parents of children were born could contribute to an increased risk of ASD in their offspring. Source. University of Utah. When and where are often vital clues for epidemiologists. The medical detectives who help solve the underlying mysteries of disease. The technique dates back to at least 19th century London, where a physician named John Snow mapped cholera deaths and traced the source of the outbreak to a single well in the city. Once the well was closed, the epidemic ended. Taking this idea to a new level, University of Utah health scientists, using a unique combination of geographic and population data, recently concluded that when and where parents and grandparents of the Utah children were born and raised could contribute to an increased risk of autism among their offspring. The scientists think this new approach could be used to explore time and space aspects of any disease where family pedigree information is available. The study, published in the Journal or the International Journal of Health Geographics, the study published in the International Journal of Health Geographics is among the first to assess the influence of time and space when and where across generations on the increased risk of autism. In time, the researchers say, this finding could lead to the identification of environmental factors, such as exposure to pollutants, that could have disruptive effects on genetic information passed between generations. Looking back at families and where and when they lived helped us detect clusters of individuals who seem to have a higher subsequent risk of autism among their descendants, says James Vandersliss, 
an environmental epidemiologist in the Division of Public Health at U of U Health and senior author of the study. I do not know how to pronounce that name. It looks like Van Der Slice. Should I just pronounce it like that? We're going to call him James Van Der Slice from here on out. Neuroscience News continues. Knowing that the parents and grandparents of these children with autism shared space and time brings us closer to understanding the environmental factors that might have influenced this health outcome. Epidemiological studies across generations are difficult and time-consuming, says Rebecca Richardsteed, the study's principal investigator and a graduate student in the Department of Geography at University of Utah. All right, so so far, Utah has some very interesting names. We've got a person named Vander Slice and Richard Steed. That's pretty cool. Oh, wait, this is too, it's a hyphenated name, Richard Steed. Okay, still very cool. In fact, most of these studies have been done in animals which reproduce quickly and can be followed for several generations in a shorter time span than humans. Using existing technology in a new way, Vanderslice and Richard Steed circumvented this drawback by looking at existing data available for parents and grandparents to identify places and time periods that may be associated with risk factors that increased the risk of disease in subsequent generations. The researchers used the Utah Registry of Autism and Developmental Disabilities in conjunction with the Utah Population Database, UPDB, to identify parents and grandparents of children born between 1989 and 2014 who have autism. Birth certificates driver's license information, and census and medical records in the UPDB helped the scientists track when and where these individuals lived over time. The UPDB is one of the few databases worldwide to include this type of information. For comparison, they randomly selected parents and grandparents of children in the UPDB database who were not diagnosed with autism. Names of the individuals were withheld from the researchers. In all, Vanderslice and colleagues pinpointed where 7,900 parents and 31,600 grandparents, hold on. In all, Vanderslice and colleagues pinpointed where 7,900 parents and 31,600 grandparents were born and raised. They identified 20 key clusters or groupings scattered across the state. After analysis, 13 of the 20 clusters, nine among grandparents and four among parents, were associated with an elevated risk of autism in their children or grandchildren. In particular, descendants of paternal grandparents were about three times more likely to have autism than expected. What we're seeing fits in with current scientific understanding of how paternal genetics is key to evolutionary change and adaptation, Richard Steed says. I'm going to have to stop you right there. All right. Uh, Paternal genetics is key to evolutionary change and adaptation. Okay. I'm not going to comment 
on that. Let's, let's explore at some point in time later. In your mind, make a note to explore mitochondrial genetics, specifically, specifically matrilineal mitochondrial genetics. That's what I'll say. If you want to do further research, I would suggest looking up matrilineal mitochondrial genetics. That's what I'm calling it, but I believe that if you use those terms in searches, you'll find some appropriate things. I, but it's from the mother side and the, gen, the genes in the mitochondria. Let's put it another way. So matrilineal mitochondrial genetics. I just think that, um, wow, it's the, the, patriar the patriarchy has really sunk its claws deeply into the scientific community. So, again, what we're seeing fits in on oh, neuroscience news continues. What we're seeing fits in with current scientific understanding of how paternal genetics is key to evolutionary change and adaptation, Richard Steed says. So it's quite possible in the case of autism that a signal shaped in part by environmental experiences is coming from the paternal lineage, which is being passed down through the family. Now, if we look at it in another way, we can say that um, that autism gets triggered from the father's side, the male side of the family. Seven clusters, all in rural areas, had a low risk of an association between autism and family lineage. Seven clusters in all rural areas had a low risk of an association between autism and family lineage. We're really not sure why some rural areas seem to have what might be called a protective effect, Richard Steed says. It's certainly possible that parents and grandparents living in urban areas had different environmental exposures or experiences. That's exactly what my intuition was right away when I read that. If you're living in a, in a rural area, you are more likely to not be exposed to environmental uh, factors that are like specifically pollutants and the type of stress. Or even the American Psychological Association had, has admitted that um, and even there were a research here on neurosciencenews.com that have demonstrated that living in urban sprawls are lead to mental illness and going into and that a therapeutic benefit there's and a, a part of therapy is actually putting people in rural and more natural environments. So there's those are two things there. Uh, it could be toxicological factors as well as uh, structural factors that are in play here. Neuroscience News continues. What we can say, based on our findings, is what we are being exposed to now is probably not just affecting us or even our children, but maybe even our children's children. And there's a colorful picture of uh, maybe a child's hands on some colorful blocks. And the caption reads, The scientists think this new approach could be used to explore time and space aspects of any disease where family pedigree information is available. The image is in the public domain. Moving forward, the researchers will delve deeper into the factors, including lifestyle, that could help explain these results. Evidence shows our environment has a deterministic effect on our growth and development, which includes the germline cells we carry for the next generation, Vanderslice says. Examining the shared space and time of our ancestors 
may give us clues about the environmental factors that may lead to biological changes that increase the risk of disease in future generations. NeuroscienceNews.com suggests that you see also under the categories of neuroscience from August 29, 2022, titled Seven New Areas in the Insular Cortex Identified. Neuroscience continues. The scientists think this new approach could be used to explore time and space aspects of other conditions where family pedigree information is available. This idea isn't limited to autism, Richard Steed says. It can be applied to any disease and could enhance our ability to understand how a confluence of genetic and environmental factors can have long-term health consequences for families. I think that's a very important aspect here. This is like, that's one of the most concise and, and the best way to sum up something that will lead to, I believe, much better scientific understanding of these things. That a confluence of genetic and environmental factors can have long-term consequences for families. That's it, period. With everything. That, that, you know, all, all they're basically saying is, is a combination of nature and nurture. And you've heard those terms before, right? And they're easy to remember because they have almost the same letters, right? Nurture, just swap out the A. Nature and nurture. And, you know, add an extra R in there at the beginning. So we have, that's exactly what that means. If you've ever heard the term nature, nur, nur, nature versus nurture or nature working with nurturing, right? This, that's what that exact sentence right there is. It can be applied to any disease and could enhance our ability to understand how a confluence of genetic and environmental factors can have long-term health consequences for families. About this autism research news, the author press office at the University of Utah, so contact University of Utah's press office. The image I looked at earlier is in the public domain, and the original research is under open access from a paper which is titled Evidence of Transgenerational Effects on Autism Spectrum Disorder Using Multigenerational Space-Time Cluster Detection by Rebecca Richards-Steed and others in the International Journal of Health Geographics. You've been listening to Technical News Reading, presented by Hakeem Alibokis Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us from neurosciencenews.com and is titled Risk of Autism Associated with When and Where Forebears Live. NeuroscienceNews.com continues with an abstract from the paper titled Evidence of Transgenerational Effects on Autism Spectrum Disorder Using Multigenerational Space-Time Cluster Detection. Background. Transgenerational epigenetics risks associated with complex health outcomes, such as autism spectrum disorder, have attracted increasing attention. Transgenerational environmental risk exposures with potential for epigenetic effects can be effectively identified using space-time clustering, specifically applied to ancestors of individuals with disease outcomes Space-time clustering characterized for vulnerable developmental stages of growth can provide a measure of relative risk 
for disease outcomes in descendants. Objectives. One, identify space-time clusters of ancestors with a descendant with a clinical ASD diagnosis and matched controls. Two, identify de developmental window of ancestors with the highest relative risk of ASD in descendants. Three, identify how the relative risk may vary through the maternal or paternal line. Methods. Family pedigrees linked to residential locations of ASD cases in Utah have been used to identify space-time clusters of ancestors. Control family pedigrees of, what the heck is that? I've never seen that combination of words. None cases, N-O-N-E dash C-A-S. Uh, boy, well, this is, hold on. It's never seen that before, so it's confusing. What the heck just happened? My whole article just disappeared. Right, let's take a look at this again. I've just never seen the, the combination of those words before. I'm just turning my mobile device to the side to just make sure if that, yeah, it's called it's none cases. All right. N-O-N-E. All right, let's take, this, uh, take a look at this. All right. Family pedigrees linked to residential locations of ASD cases in Utah have been used to identify space-time clusters of ancestors. Control family pedigrees of none cases based on age and sex have been matched to cases two to one. Um, yeah, this is uh, going to disturb me just a little bit. Uh, what are none cases? Take a look at what that is. See, this is why I always look everything up because I just get very disturbed if I don't understand what something means. Uh, none cases. Uh, hmm. And none case is really useful in doing things like populating a dictionary because. Hmm. Okay, picking up nun cases, Catholic nuns, y'all. Hmm. All right, let me see if I can find, like, if I can uh, define this through the context. Okay, yes, I got it now. All right. So this just means people who aren't suffering from ASD or don't have that in, as risk factors, right? So control family pedigrees of none cases based on age and sex have been matched to cases two to one. The data have been categorized by maternal or paternal lineage at birth, childhood, and adolescence. A total of 3,957 children, both parents and maternal and paternal grandparents were identified. Bernoulli space-time binomial relative risk scan statistics was used to identify clusters. Monte Carlo simulation was used for statistical significance testing. Okay, now they're just, just showing off. Bernoulli space-time binomial relative risk 
scan statistics and Monte Carlo simulation was used for the sounds very fancy was used for statistical significance testing they're just mathematical algorithms by the way Monte Carlo simulations, the best portfolio visualizer. Create and rebalance your portfolios in less than minutes. Add another level of AI, so AI, value of information. Monte Carlo methods and Monte Carlo or Monte Carlo, Monte Carlo experiments are a broad class of computational algorithms that rely on repeated random sampling to obtain numerical results. By the way, um, that's a very close to how uh, polymerase chain reaction works, by the way. Um, rely on repeated random sampling. So polymerase chain reactions uh, repeatedly uh, uh, samples and, and creates repeats and replicas of a small, tiny piece of genetic material to basically amplify the amount of it so that something can be detected inside of it. It's really a very interesting uh, thing to use for... Uh, COVID testing, by the way, but I'm not going to comment on that either. But I think I kind of just did. All right, let's take a look. Results. 20 statistically significant clusters were identified. 13 increased... 13 increased relative risk scans greater than one space-time clusters were identified from the paternal... from the maternal and paternal lines at a p-value of less than five hundredths paternal or 0 0.05 the paternal grandparents carry the greatest relative risk 2.86 to 2.96 during birth and childhood in the 1950s to 1960 which represent the smallest size clusters and occur in urban areas additionally seven statistically significant clusters with the relative risk less than one were relatively large in area, covering more rural areas of the state. Conclusion. This study has identified statistically significant space-time clusters during critical developmental windows that are associated with ASD risk in descendants. The geographic space and time clusters, family pedigrees with over three-plus generations, which we prefer or which we refer to as a person's geographic legacy, is a powerful tool for studying transgenerational effects that may be epigenetic in nature. Our novel use of space-time clustering can be applied to any disease where family pedigree data is available. Neurosciencenews.com asks that you join our newsletter. Sign up to receive our recent neuroscience headlines and summaries sent to your email once a day, totally free. We hate spam and only use your email to contact you about newsletters. You can cancel your subscription anytime. Neuroscience News posts science research news from labs, universities, hospitals, and news departments around the world. Science articles can cover neuroscience, psychology, AI, robotics, neurology, brain cancer, mental health, machine learning, autism, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, brain research, depression, and other topics related to cognitive sciences. You've been listening to Technical News Reading, presented by Hakeem Alibokas Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., presented for World Reading Club in association with Unequilibrium.
This edition's reading focus has come to us once again from neurosciencenews.com and is titled Risk of Autism Associated with When and Where Forebears Live. Read more for yourself by going to neurosciencenews.com. Let me just take a quick look at some related articles here. We have Gut Bacteria Affect Brain Health. Next one is predisposition to accidental awareness under anesthesia identified. Hmm. And common brain network for psychiatric illness discovered. I don't know, this second one here, predisposition to accidental awareness under anesthesia identified. That's interesting. I wonder what that means. Placebo reduces feelings of guilt, a framework to quantify brain's control costs. And food for thought, early nutrition shapes the brain and influences what we like to eat. I read that one earlier. All right, but let's take a look at predisposition to accidental awareness under anesthesia identified. We'll be taking a look at that next on technical news reading from neurosciencenews.com. But until next time. Okay. This is the um, the natural the problems with sleep deprivation and uh, idiots. Yeah, the problem the problems with sleep deprivation and and idiots. The January twelfth, two thousand and twenty-three replays. I am going to go to sleep and um, start playing my wisdom talks from today back here um, while I sleep and keep me company in the background. Oh, there's my speaker I'm going to play with. So I'm going to turn, there we go, turn that on and uh, start with, um, let's see. Where's the one that I did? Oh, yeah. So Internet Treatment for Anger. That one's two and a half hours. And it's two and a half hours because uh, I had a guest. And um, it's um, it's pretty hilarious um, to me because, you know, I'm a supervillain. And um, apparently um, I'm getting very good at, um, at upsetting people. So... The more I develop my super human supervillain powers, the better and better I'm getting at it. So maybe I'll start with that one. Um, but there's a recap. This is the problems of sleep deprivation and idiots. I'm going to go to sleep while this plays because I can no longer be functional. And I need to get up by 2 o'clock or so so I can go and meet with um, someone who works at a cafe close by. I'll be hiring to work with me as a, a partner. You know, I don't, I, for some reason, I've always been averse to whole, like being like somebody working for me. You know, I like to like my, even the people who train with me in my dojo, I call them sparring partners rather than students. And my, um, and, you know, rather than a personal assistant, you know, I have a business partner. I just rather work that way. I don't, I don't especially, you know, you got to hire up, so to speak. It's a whole thing. I don't. I've never uh, appreciated being 
the so-called smartest person in the room. And anytime that happens, this is the biggest problem that I have with a lot of places and things that I go. I don't like um, being appraised unnecessarily. It's just work with me. Stop keep stop telling me all the time that I'm all this and I'm all this. It's just like, come on, give me an idea. You know, let's spiral upwards and, and do something. I, I just, I, I've never, I don't get it. It's like, we're all able to contribute and make things happen. But this whole business about, you know, you know, this is, people are going to get it one way or another. People are going to get it one way or the other. If I have to really push the envelope here with the supervillain status, because I mean, one way or the other, we're going to start to understand that everybody has ultimate potential to be anything that they really, really want to do. And that there's, there's no reason to be having all this like hero worship nonsense, you know, like super villain I am to the max, you know, and, and, and that's it. Stop. It needs to stop already with the stuff about you're all, oh, yeah, it's like, no, come on, contribute something to the room, to, to my thoughts, uplift me. I, I can't be, I, you know, it's very upsetting to me. It really is. I don't like constantly being praised and people always telling me about how great I am and all this, that. It's like, well, what about you? Uh, what about you? Why can't we just work together and all of us just be awesome? You know? So that's that's how I feel. And um, and so the more I'm, I'm starting to, to turn the supervillain stuff into a fucking science, this is actually really amazing. And, you know, the, if you, you guys have ever seen the um, the movie The Incredibles, um, and I think The Incredibles 2, I don't remember which one it was, but the villain actually in there um, is a techno-villain, meaning he uh, he, he in, engineered his superpowers. It wasn't like magically gifted, or I don't know how the, the Incredibles got their powers, but they're like born like that genetically or something like that, and they pass it on to their kids. But that's that right there is the key. Um, the the villain, the super villain in The Incredibles is a techno villain. Oh, that, that's the name that I give them, techno villains. When when someone invents or engineers their powers, I think that right there is awesome. See, uh, as opposed to like Magneto, you know, and the other mutants in the in the X Men, they were born with powers as a genetic mutation. There are others like um, uh, like oh yes, like Lex Luthor. I would consider him to be a techno villain because he invents and creates the power through invention so here we're going to start with what was supposed to be my talk called the internet treatment for anger i don't even know if i should play that one because i don't know that guy i just i don't know i'm going to be having that on for two hours i don't know if i could you know what i'm not going to do that because i do not want to hear his voice for two hours while i'm sleeping so i'm going to start with um i'm going to start with how to unlock your creativity. Um, and then it's going to go to the ones from, oh, no, 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 you don't even want to hear that. Yesterday I went off on this Demon Ought 6 thing. That was at night. I, I, I'm not going to subject you to that kind of ranting either. So I guess I'm going to start with can neuroimaging reveal, da, 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 da. Yeah, because I'm, I'm done with the, uh, the, the fussing right now. So let's just go. This is my, I'm, I'm going to sleep. I'm sleep deprived and I was reading and just 
while I stood up, I thought I, I thought that if I stood up and started doing my reading, it would help. But no, I'm so tired that I, I, I started falling asleep um, standing up. That's, I, I, it's like a self-induced narcolepsy through sleep deprivation, and that is completely and totally unacceptable. So here comes uh, my um, neuroscience news um, talks here from. All right, I think I'm awake now. I'm turning it off. Uh, I made it from one um, sleep marathon to another. Um, And so now, look at that. Maria, did you take a nap too? So now I'm going to um, uh, wake myself up and do my chores. So, look, Grady stopped by. What's what are you, Grady talking about? Um, let's see. Did you see comment? We got some cool stuff to listen to until Peter show. What up, Heidi? Lots of science this morning, huh? Um, did you see?